We continue now with the Catechism of the Council of Trent and the Sacraments, the chapter on the Eucharist. The obligation of communion. How often must communion be received? Lest any be kept away from communion by the fear that the requisite preparation is too hard and laborious, the faithful are frequently to be reminded that they are all bound to receive the Holy Eucharist. Furthermore, the Church has decreed that whoever neglects to approach Holy Communion once a year at Easter is liable to a sentence of excommunication. However, let not the faithful imagine that it is enough to receive the body of the Lord once a year only in obedience to the decree of the Church. They should approach oftener, but whether monthly, weekly, or daily cannot be decided by any fixed universal rule. St. Augustine, however, lays down a most certain norm. Live in such a manner as to be able to receive every day. It will therefore be the duty of the pastor frequently to admonish the faithful that as they deem it necessary to afford daily nutriment to the body, they should also feel solicitous to feed and nourish the soul every day with this heavenly food. It is clear that the soul stands not less in need of spiritual than the body of corporal food. Here it will be found most useful to recall the inestimable and divine advantages which, as we've already shown, flow from sacramental communion. It will be well also to refer to the manna, which was a figure of this sacrament and which refreshed the bodily powers every day. The fathers who earnestly recommended the frequent reception of this sacrament may also be cited. The words of St. Augustine, Thou sinnest daily, receive daily, express not his opinion only, but that of all the fathers who have written on the subject, as anyone may easily discover who will carefully read them. That there was a time when the faithful approached Holy Communion every day, we learn from the Acts of the Apostles. All then who then professed the faith of Christ burned with such true and sincere charity that devoting themselves to prayer and other works of piety, they were found prepared to communicate daily. This devout practice, which seems to have been interrupted for a time, was again partially revived by the holy pope and martyr Anacletus, who commanded that all the ministers who assisted at the sacrifice of the Mass should communicate an ordinance, as the pontiff declares, of apostolic institution. It was also for a long time the practice of the church that as soon as the sacrifice was complete and when the priest himself had communicated, he turned to the congregation and invited the faithful to the holy table in these words, Come, brethren, and receive communion. And thereupon those who were prepared advanced to receive the holy mysteries with the most fervent devotion. But subsequently, when charity and devotion had grown so cold that the faithful very seldom approached communion, it was decreed by Pope Fabian that all should communicate thrice every year, at Christmas, at Easter, and at Pentecost. This decree was afterwards confirmed by many councils, particularly by the first of Agde. Such at length was the decay of piety that not only was this holy and salutary law unobserved, but communion was deferred for years. 
The Council of Lateran therefore decreed that all the faithful should receive the sacred body of the Lord at least once a year at Easter, and that neglect of this duty should be chastised by exclusion from the society of the faithful. But although this law, sanctioned by the authority of God and of His Church, concerns all the faithful, it should be taught that it does not extend to those who on account of their tender age have not attained the use of reason. For these are not able to distinguish the Holy Eucharist from common and ordinary bread, and cannot bring with them to this sacrament piety and devotion. Furthermore, to extend the precept to them would appear inconsistent with the ordinance of our Lord, for he said, Take and eat, words which cannot apply to infants who are evidently incapable of taking and eating. In some places, it is true, an ancient practice prevailed of giving the Holy Eucharist even to infants, but for the reasons already assigned and for other reasons in keeping with Christian piety, this practice has been long discontinued by authority of the Church. With regard to the age at which children should be given the holy mysteries, this the parents and confessor can best determine. To them it belongs to inquire and to ascertain from the children themselves whether they have some knowledge of this admirable sacrament and whether they desire to receive it. Communion must not be given to persons who are insane and incapable of devotion. However, according to the decree of the Council of Carthage, it may be administered to them at the close of life, provided they have shown, before losing their minds, a pious and religious disposition, and no danger arising from the state of the stomach or other inconvenience or disrespect is likely. The Right of Administering Communion As to the right to be observed in communicating, pastors should teach that the law of the Holy Church forbids communion under both kinds to anyone but the officiating priests, without the authority of the Church itself. Christ the Lord, it is true, as has been explained by the Council of Trent, instituted and delivered to his apostles at his Last Supper this most sublime sacrament under the species of bread and wine. But it does not follow that by doing so our Lord and Savior established a law ordering its administration to all the faithful under both species. For speaking of this sacrament, he himself frequently mentions it under one kind only, as for instance when he says, If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. And he that eateth this bread shall live forever. It is clear that the church was influenced by numerous and most cogent reasons, not only to approve but also to confirm by authority of its decree, the general practice of communicating under one species. In the first place, the greatest caution was necessary to avoid spilling the blood of the Lord on the ground, a thing that seemed not easily to be avoided if the chalice were administered in a large assemblage of the people. In the next place, whereas the Holy Eucharist ought to be in readiness for the sick, it was very much to be apprehended were the species of wine to remain long unconsumed that it might turn acid. 
Besides, there are many who cannot at all bear the taste or even the smell of wine. Lest, therefore, what is intended for the spiritual health should prove hurtful to the health of the body, it has been most prudently provided by the church that it should be administered to the people under the species of bread only. We may also further observe that in many countries wine is extremely scarce, nor can it, moreover, be brought from elsewhere without incurring very heavy expenses and encountering very tedious and difficult journeys. Finally, a most important reason was the necessity of opposing the heresy of those who denied that Christ, whole and entire, is contained under either species and asserted that the body is contained under the species of bread without the blood and the blood under the species of wine without the body. In order, therefore, to place more clearly before the eyes of all the truth of the Catholic faith, communion under one kind, that is, under the species of bread, was most wisely introduced. There are also other reasons collected by those who have treated on this subject and which, if it shall appear necessary, can be brought forward by pastors. The Minister of the Eucharist To omit nothing doctrinal on this sacrament, we now come to speak of its minister, a point, however, on which scarcely anyone can be ignorant. Only priests have power to consecrate and administer the Eucharist. It must be taught, then, that to priests alone has been given power to consecrate and administer to the faithful the Holy Eucharist, that this has been the unvarying practice of the Church, that the faithful should receive the sacrament from the priests, and that the officiating priests should communicate themselves has been explained by the Holy Council of Trent, which has also shown that this practice, as having proceeded from apostolic tradition, is to be religiously retained, particularly as Christ the Lord has left us an illustrious example thereof, having consecrated his own most sacred body and given it to the apostles with his own hands. To safeguard in every possible way the dignity of so august a sacrament, not only is the power of its administration entrusted exclusively to priests, but the Church has also prohibited by law any but consecrated persons, unless some case of great necessity intervene to dare handle or touch the sacred vessels, the linen, or other instruments necessary to its completion. Priests themselves and the rest of the faithful may hence understand how great should be the piety and the holiness of those who approach to consecrate, administer, or receive the Eucharist. What, however, has been already said of the other sacraments holds good also with regard to the sacrament of the Eucharist, namely, that a sacrament is validly administered even by the wicked, provided all the essentials have been duly observed. For we are to believe that all this depend not on the merit of the minister, but are operated by the virtue and the power of Christ our Lord. These are the things necessary to be explained regarding the Eucharist as a sacrament. We must now proceed to explain its nature as a sacrifice, that pastors may understand what are the principal instructions which they ought to impart to the faithful on Sundays and holy days 
regarding this mystery in conformity with the decree of the Holy Council of Trent. This sacrament is not only a treasure of heavenly riches, which if turned to good account will obtain for us the grace and love of God, but it also possesses a peculiar character by which we are enabled to make some return to God for the immense benefits bestowed upon us. How grateful and acceptable to God is this victim, if duly and legitimately emulated, as inferred from the following consideration. Of the sacrifices of the old law it is written, Sacrifice and oblation thou wouldst not. And again, if thou hadst desired sacrifice, I would indeed have given it. With burnt offerings thou wilt not be delighted. Now if these were so pleasing in the Lord's sight, that as the Scripture testifies, from them God smelled a sweet savor, that is to say they were grateful and acceptable to Him, what have we not to hope from that sacrifice in which is immolated and offered He Himself, of whom a voice from heaven twice proclaimed, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This mystery, therefore, pastors should carefully explain, so that when the faithful are assembled at the celebration of divine service, they may learn to meditate with attention and devotion on the sacred things at which they are present. They should teach, then, in the first place, that the Eucharist was instituted by Christ for two purposes. One, that it might be the heavenly food of our souls, enabling us to support and preserve spiritual life, and the other, that the church might have a perpetual sacrifice by which our sins might be expiated and our heavenly Father, oftentimes grievously offended by our crimes, might be turned away from wrath to mercy, from the severity of just chastisement to clemency. Of this thing we may observe a type and resemblance in the Paschal Lamb, which was wont to be offered and eaten by the children of Israel as a sacrament and a sacrifice. Nor could our Savior, when about to offer Himself to God the Father on the altar of the cross, have given any more illustrious indication of His unbounded love towards us than by bequeathing to us a visible sacrifice, by which that bloody sacrifice which was soon after to be offered once on the cross, would be renewed, and its memory daily celebrated with the greatest utility unto the consummation of ages by the church diffused throughout the world. But between the Eucharist as a sacrament and the sacrifice, the difference is very great, for as a sacrament it is perfected by consecration. As a sacrifice, all its forces consist in its oblation. When therefore kept in a pyx or born on the sick, born to the sick, it is a sacrament, not a sacrifice. As a sacrament also, it is to them that receive it a source of merit, and brings with it all those advantages which have already been mentioned. But as a sacrifice, it is not only a source of merit, but also of satisfaction. For as in his passion Christ the Lord merited and satisfied for us, so also those who offer this sacrifice by which they communicate with us merit the fruit of his passion and satisfy. A footnote. 
He who celebrates Mass worthily and he who communicates worthily merit by those personal acts an increase of grace and glory. The communicant receives moreover from the sacrament the fruits explained earlier. But communion does not affect directly, as does the Mass, satisfaction for sin. The Mass is a true sacrifice. With regard to the institution of this sacrifice, the Holy Council of Trent has left no room for doubt, but declaring that it was instituted by our Lord at His Last Supper, while it condemns under anathema all those who assert that in it is not offered to God a true and proper sacrifice, or that to offer means nothing else than that Christ is given as our spiritual food. Nor did the council omit carefully to explain that to God alone is offered this sacrifice. For although the church sometimes offers masses in honor and in memory of the saints, yet she teaches that the sacrifice is offered not to them, but to God alone, who has crowned the saints with immortal glory. Hence the priest never says, I offer sacrifice to thee, Peter, or to thee, Paul, but while he offers sacrifice to God alone, he renders him thanks for the signal victory won by the blessed martyrs, and thus implores their patronage, that they, whose memory we celebrate on earth, may vouchsafe to intercede for us in heaven. This doctrine, handed down by the Catholic Church concerning the truth of this sacrifice, she received from the words of our Lord, when on that last night, committing to his apostles these same sacred mysteries, he said, Do this for a commemoration of me. For then, as was defined by the Holy Council, he ordained them priests, and commanded that they and their successors in the priestly office should immolate and offer his body. Of this the words of the Apostle to the Corinthians also afford a sufficient proof. You cannot drink the chalice of the Lord and the chalice of devils. You cannot be partakers of the table of the Lord and of the table of devils. As then by the table of devils must be understood the altar on which sacrifice was offered to them, so also if the conclusion proposed to himself by the apostle is to be legitimately drawn, by the table of the Lord can be understood nothing else than the altar on which sacrifice was offered to the Lord. Should we look for figures and prophecies of this sacrifice in the Old Testament, in the first place Malachi most clearly prophesied thereof in these words, From the rising of the sun even to the going down, my name is great among the Gentiles, and in every place there is sacrifice, and there is offered to my name a clean oblation. For my name is great among the Gentiles, saith the Lord of hosts. Moreover, this victim was foretold, as well before as after the promulgation of the law, by various kinds of sacrifices. For this victim alone, as the perfection and completion of all, comprises all the blessings which were signified by the other sacrifices. In nothing, however, do we behold a more lively image of the Eucharistic sacrifice than in that of Melchizedek. For the Savior himself offered to God the Father at his Last Supper his body and blood, 
under the appearances of bread and wine, declaring that he was constituted a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Excellence of the Mass We therefore confess that the sacrifice of the Mass is and ought to be considered one and the same sacrifice as that of the cross, for the victim is one and the same, namely Christ our Lord, who offered himself once only a bloody sacrifice on the altar of the cross. The bloody and unbloody victim are not two, but one victim only, whose sacrifice is daily renewed in the Eucharist, in obedience to the command of our Lord, Do this for a commemoration of me. The priest is also one and the same, Christ the Lord, for the ministers who offer sacrifice consecrate the holy mysteries, not in their own person, but in that of Christ as the words of consecration itself show. For the priest does not say, This is the body of Christ, but this is my body. And thus, acting in the person of Christ the Lord, he changes the substance of the bread and wine into the true substance of his body and blood. This being the case, it must be taught without any hesitation that as the Holy Council of Trent has also explained, the sacred and holy sacrifice of the Mass is not a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving only, or a mere commemoration of the sacrifice performed on the cross, but also truly a propitiatory sacrifice by which God is appeased and rendered propitious to us. If therefore, with a pure heart, a lively faith, and affected with an inward sorrow for our transgressions, we immolate and offer this most holy victim, we shall without doubt obtain mercy from the Lord and grace in time of need. For so delighted is the Lord with the odor of this victim that bestowing on us the gift of grace and repentance, he pardons our sins. Hence, this usual prayer of the church, as often as the commemoration of this victim is celebrated, so often is the work of our salvation being done, that is to say, through this unbloody sacrifice, flow to us the most plenteous fruits of that bloody victim. Pastors should next teach that such is the efficacy of this sacrifice, that its benefits extend not only to the celebrant and communicant, but to all the faithful, whether living with us on earth, or already numbered with those who are dead in the Lord, but whose sins have not yet been fully expiated. For according to the most authentic apostolic tradition, it is not less available when offered for them than when offered for the sins of the living, their punishments, satisfactions, calamities, and difficulties of every sort. It is hence easy to perceive that all masses, as being conducive to the common interest and salvation of all the faithful, are to be considered common to all. The Rites and Ceremonies of the Mass The sacrifice of the Mass is celebrated with many solemn rites and ceremonies, none of which should be deemed useless or superfluous. On the contrary, all of them tend to display the majesty of this august sacrifice and to excite the faithful when beholding these saving mysteries to contemplate the divine things 
which lie concealed in the Eucharistic sacrifice. On these rites and ceremonies we shall not dwell, since they require a more lengthy exposition than is compatible with the nature of the present work. Moreover, priests can easily consult on the subject some of the many booklets and works that have been written by pious and learned men. What has been said so far will, with the divine assistance, be found sufficient to explain the principal things with regard the Holy Eucharist both as a sacrament and sacrifice. The Sacrament of Penance Importance of Instruction on this sacrament. As the frailty and weakness of human nature are universally known and felt by each one in himself, no one can be ignorant of the great necessity of the sacrament of penance. If, therefore, the diligence of pastors should be proportioned to the weight and importance of the subject, we must admit that in expounding this sacrament they can never be sufficiently diligent. Nay, it should be explained with more care than baptism. Baptism is administered but once and cannot be repeated. Penance may be administered and becomes necessary as often as we may have sinned after baptism. Hence the Council of Trent declares, For those who fall into sin after baptism, the sacrament of penance is as necessary to salvation as is baptism for those who have not been already baptized. The saying of St. Jerome that penance is a second plank is universally known and highly commended by all subsequent writers on sacred things. As he who suffers shipwreck has no hope of safety unless perchance he sees on some plank from the wreck, so he that suffers the shipwreck of baptismal innocence unless he cling to the saving plank of penance, has doubtless lost all hope of salvation. These instructions are intended not only for the benefit of pastors, but also for that of the faithful at large, to awaken attention, lest they be found culpably negligent in a matter so very important. Impressed with a just sense of the frailty of human nature, their first and most earnest desire should be to advance with the divine assistance in the ways of God, without sin or failing. But should they at any time prove so unfortunate as to fall, then, looking at the infinite goodness of God, who like the good shepherd binds up and heals the wounds of his sheep, they should not postpone recourse to the most saving remedy of penance. Different Meanings of the Word Penance to enter at once on the subject and to avoid all error to which the ambiguity of the word may give rise, its different meanings are first to be explained. By penance, some understand satisfaction, while others, who wander far from the doctrine of the Catholic faith, supposing penance to have no reference to the past, define it to be nothing more than newness of life. It must therefore be shown that the word has a variety of meanings. In the first place, it is said of those to whom that which was before pleasing is now displeasing, whether the object itself was good or bad. In this sense, all those repent whose sorrow is according to the world, not according to God, and therefore 
worketh not salvation, but death. In the second place, it is used to express that sorrow which the sinner conceives not, however, for the sake of God, but for his own sake, concerning some sin of his in which he once took pleasure. A third kind of penance is that by which we experience interior sorrow of heart, or give exterior indication of such sorrow for the sake of God alone. To all these kinds of sorrow the word repentance properly applies. When the sacred scriptures say that God repented, the expression is evidently figurative. When we repent of anything, we are most anxious to change it. And hence, when God has resolved to change anything, the scriptures, accommodating their language to our manner of speaking, say that he repents. Thus we read that it repented him that he had made man, and also that he was sorry that he had made Saul king. But an important distinction is to be made between these different significations of the word. The first kind of penance must be considered faulty. The second is only the agitation of a disturbed mind. The third we call both a virtue and a sacrament. In this last sense, penance is taken here. The Virtue of Penance We shall first treat of penance as a virtue not only because it is the duty of the pastor to lead the faithful to the practice of every virtue, but also because the acts which proceed from penance as a virtue constitute the matter, as it were, of penance as a sacrament. And unless the virtue be rightly understood, the force of the sacrament cannot be appreciated. The faithful, therefore, are first to be admonished and exhorted to labor strenuously to attain this interior penance of the heart which we call a virtue, and without which exterior penance can avail them very little. Interior penance consists in turning to God sincerely and from the heart, and in hating and detesting our past transgressions with a firm resolution of amendment of life, hoping to obtain pardon through the mercy of God. Accompanying this penance, like an inseparable companion of detestation for sin, is a sorrow and sadness, which is a certain agitation and disturbance of the soul, and is called by many a passion. Hence, many of the fathers define penance as an anguish of the soul. Penance, however, in those who repent, must be preceded by faith, for without faith no man can turn to God. Faith, therefore, cannot on any account be called a part of penance. That this inward penance is, as we've already said, a virtue, the various commands which have been given regarding it clearly show, for the law commands only those actions that are virtuous. Furthermore, no one can deny that it is a virtue to be sorrowful at the time, in the manner, and to the extent which are required. To regulate sorrow in this manner belongs to the virtue of penance. Some conceive a sorrow which bears no proportion to their crimes. Nay, there are some, says Solomon, who are glad when they have done evil. Others, on the contrary, 
give themselves to such melancholy and grief as utterly to abandon all hope of salvation. Such, perhaps, was the condition of Cain when he exclaimed, My iniquity is greater than that I may deserve pardon. Such certainly was the condition of Judas, who, repenting, hanged himself, and thus lost soul and body. Penance, therefore, considered as a virtue, assists us in restraining within the bounds of moderation our sense of sorrow. That penance is a virtue may also be inferred from the ends which the true penitent proposes to himself. The first is to destroy sin and deface from the soul its every spot and stain. The second is to make satisfaction to God for the sins which he has committed, which is clearly an act of justice. Between God and man, it is true, no relation of strict justice can exist, so great is the distance that separates them. Yet, between them, there is evidently a sort of justice, such as exists between a father and his children, between a master and his servants. The third end of the penitent is to reinstate himself in the favor and friendship of God whom he has offended, and whose hatred he has earned by the turpitude of sin. The foregoing considerations sufficiently prove that penance is a virtue. We must also point out the steps by which we may ascend to this divine virtue. The mercy of God first goes before us and converts our heart to Him. This was the object of the prophet's prayer, Convert us, O Lord, to Thee, and we shall be converted. Illumined by this light, the soul next tends to God by faith. He that cometh to God, says the apostle, must believe that he is, and is a rewarder to them that seek him. A salutary fear of God's judgments follows, and the soul, contemplating the punishments that await sin, is recalled from the paths of vice. To this state of soul seem to refer these words of Isaiah. As a woman with child, when she draweth near the time of her delivery, is in pain and crieth out in her pangs, so are we become. Then follows a hope of obtaining mercy from God, encouraged by which we resolve on improvement of life. Lastly, our hearts are inflamed by charity, whence springs that filial fear which good and dutiful children experience, and thus dreading only to offend the majesty of God in anything, we entirely abandon the ways of sin. Such are, as it were, the steps by which we ascend to this most exalted virtue, a virtue altogether heavenly and divine, to which the sacred scriptures promise the kingdom of heaven. For it is written in St. Matthew, Do penance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If, says Ezekiel, the wicked do penance for all his sins which he hath committed, and keep all my commandments, and do judgment and justice, living he shall live. In another place, I desire not the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live, words which are evidently understood of eternal life. Penance as a Sacrament Regarding external penance, it will be necessary to show that in it the sacrament properly consists 
and that it possesses certain outward and sensible signs which denote the effect that takes place interiorly in the soul. Why Christ instituted this sacrament? In the first place, however, it will be well to explain why it is that Christ our Lord was pleased to number penance among the sacraments. One of his reasons certainly was to leave us no room for doubt regarding the remission of sin which was promised by God when he said, If the wicked do penance. For each one has good reason to distrust the accuracy of his own judgment on his own actions, and hence we could not but be very much in doubt regarding the truth of our internal penance. It was to destroy this, our uneasiness, that our Lord instituted the sacrament of penance, by means of which we are assured that our sins are pardoned by the absolution of the priest, and also to tranquilize our conscience by means of the trust we rightly repose in the virtue of the sacraments. The words of the priest, sacramentally and lawfully, absolving us from our sins, are to be accepted in the same sense as the words of Christ our Lord, when he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good heart, thy sins are forgiven thee. In the second place, no one can obtain salvation unless through Christ and the merits of his passion. Hence it was becoming in itself and highly advantageous to us that a sacrament should be instituted through the force and efficacy of which the blood of Christ flows into our souls, washes away all the sins committed after baptism, and thus leads us to recognize that it is to our Savior alone we owe the blessing of reconciliation. Penance is a sacrament. That penance is a sacrament, pastors can easily show from what follows. As baptism is a sacrament because it blots out all sins, and especially original sin, so for the same reason penance, which takes away all the sins of thought and deed committed after baptism, must be regarded as a true sacrament in the proper sense of the word. Moreover, and this is the principal reason, since what is exteriorly done, both by priest and penitent, signifies the inward effects that take place in the soul, who will venture to deny that penance is invested with the nature of a proper and true sacrament? For a sacrament is a sign of a sacred thing. Now the sinner who repents plainly expresses by his words and actions that he has turned his heart from sin, while from the words and actions of the priest we easily recognize the mercy of God exercised in the remission of sins. In any event, the words of our Savior furnish a clear proof. I will give to thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose upon earth shall be loosed also in heaven. The absolution announced in the words of the priest expresses the remission of sins which it accomplishes in the soul. This sacrament may be repeated. The faithful should be instructed not only that penance is to be numbered among the sacraments, but that it is one of the sacraments which may be repeated. To Peter, who had asked whether pardon could be given to sin seven times, our Lord replied, I say not to thee till seven times, but till seventy times seven. 
If then the pastor happens to encounter those who seem to distrust the infinite goodness and clemency of God, let him endeavor to inspire their minds with confidence and raise them up to the hope of obtaining the grace of God. He will easily accomplish this object by explaining the above and other passages which are frequently met with in Holy Writ, as well as by using the arguments and reasons which may be found in St. Chrysostom's book on the lapsed and St. Ambrose's books on penance. Let us continue on the sacrament of penance on side B of this tape. We continue now with the Catechism of the Council of Trent and the Sacrament of Penance. The Constituent Parts of Penance, the Matter. There's nothing that should be better known to the faithful than the matter of this sacrament. Hence they should be taught that penance differs from the other sacraments in this, that while the matter of the other sacraments is something, whether natural or artificial, the matter, as it were, of the sacrament of penance is the acts of the penitent, namely contrition, confession, and satisfaction, as has been declared by the Council of Trent. Now, inasmuch as these acts are by divine institution required on the part of the penitent for the integrity of the sacrament and for the full and perfect remission of sin, they are called parts of penance. It is not because they are not the real matter that they are called by the council the matter as it were, but because they are not of that sort of matter which is applied externally, such, for instance, as water in baptism and chrism in confirmation. As regards the opinion of some who hold that sins themselves are the matter of this sacrament, it will be found when carefully examined that it does not really differ from the explanation already given. Thus we say that wood which is consumed by fire is the matter of fire. In the same way, sins which are destroyed by penance may properly be called the matter of penance. The form of penance. Pastors should not neglect to explain the form of the sacrament of penance. A knowledge of it will excite the faithful to receive the grace of this sacrament with the greatest possible devotion. Now the form is, I absolve thee, as may be inferred not only from the words, Whatsoever you shall bind upon earth shall be bound also in heaven, but also from the teachings of Christ our Lord handed down to us by the apostles. Moreover, since the sacraments signify what they affect, the words, I absolve thee, signify that remission of sin is affected by the administration of this sacrament. And hence it is plain that such is the perfect form of the sacrament. For sins are, so to say, the chains by which the soul is bound and from which it is freed by the sacrament of penance. And nonetheless truly does the priest pronounce the form over the penitent who through perfect contrition, accompanied by the desire of confession, has already obtained remission of his sins from God. Several prayers are added, not that they are necessary to the form, but in order to remove every obstacle that can impede the force and efficacy of the sacrament 
owing to the fault of him to whom it is administered. How thankful, then, should not sinners be to God for having bestowed such ample power on the priest of his church. Unlike the priest of the old law, who merely declared the leper cleansed from his leprosy, the power now given to the priest of the new law is not limited to declaring the sinner absolved from his sins, but as a minister of God he truly absolves from sin. This is an effect of which God himself, the author and source of grace and justice, is the principal cause. The rites observed in the sacrament of penance. The faithful should take great care to observe the rites which accompany the administration of this sacrament. In this way they will have a higher idea of what they obtain from this sacrament, that is, that they have been reconciled as slaves to their kind master, or rather as children to their best of fathers. And at the same time they will also better understand what is the duty of those who desire, as everyone should, to show their gratitude and remembrance of so great a benefit. The sinner, then, who repents, casts himself humbly and sorrowfully at the feet of the priest, in order that by their humbling himself he may the more easily be led to see that he must tear up the roots of pride, whence spring and flourish all the sins he now deplores. In the priest, who is his legitimate judge, he venerates the person and the power of Christ our Lord. For in the administration of the sacrament of penance, as in that of the other sacraments, the priest holds the place of Christ. Next, the penitent enumerates his sins, acknowledging at the same time that he deserves the greatest and severest chastisements, and finally suppliantly ask pardon for his faults. All these rites have a sure guarantee for their antiquity in the authority of St. Dennis. Effects of the Sacrament of Penance Nothing will prove of greater advantage to the faithful, nothing will be found to conduce more to a willing reception of the Sacrament of Penance than for pastors to explain frequently the great advantage to be derived therefrom. They will then see that of penance it is truly said that its roots are bitter, but its fruit sweet indeed. First of all, then, the great efficacy of penance consists in this, that it restores us to the grace of God and unites us to Him in the closest friendship. In pious souls who approach this sacrament with devotion, profound peace and tranquility of conscience, together with ineffable joy of soul, sometimes accompany this reconciliation. For there is no sin, however great or horrible, which cannot be effaced by the sacrament of penance, and that not merely once, but over and over again. On this point God Himself thus speaks through the prophet, If the wicked do penance for all his sins which he hath committed, and keep all my commandments, and do judgment and justice, living he shall live and shall not die, and I will not remember all his iniquities that he hath done. And St. John says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And a little later he adds, If any man sin, he accepts no sin whatever. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the just, for he is the propitiation for our sins, 
and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. When we read in Scripture that certain persons did not obtain pardon from God, even though they earnestly implored it, we know that this was due to the fact that they had not a true and heartfelt sorrow for their sins. Thus, when we find in sacred Scripture and in the writings of the Fathers passages which seem to assert that certain sins are irremissible, we must understand the meaning to be that it is very difficult to obtain pardon from them. A disease is sometimes called incurable because the patient is so disposed as to loathe the medicines that could afford him relief. In the same way, certain sins are not remitted or pardoned because the sinner rejects the grace of God, the only medicine for salvation. It is in this sense that St. Augustine wrote, When a man, who through the grace of Jesus Christ has once arrived at a knowledge of God, wounds fraternal charity, and driven by the fury of envy, lifts up his head against grace. The enormity of his sin is so great that though compelled by a guilty conscience to acknowledge and confess his fault, he finds himself unable to submit to the humiliation of imploring pardon. The Necessity of the Sacrament of Penance Returning now to the sacrament, it is so much the special province of penance to remit sins that it is impossible to obtain or even to hope for remission of sins by any other means. For it is written, Unless you do penance, you shall all likewise perish. These words were said by our Lord in reference to grievous and mortal sins, although at the same time lighter sins, which are called venial, also require some sort of penance. St. Augustine observes that the kind of penance which is daily performed in the church for venial sins would be absolutely useless if venial sin could be remitted without penance. But as it is not enough to speak in general terms when treating of practical matters, the pastors should take care to explain one by one those things from which the faithful can understand the meaning of true and salutary penance. Now it is peculiar to this sacrament that besides matter and form, which it has in common with all the other sacraments, it has also, as we've said, those parts which constitute penance, so to say, whole and entire, namely contrition, confession, and satisfaction. On these, St. Chrysostom thus speaks, Penance enables the sinner to bear all willingly, in his heart is contrition, on his lips confession, in his actions entire humility or salutary satisfaction. These three parts belong to that class of parts which are necessary to constitute a whole. The human body is composed of many members, hands, feet, eyes, and the various other parts, the want of any one of which makes the body be justly considered imperfect, while if none of them is missing, the body is regarded as perfect. In the same way, penance is composed of these three parts in such a way that though contrition and confession, which justify man, are alone required to constitute its essence, yet, unless accompanied by its third part, satisfaction, it necessarily remains short of its absolute perfection. These three parts, then, are so intimately connected with one another 
that contrition includes the intention and resolution of confessing and making satisfaction. Contrition and the resolution of making satisfaction imply confession, while the other two precede satisfaction. The reason why these are the integral parts may be thus explained. Sins against God are committed by thought, by word, and by deed. It is then but reasonable that in recurring to the power of the keys we should endeavor to appease God's wrath and obtain pardon for our sins by means of the very same things which we employed to offend His sovereignty. A further reason by way of confirmation can also be assigned. Penance is a sort of compensation for sin, springing from the free will of the delinquent, and is appointed by God against whom the offense has been committed. Hence, on the other hand, there is required the willingness to make compensation, in which willingness contrition chiefly consists, while on the other hand the penitent must submit himself to the judgment of the priest, who holds God's place, in order to enable him to award a punishment proportioned to the gravity of the sin committed. Hence the reason for and the necessity of confession and satisfaction are easily inferred. The first part of penance, contrition. As the faithful require instruction on the nature and efficacy of the parts of penance, we must begin with contrition. This subject demands careful explanation, for as often as we call to mind our past transgressions or offend God anew, so often should our hearts be pierced with contrition. By the fathers of the Council of Trent, contrition is defined a sorrow and detestation for sin committed with the purpose of sinning no more. And a little further on, the Council, speaking of the motion of the will to contrition, adds, if joined with a confidence in the mercy of God and an earnest desire of performing whatever is necessary to the proper reception of the sacrament, it thus prepares us for the remission of sin. From this definition, therefore, the faithful will perceive that the efficacy of contrition does not simply consist in ceasing to sin or in resolving to begin or having actually begun a new life. It supposes, first of all, a hatred of one's ill-spent life and a desire of atoning for past transgressions. This is especially confirmed by those cries of the Holy Fathers which we so frequently meet with in Holy Scripture. I have labored in my groaning, says David. Every night I will wash my bed. And again, the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. I will recount to thee all my years, says another, in the bitterness of my soul. These and many like expressions were called forth by an intense hatred and a lively detestation of past transgressions. But although contrition is defined as sorrow, the faithful are not thence to conclude that this sorrow consists in sensible feeling, for contrition is an act of the will. And as St. Augustine observes, grief is not penance, but the accompaniment of penance. By sorrow the fathers understood a hatred and detestation of sin. In the first place, because the sacred scriptures frequently use the word in this sense, how long, says David, shall I take counsels in my soul, sorrow in my heart all the day? And secondly, because from contrition 
arises sorrow in the inferior part of the soul, which is called the seat of concupiscence. With propriety, therefore, is contrition defined as sorrow, because it produces sorrow. Hence, penitents, in order to express it, used to change their garments. Our Lord alludes to this custom when he says, Woe to thee, Chorazain, woe to thee, Bethsaida! For if in Tyre and Sidon had been wrought the miracles that have been wrought in you, they had long ago done penance in sackcloth and ashes. To signify the intensity of this sorrow, the name contrition has rightly been given to the detestation of sin of which we speak. The word means the breaking of an object into small parts by means of a stone or some harder substance. And here it is used metaphorically to signify that our hearts, hardened by pride, are beaten and broken by penance. Hence no other sorrow, not even that which is felt for the death of parents or children or for any other calamity, is called contrition. The word is exclusively employed to express the sorrow with which we are overwhelmed by the forfeiture of the grace of God and of our own innocence. Contrition, however, is often designated by other names. Sometimes it is called contrition of heart, because the word heart is frequently used in Scripture to express the will. As the movement of the body originates in the heart, so the will is the faculty which governs and controls the other powers of the soul. By the Holy Fathers it is called compunction of heart, and hence they preferred to entitle their works on contrition treatises on compunction of heart. For as ulcers are lanced with a knife in order to allow the escape of the poisonous matter accumulated within, so the heart, as it were, is pierced with the lance of contrition, to enable it to emit the deadly poison of sin. Hence, contrition is called by the prophet Joel a rending of the heart. Be converted to me, he says, with all your hearts in fasting, in weeping, in mourning, and rend your hearts. The Qualities of Sorrow for Sin that sorrow for sins committed should be so profound and supreme that no greater sorrow could be thought of will easily appear from the considerations that follow. Perfect contrition is an act of charity, emanating from what is called filial fear. Hence it is clear that the measure of contrition and of charity should be the same. Since, therefore, the charity which we cherish towards God is the most perfect love, it follows that contrition should be the keenest sorrow of the soul. God is to be loved above all things, and whatever separates us from God is therefore to be hated above all things. It is also worthy of note that to charity and contrition the language of Scripture assigns the same extent. Of charity it is said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart. Of contrition... The Lord says through the prophet, Be converted with your whole heart. Secondly, it is true that of all objects which deserve our love, God is the supreme good. And it is not less true that of all objects which deserve our execration, sin is the supreme evil. The same reason, then, which prompts us to confess that God is to be loved above all things, obliges us also of necessity 
to acknowledge that sin is to be hated above all things, that God is to be loved above all things so that we should be prepared to sacrifice our lives rather than to offend him, these words of the Lord clearly declare, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that will save his life shall lose it. Further, it should be noted that since, as St. Bernard says, there is no limit to or measure to charity, or to use his own words, as the measure of loving God is to love him without measure, there should be no limit to the hatred of sin. Besides, our contrition should be not only the greatest, but also the most intense, and so perfect that it excludes all apathy and indifference. For it is written in Deuteronomy, When thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him. Yet so, if thou seek him with all thy heart, and all the afflictions of thy soul, and in Jeremiah's, thou shalt seek me, and shalt find me, when thou shalt seek me with all thy heart, and I will be found by thee, saith the Lord. If, however, our contrition be not perfect, it may nevertheless be true and efficacious. For as things which fall under the senses frequently touch the heart more sensibly than things purely spiritual, it sometimes happens that persons feel more intense sorrow for the death of their children than for the grievousness of their sins. Our contrition may also be true and efficacious, although unaccompanied by tears. Penitential tears, however, are much to be desired and commended. On this subject, St. Augustine has well said, The spirit of Christian charity lives not within you if you lament the body from which the soul has departed, but lament not the soul from which God has departed. To the same effect are the words of the Redeemer, above cited, Woe to thee, Chorasain, woe to thee, Bethsaida, for if in Tyre and Sidon had been wrought the miracles that have been wrought in you, they had long since done penance in sackcloth and ashes. To establish this truth, it will suffice to recall the well-known example of the Ninevites, of David, of the woman who was a sinner, and of the prince of the apostles, all of whom obtained the pardon of their sins when they implored the mercy of God with abundant tears. The faithful should be earnestly exhorted and admonished to strive to extend their contrition to each mortal sin. For it is thus that Ezekias describes contrition, I will recount to thee all my years in the bitterness of my soul. To recount all our years is to examine our sins one by one in order to have sorrow for them from our hearts. In Ezekiel also we read, If the wicked do penance for all his sins, he shall live. In this sense, St. Augustine says, Let the sinner consider the quality of his sins as to time, place, variety, and person. In this manner, however, the faithful should not despair of the infinite goodness and mercy of God. For since God is most desirous of our salvation, He will not delay to pardon us. With a father's fondness, He embraces the sinner the moment he enters into himself, turns to the Lord, and having detested all his sins, resolves that later on, as far as he's able, he will call them singly to mind and detest them. The Almighty Himself, 
by the mouth of his prophet commands us to hope when he says, The wickedness of the wicked shall not hurt him in what day soever he shall turn from his wickedness. Conditions Required for Contrition From what has been said, we may gather the chief requisites of true contrition. In these the faithful are to be accurately instructed, that each may know the means of attaining and may have a fixed standard by which to determine how far he may be removed from the perfection of this virtue. We must then, in the first place, detest and deplore all our sins. If our sorrow and detestation extend only to some sins, our repentance is not salutary, but feigned and false. Whosoever shall keep the whole law, says St. James, but offend in one point, is become guilty of all. In the next place, our contrition must be accompanied with a desire of confessing and satisfying for our sins. Concerning these dispositions we shall treat in a proper place. Thirdly, the penitent must form a fixed and firm purpose of amendment of life. This the prophet clearly teaches in the following words. If the wicked do penance for all his sins which he hath committed, and keep all my commandments, and do judgment and justice, living he shall live and shall not die. I will not remember all his iniquities which he hath done. And a little while after, when the wicked turneth himself away from his wickedness which he hath wrought, and doth judgment and justice, he shall save his soul alive. Still further on, he adds, Be converted, and do penance for all your iniquities, and iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions by which you have transgressed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. To the woman taken in adultery, Christ our Lord commanded the same thing, Go thy way and sin no more. And also to the lame man whom he cured at the pool of Bethsaida, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more. That a sorrow for sin and a firm purpose of avoiding sin for the future are two conditions indispensable to contrition nature and reason clearly show. He who would be reconciled to a friend whom he has wronged must regret to have injured and offended him, and his future conduct must be such as to avoid offending in anything against friendship. Furthermore, these are conditions to which man is bound to yield obedience, for the law to which man is subject, be it natural, divine, or human, he is bound to obey. If, therefore, by force or fraud the penitent has taken anything from his neighbor, he is bound to restitution. Likewise, if by word or deed he has injured his neighbor's honor or reputation, he is under an obligation of repairing the injury by procuring him some advantage or rendering him some service. Well known to all is the maxim of St. Augustine, the sin is not forgiven unless what has been taken away is restored. Again, not less necessary for contrition and the other chief conditions, is a care that can be accompanied by entire forgiveness of the injuries which we may have received from others. This our Lord and Savior admonishes when he declares, 
If you will forgive men their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you also your offenses. But if you will not forgive men, neither will your Father forgive you your offenses. These are the conditions which the faithful should observe as regards contrition. There are other dispositions which, although not essential to true and salutary penance, contribute to render contrition more perfect and complete in its kind, and which pastors will readily discover. The Effects of Contrition Simply to make known those things which pertain to salvation should not be deemed a full discharge of the duty of pastors. Their zeal and industry should be exerted to persuade the people to adopt these truths as their rule of conduct and as the governing principle of their actions. Hence it will be highly useful often to explain the power and the utility of contrition. For whereas most other pious practices, such as alms, fasting, prayer, and similar holy and commendable works, are sometimes rejected by God on account of the faults of those who perform them, contrition can never be other than pleasing and acceptable to him. A contrite and humble heart, O God, exclaims the prophet, Thou wilt not despise. Nay, more, the same prophet declares elsewhere that as soon as we have conceived this contrition in our hearts, our sins are forgiven by God. I said, I will confess my injustice to the Lord, and thou hast forgiven the wickedness of my sin. Of this truth we have a figure in the ten lepers, who, when sent by our Lord to the priests, were cured of their leprosy before they had reached them which gives us to understand that such is the efficacy of true contrition of which we have spoken above, that through it we may obtain from the Lord the immediate pardon of all sins. To move the faithful to contrition it will be very useful if pastors point out some method by which each one may excite himself to contrition. They should all be admonished frequently to examine their consciences, in order to ascertain if they have been faithful in the observance of those things which God and His Church require. Should anyone be conscious of sin, he should immediately accuse himself, humbly solicit pardon from God, and implore time to confess and satisfy for his sins. Above all, let him supplicate the aid of divine grace, in order that he may not relapse into those sins which he now penitently deplores. Pastors should also take care that the faithful be excited to a supreme hatred of sin, both because its turpitude and baseness are very great, and because it brings us the gravest losses and misfortunes. For sin deprives us of the friendship of God, to whom we are indebted for so many invaluable blessings, and from whom we might have expected and received gifts of still higher value. And along with this, it consigns us to eternal death and to torments unending and most severe. The second part of penance, confession. Having said so much on contrition, we now come to confession, which is another part of penance. The care and exactness which its exposition demands of pastors must be at once obvious, if we only reflect that most holy persons are firmly persuaded that whatever of piety, of holiness, of religion has been preserved to our times in the church through God's goodness must be ascribed in great measure 
to confession. It cannot therefore be a matter of surprise that the enemy of the human race, in his efforts to destroy utterly the Catholic Church, should, through the agency of the ministers of his wicked designs, have assailed with all his might this bulwark, as it were, of Christian virtue. It should be shown, therefore, in the first place, that the institution of confession is most useful and even necessary to us. Contrition, it is true, blots out sin, but who does not know that to effect this it must be so intense, so ardent, so vehement, as to bear a proportion to the magnitude of the crimes which it effaces? This is a degree of contrition which few reach, and hence in this way very few indeed could hope to obtain the pardon of their sins. It therefore become necessary that the most merciful Lord should provide by some easier means for the common salvation of men, and this he has done in his admirable wisdom by giving to his church the keys of the kingdom of heaven. According to the doctrine of the Catholic Church, a doctrine firmly to be believed and constantly professed by all, if the sinner have a sincere sorrow for his sins and a firm resolution of avoiding them in future, although he bring not with him that contrition which may be sufficient of itself to obtain pardon, all his sins are forgiven and remitted through the power of the keys when he confesses them properly to the priest. Justly then do those most holy men, our fathers, proclaim that by the keys of the church the gate of heaven is thrown open, a truth which no one can doubt, since the Council of Florence has decreed that the effect of penance is absolution from sin. To appreciate further the great advantages of confession, we may turn to a fact taught by experience. To those who have led immoral lives, nothing is found so useful towards a reformation of morals as sometimes to disclose their secret thoughts, all their words and actions, to a prudent and faithful friend who can assist them by his advice and cooperation. For the same reason, it must prove most salutary to those whose minds are agitated by the consciousness of guilt to make known the diseases and wounds of their souls to the priest, as the vice-region of Christ our Lord bound to eternal secrecy by the strictest of laws. In the sacrament of penance they will find immediate remedies, the healing qualities of which will not only remove the present malady, but will also have such a heavenly efficacy in preparing the soul against an easy relapse into the same kind of disease and infirmity. Another advantage of confession, which should not be overlooked, is that it contributes powerfully to the preservation of social order. Abolish sacramental confession, and that moment you del deluge society with all sorts of secret and heinous crimes, crimes too and others of still greater enormity which men, once that they have been depraved by vicious habits, will not dread to commit in open day. The salutary shame that attends confession restrains licentiousness, bridles desire, and checks wickedness. Having explained the advantages of confession, pastors should next unfold its nature and efficacy. Confession then is defined. 
a sacramental accusation of one's sins made to obtain pardon by virtue of the keys. It is rightly called an accusation because sins are not to be told as if the sinner boasted of his crimes, as they do who are glad when they've done evil, nor are they to be related as stories told for the sake of amusing idle listeners. They are to be confessed as matters of self-accusation, with the desire, as it were, to avenge them on ourselves. We confess our sins with a view to obtain pardon. In this respect, the tribunal of penance differs from other tribunals, which take cognizance of capital offenses, and before which a confession of guilt does not secure acquittal and pardon, but penalty and punishment. The definition of confession by the Holy Fathers, although different in words, is substantially the same. Confession, says St. Augustine, is the disclosure of a secret disease with the hope of obtaining pardon. And St. Gregory, confession is a detestation of sins. Both of these definitions accord with and are contained in the preceding definition. In the next place, it is a duty of greatest moment that pastors should unhesitatingly teach that this sacrament owes its institution to the singular goodness and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has ordered all things well and solely with a view to our salvation. After his resurrection, he breathed on the apostles assembled together, saying, Receive ye the Holy Ghost, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven, and whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. Now in giving to priests the power to retain and forgive sins, it is evident that our Lord made them also judges in this matter. Our Lord seems to have signified the same thing when having raised Lazarus from the dead, he commanded his apostles to loose him from the bands in which he was bound. This is the interpretation of St. Augustine. The priests, he says, can now do more. They can exercise greater clemency towards those who confess and whose sins they forgive. The Lord, in giving over Lazarus, whom he had already raised from the dead, to be loosed by the hands of his disciples, wished us to understand that to priest was given the power of loosing. To this also refers the command given by our Lord to the lepers cured on the way, that they show themselves to the priests and subject themselves to their judgment. Invested then as they are by our Lord with power to remit and retain sins, priests are evidently appointed judges of the matter on which they are to pronounce. And since, according to the wise remark of the Council of Trent, we cannot form an accurate judgment on any matter or award to crime a just proportion of punishment without having previously examined and made ourselves well acquainted with the case, it follows that the penitent is obliged to make known to the priests, through the medium of confession, each and every sin. This doctrine the pastors should teach as defined by the Holy Council of Trent and handed down by the uniform doctrine of the Catholic Church. An attentive perusal of the Fathers will present passages throughout their works proving in the clearest terms that this sacrament was instituted by our Lord 
and that the law of sacramental confession, which from the Greek they call exomologesis, is to be received as true gospel teaching. If we seek figures in the Old Testament, the different kinds of sacrifices which were offered by the priest for the expiation of different sorts of sins seem beyond all doubt to have reference to confession of sins. Not only are the faithful to be taught that confession was instituted by our Lord, they're also to be reminded that by authority of the church certain rites and solemn ceremonies have been added which, although not essential to the sacrament, serve to place its dignity more fully before the eyes of the penitent and to prepare his soul so that kindled with devotion he may more easily receive the grace of God. When, with uncovered head and bended knees, with eyes fixed on the earth and hands raised in supplication, and with other indications of Christian humility not essential to the sacrament, we confess our sins, our minds are thus deeply impressed with a clear conviction of the heavenly virtue of the sacrament, and also of the necessity of most earnestly beseeching and imploring the mercy of God. Let us continue with the Catechism of the Council of Trent and the Sacrament of Penance in the next tape. We continue now with the Catechism of the Council of Trent and the chapter on the Sacrament of Penance, the Law of Confession. Nor let it be supposed that although confession was instituted by our Lord, he did not declare its use to be necessary. The faithful must be impressed with the conviction that he who is dead in sin is to be recalled to spiritual life by means of sacramental confession. This truth is clearly conveyed by our Lord himself, when by a most beautiful metaphor he calls the power of administering this sacrament the key of the kingdom of heaven. Just as no one can enter any place without the help of him who has the keys, so no one is admitted to heaven unless its gates be unlocked by the priest to whose custody the Lord gave the keys. This power would otherwise be of no use in the church. If heaven can be entered without the power of the keys, in vain would they to whom the keys were given seek to prevent entrance within its portals. This thought was familiar to the mind of St. Augustine. Let no man, he says, say within himself, I repent in secret to the Lord. God, who has power to pardon me, knows the inmost sentiments of my heart. Was there then no reason for saying, Whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven? No reason why the keys were given to the church of God? The same doctrine is taught by St. Ambrose in his treatise on penance. When refuting the heresy of the Novitians, who asserted that the power of forgiving sins belonged solely to God. Who, says he, yields greater reverence to God, he who obeys or he who resists his commands? God commands us to obey his ministers, and by obeying them we honor God alone. As the law of confession was no doubt enacted and established by our Lord himself, 
It is our duty to ascertain on whom, at what age, and at what period of the year it becomes obligatory. According to the canon of the Council of Lateran, which begins, Omnis altruisque sexus, no person is bound by the law of confession until he has arrived at the use of reason, a time determinable by no fixed number of years. It may, however, be laid down as a general principle that children are bound to go to confession as soon as they are able to discern good from evil and are capable of malice. For when a person has arrived at an age when he must begin to attend to the work of his salvation, he is bound to confess his sins to a priest, since there is no other salvation for one whose conscience is burdened with sin. In the same canon, Holy Church has defined the period within which we are especially bound to discharge the duty of confession. It commands all the faithful to confess their sins at least once a year. If, however, we consult our eternal interests, we will certainly not neglect to have recourse to confession as often, at least, as we are in danger of death, or partake to perform any act incompatible with the state of sin, such as to administer or receive the sacraments. The same rule should be strictly followed when we are apprehensive of forgetting some sin into which we may have fallen, for we cannot confess sins unless we remember them. Neither do we obtain pardon unless our sins are blotted out through sacramental confession. But since in confession many things are, are to be observed, some of which are essential, some not essential to the sacrament, all these matters should be carefully treated. Access can easily be had to works and treatises from which an explanation of all these things can be drawn. Pastors should teach, first of all, that care must be exercised, that confession be complete and entire. All mortal sins must be revealed to the priest. Venial sins, which do not separate us from the grace of God, and into which we frequently fall, although they may be usefully confessed, as the experience of the pious proves, may be omitted without sin and expiated by a variety of other means. Mortal sins, as we've already said, are all to be confessed, even though they be most secret or be opposed only to the last two commandments of the Decalogue. Such secret sins often inflict deeper wounds on the soul than those which are committed openly and publicly. So the Council of Trent has defined, and such has been the constant teaching of the Church as the Fathers declare. St. Ambrose speaks thus, Without the confession of his sin, no man can be justified from his sin. In confirmation of the same doctrine, St. Jerome on Ecclesiastes says, If the serpent, the devil, has secretly and without the knowledge of a third person bitten anyone, and has infused into him the poison of sin, if unwilling to disclose his wound to his brother or master, he is silent and will do not penance, his master, who has a tongue ready to cure him, can render him no service. The same doctrine we find in St. Cyprian on his sermon on the fallen. Although guiltless, he says, of the heinous crime of sacrificing to idols, or of having purchased certificates to that effect, yet, 
as they entertain the thought of doing so, they should confess it with grief to the priests of God. In fine, such is the unanimous voice and teaching of all the doctors of the church. In confession we should employ all that care and exactness which we usually bestow upon worldly concerns of great moment, and all our efforts should be directed to the cure of our soul's wounds and to the destruction of the roots of sin. We should not be satisfied with the bare enumeration of our mortal sins, but should mention such circumstances as considerably aggravate or extenuate their malice. Some circumstances are so serious as of themselves to constitute mortal guilt. On no account whatever, therefore, are such circumstances to be omitted. Thus, if one man has killed another, he must state whether his victim was a layman or an ecclesiastic. Or if he has had sinful relations with a woman, he must state whether the female was married or unmarried, a relative or a person consecrated to God by vow. These circumstances change the nature of the sins, so that the first kind of unlawful intercourse is called by theologians simply fornication, the second adultery, the third incest, and the fourth sacrilege. Again, theft is numbered in the catalogue of sins. But if a person has stolen one golden coin, his sin is less grievous than if he had stolen a hundred or two hundred or an immense sum. And if the stolen money belonged to the church, the sin would be still more grievous. The same rule applies to the circumstances of time and place, but the examples are too well known from many books to require mention here. Circumstances such as these are therefore to be mentioned, but those which do not considerably aggravate the malice of the sin may be lawfully omitted. So important is it that confession be entire, that if the penitent confesses only some of his sins, and willfully neglects to accuse himself of others which should be confessed, he not only does not profit by his confession, but involves himself in new guilt. Such an enumeration of sins cannot be called sacramental confession. On the contrary, the penitent must repeat his confession, not omitting to accuse himself of having, under the semblance of confession, profaned the sanctity of the sacrament. But should the confession seem defective, either because the penitent forgot some grievous sins, or because, although intent on confessing all his sins, he did not examine the recesses of his conscience with sufficient accuracy, he is not bound to repeat his confession. It will be sufficient, when he recollects the sins which he had forgotten, to confess them to a priest on a future occasion. It should be noted, however, that we are not to examine our consciences with careless indifference, or to be so negligent in recalling our sins as to seem as if unwilling to remember them. Should this have been the case, the confession must by all means be made over again. In the second place, our confession should be plain, simple, and undisguised not artfully made, as is the case with some who seem more intent on defending themselves than on confessing their sins. Our confession should be such as to disclose to the priest a true image of our lives, such as we ourselves know them to be, 
exhibiting as doubtful that which is doubtful, and as certain that which is certain. If then we neglect to enumerate our sins, or introduce extraneous matter, our confession, it is clear, lacks this quality. Prudence and modesty in explaining matters of confession are also much to be commended, and a superfluity of words is to be carefully avoided. Whatever is necessary to make known the nature of every sin is to be explained briefly and modestly. Secrecy, as regards confession, should be strictly observed, as well by the penitent as by the priest. Hence, no one can, on any account, confess by messenger or letter, because in those cases secrecy would not be possible. The faithful should be careful above all to cleanse their consciences from sin by frequent confession. When a person is in mortal sin, nothing can be more salutary, so precarious as human life, than to have immediate recourse to confession. But even if we could promise ourselves a long life, yet it would be truly disgraceful that we who are so particular in whatever relates to cleanliness of dress or person were not at least equally careful in preserving the luster of the soul unsullied from the foul stains of sin. The Minister of the Sacrament of Penance We now come to treat of the minister of this sacrament, that the minister of the sacrament of penance must be a priest possessing ordinary or delegated jurisdiction from the laws of the church sufficiently declare. Whoever discharges this sacred function must be invested not only with the power of orders, but also with that of jurisdiction. Of this ministry we have an illustrious proof in these words of our Lord, recorded by St. John, Whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them, and whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. Words addressed not to all, but to the apostles only, to whom in this function of the ministry priests succeed. This is also most fitting, for as all the grace imparted by this sacrament is communicated from Christ the head to his members, they who alone have power to consecrate his true body should alone have power to administer this sacrament to his mystical body, the faithful particularly, as these are qualified and disposed by means of the sacrament of penance to receive the Holy Eucharist. The scrupulous care which in the primitive ages of the church guarded the right of the ordinary priest is easily seen from the ancient decrees of the fathers, which provided that no bishop or priest, except in case of great necessity, presumed to exercise any function in the parish of another without the authority of him who governed there. This law derives its sanction from the apostle when he commanded Titus to ordain priests in every city, to administer to the faithful the heavenly food of doctrine and of the sacraments. In order that none may perish if there is imminent danger of death, and recourse cannot be had to the proper priest, the Council of Trent teaches that according to the ancient practice of the Church of God, it is then lawful for any priest not only to remit all kinds of sin, whatever faculties they might otherwise require, but also to absolve from excommunication. 
besides the powers of orders and of jurisdiction, which are of absolute necessity, the minister of this sacrament, holding as he does the place at once of judge and physician, should be gifted not only with knowledge and erudition, but also with prudence. As judge is knowledge, it is evident, should be more than ordinary, for by it he is to examine into the nature of sins, and among the various kinds of sins, to judge which are grievous and which are not, keeping in view the rank and condition of the person. As physician, he has also occasion for consummate prudence, for to him it belongs to administer to the diseased soul those healing medicines which will not only affect the cure, but prove suitable preservatives against its future contagion. The faithful, therefore, will see the great care that each one should take in selecting as confessor a priest who is recommended by integrity of life, by learning and prudence, who is deeply impressed with the awful weight and responsibility of the station which he holds, who understands well the punishment due to every sin, and can also discern who are to be loosed and who are to be bound. Since each one is most anxious that his sins and defilements should be buried in oblivion, the faithful are to be admonished that there is no reason whatever to apprehend that what is made known in confession will ever be revealed by the priest to anyone, or that by it the penitent can at any time be brought into danger of any sort. The laws of the church threaten the severest penalties against any priest who would fail to observe a perpetual and religious silence concerning all the sins confessed to them. Let the priest, says the great council of Lateran, take special care neither by word or sign, nor by any other means whatever, to betray in the least degree the sinner. The duties of the confessor towards various classes of penitents. Having treated of the minister of this sacrament, the order of our matter requires that we next proceed to explain some general heads which are of considerable importance with regard to the use and practice of confession. Many of the faithful, to whom as a rule no time seems to pass so slowly as that which is appointed by the laws of the church for the duty of confession, are so removed from Christian perfection that far from bestowing attention on those other matters which are obviously most efficacious in conciliating the favor and friendship of God, they do not even try to remember the sins that are to be confessed to the priest. Since, therefore, nothing is to be omitted which can assist the faithful in the important work of salvation, the priest should be careful to observe if the penitent be truly contrite for his sins, and deliberately and firmly resolved to avoid sin for the future. If the sinner be found to be thus disposed, he is to be admonished and earnestly exhorted to pour out his heart in gratitude to God for so great and so singular a blessing, and to supplicate unceasingly the aid of divine grace, shielded by which he may securely combat his evil propensities. He should also be taught not to suffer a day to pass without devoting a portion of it to meditation on some mystery of the passion of our Lord, and to exciting and inflaming himself 
to the imitation and most ardent love of his Redeemer. The fruit of such meditation will be to fortify him more and more every day against all the assaults of the devil. For what other reason is there why our courage sinks and our strength fails the moment the enemy makes even the slightest attack on us, but that we neglect by pious meditation to kindle within us the fire of divine love, which animates and invigorates the soul. The indisposed should be helped. But should the priest perceive that the penitent is not truly contrite, he will endeavor to inspire him with an anxious desire for contrition, inflamed by which he may resolve to ask and implore this heavenly gift from the mercy of God. The pride of some who seek by vain excuses to justify or extenuate their offenses is carefully to be repressed. If, for instance, a penitent confesses that he was wrought up to anger and immediately transfers the blame of the excitement to another, who he complains was the aggressor, he is to be reminded that such apologies are indications of a proud spirit and of a man who either thinks lightly of or is unacquainted with the enormity of his sin, while they serve rather to aggravate than to extenuate his guilt. He who thus labors to justify his conduct seems to say that then only will he exercise patience when no one injures him, a disposition than which nothing can be more unworthy of a Christian. Instead of lamenting the state of him who inflicted the injury, he disregards the grievousness of the sin and is angry with his brother. Having had an opportunity of honoring God by his exemplary patience and of correcting a brother by his meekness, he turns the very means of salvation to his own destruction. Still more pernicious is the fault of those who, yielding to a foolish bashfulness, cannot induce themselves to confess their sins. Such persons are to be encouraged by exhortation and are to be reminded that there is no reason whatever why they should fear to disclose their sins, that to no one can it appear surprising if persons fall into sin, the common malady of the human race, and the natural consequence of human infirmity. There are others who either because they seldom confess their sins or because they have bestowed no care or attention on the examination of their consciences do not know well how to begin or end their confession. Such persons deserve to be severely rebuked and are to be taught that before anyone approaches the tribunal of penance he should employ every diligence to excite himself to contrition for his sins and that this he cannot do without endeavoring to know and recollect them severally. Should the confessor meet persons of this class entirely unprepared, he should dismiss them without harshness, exhorting them in the kindest terms to take some time to reflect on their sins and then return. But should they declare that they have already done everything in their power to prepare, and there is reason to apprehend that if sent away they may not return, their confession is to be heard, particularly if they manifest some disposition to amend their lives and can be induced to accuse their own negligence and promise to atone for it at another time by a diligent and accurate scrutiny of conscience. 
In such cases, however, the confessor should proceed with caution. If after having heard the confession he is of the opinion that the penitent did not entirely lack diligence in examining his conscience or sorrow in detesting his sins, he may absolve him. But if he has found him deficit, deficient in both, he should, as we've already said, admonish him to use greater care in his examination of conscience and dismiss him as kindly as he can. But as it sometimes happens that females who may have forgotten some sin in a former confession cannot bring themselves to return to the confessor, dreading to expose themselves before the people to the suspicion of having been guilty of something grievous or of looking for the praise of extraordinary piety, the pastor should frequently remind the faithful, both publicly and privately, that no one is gifted with so tenacious a memory as to be able to recollect all his thoughts, words, and actions. That the faithful, therefore, should they call to mind some sin which they had previously forgotten, should not be deterred from returning to the priest. These and many other matters of the same nature demand the attention of priests in confession. The third part of penance, satisfaction. Let us now come to the third part of penance, which is called satisfaction. We shall begin by explaining its nature and efficacy, because the enemies of the Catholic Church have on these subjects taken ample occasion to sow discord and division to the serious detriment of Christians. Satisfaction is the full payment of a debt, for that is sufficient or satisfactory to which nothing is wanting. Hence, when we speak of reconciliation to favor, to satisfy means to do what is sufficient to atone to the angered mind for an injury offered. And in this sense, satisfaction is nothing more than compensation for an injury done to another. But to come to the subject that now engages us, theologians make use of the word satisfaction to signify the compensation man makes by offering to God some reparation for the sins he has committed. This sort of satisfaction, since it has several degrees, can be understood in various senses. The first and highest degree of satisfaction is that by which whatever we owe to God on account of our sins is paid abundantly, even though he should deal with us according to the strictest rigor of his justice. This degree of satisfaction appeases God and renders him propitious to us. And it is a satisfaction for which we are indebted to Christ our Lord alone, who paid the price of our sins on the cross and offered to God a superabundant satisfaction. No created being could have been of such worth as to deliver us from so heavy a debt. He is the propitiation for our sins, says St. John, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. This satisfaction, therefore, is full and superabundant, perfectly adequate to the debt of all sins committed in this world. It gives to man's actions great worth before God, and without it they would be deserving of no esteem whatever. This David seems to have had in view when having asked himself, What shall I render to the Lord for all the things that he hath rendered to me? 
and finding nothing besides this satisfaction, which he expressed by the word chalice, a worthy return for so many and such great favors. He replied, I will take the chalice of salvation, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. There is another kind of satisfaction which is called canonical, and is therefore performed within a certain fixed period of time. Hence, according to the most ancient practice of the church, when penitents are absolved from their sins, some penance is imposed, the performance of which is commonly called satisfaction. By the same name is called any sort of punishment endured for sin, although not imposed by the priest, but spontaneously undertaken and performed by ourselves. This, however, does not belong to penance as a sacrament. Only that satisfaction constitutes part of the sacrament, which, as we've already said, is offered to God for sins at the command of the priest. Furthermore, it must be accompanied by a deliberate and firm purpose, carefully to avoid sin for the future. For to satisfy, as some define it, is to pay due honor to God, and this it is evident no person can do who is not entirely resolved to avoid sin. Again, to satisfy is to cut off all occasions of sin and to close every avenue against its suggestions. In accordance with this idea of satisfaction, some have defined it as a cleansing, which effaces whatever defilement may remain in the soul from the stains of sin, and which exempts us from the temporal chastisements due to sin. Such being the nature of satisfaction, it will not be difficult to convince the faithful of the necessity imposed on the penitent of performing works of satisfaction. They are to be taught that sin carries in it its train two evils, the stain and the punishment. Whenever the stain is effaced, the punishment of eternal death is forgiven with the guilt to which it was due. Yet, as the Council of Trent declares, the remains of sin and the temporal punishment are not always remitted. Of this, the Scriptures afford many conspicuous examples, such as are found in the third chapter of Genesis, in the twelfth and twenty-second of Numbers, and in many other places. That of David, however, is the best known and the most striking. Although the prophet Nathan had announced to him, The Lord also hath taken away thy sin, thou shalt not die, yet David voluntarily subjected himself to the most severe penance, imploring night and day the mercy of God in these words, Wash me yet more from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my iniquity, and my sin is always before me. Thus did he beseech the Lord to pardon not only the crime, but also the punishment due to it, and to restore him, cleansed from the remains of sin, to his former state of purity and integrity. This he besought with most earnest supplications, and yet the Lord punished his transgression with the loss of his adulterous offspring, the rebellion and the death of his beloved son Absalom, and with the other chastisements and calamities with which he had previously threatened him. In Exodus 2 we read that though the Lord yielded to the prayers of Moses and spared the idolatrous Israelites, 
Yet he threatened the enormity of their crime with heavy chastisement. And Moses himself declared that the Lord would take severest vengeance on it even to the third and fourth generations. That such was at all times the doctrine of the Holy Fathers in the Catholic Church, their own testimony most clearly proves. Advantages of Satisfaction Why in the sacrament of penance, as in that of baptism, the punishment due to sin is not entirely remitted, is admirably explained in these words of the Council of Trent. Divine justice seems to require that they who through ignorance sin before baptism should recover the friendship of God in a different manner from those who after they have been freed from the thraldom of sin and the devil and have received the gifts of the Holy Ghost, dread not knowingly to violate the temple of God and grieve the Holy Spirit. It is also in keeping with the divine mercy not to remit our sins without any satisfaction, lest taking occasion hence and imagining our sins less grievous than they are, we should become injurious, as it were, and contalious to the Holy Ghost, and should fall into greater enormities, treasuring up to ourselves wrath against the day of wrath. These satisfactory penances have no doubt great influence in recalling from, and as it were, bridling against sin, and in rendering the sinner more vigilant and cautious for the future. Furthermore, these satisfactions serve as testimonies of our sorrow for sin committed, and thus atone to the church which is grievously insulted by our crimes. God, says St. Augustine, despises not a contrite and humble heart, but as heartfelt grief is generally concealed from others, and is not manifested by words or other signs, wisely, therefore, are penitential times appointed by those who preside over the church in order to atone to the church in which sins are forgiven. Besides, the example presented by our penitential practices serves as a lesson to others how to regulate their lives and practice piety. Seeing the punishments inflicted on sin, they must feel the necessity of using the greatest circumspection through life and of correcting their former habits. The Church, therefore, with great wisdom, ordained that when anyone had committed a public crime, a public penance should be imposed on him, in order that others, being deterred by fear, might more carefully avoid sin in future. This has sometimes been observed even with regard to secret sins of more than usual gravity. But with regard to public sinners, as we've already said, they were never absolved until they had performed public penance. During the performance of this penance, the pastors poured out prayers to God for their salvation and ceased not to exhort the penitents to do the same. In this respect, great was the care and solicitude of St. Ambrose, of whom it is related that many who came to the tribunal of penance with hardened hearts were so softened by his tears as to conceive the sorrow of true contrition. But in process of time, the severity of ancient discipline was so relaxed and charity grew so cold that in our days many of the faithful think inward sorrow of soul and grief of heart unnecessary for obtaining pardon, imagining that a mere appearance of sorrow is sufficient. 
Again, by undergoing these penances, we are made like unto Jesus Christ our head, inasmuch as he himself suffered and was tempted. As St. Bernard observes, nothing can appear so unseemly as a delicate member under a head crowned with thorns. To use the words of the Apostle, we are joint heirs with Christ, yet so if we suffer with him. And again, if we be dead with him, we shall live also with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. St. Bernard also observes that sin produces... We continue now with the Catechism of the Council of Trent and the chapter on the sacraments, the sacrament of penance. One can satisfy for another. In this, the supreme mercy and goodness of God deserve our grateful acknowledgement and praise that he has granted to our frailty the privilege that one may satisfy for another. This, however, is a privilege which is confined to the satisfactory part of penance alone. As regards contrition and confession, no one is able to be contrite for another. But those who are in a state of grace may pay for others what is due to God, and thus we may be said in some measure to bear each other's burdens. This is a doctrine on which the faithful cannot for a moment ent entertain a doubt, since we profess in the Apostles' Creed our belief in the communion of saints. For since we are all reborn to Christ in the same cleansing waters of baptism and are partakers of the same sacraments, and above all are nourished with the same body and blood of Christ our Lord as our food and drink, we are all, it is manifest, members of the same body. As then the foot does not perform its function solely for itself, but also for the sake of the eyes, and as the eyes see not only for their own sake, but for the general good of all the members, so also works of satisfaction must be considered common to us all. This, however, is not true in reference to all the advantages to be derived from satisfaction. For works of satisfaction are also medicinal, and are so many remedies prescribed to the penitent to heal the depraved affections of the soul. It is clear that those who do not satisfy for themselves can have no share in this fruit of penance. These three parts of penance, contrition, confession, and satisfaction, should be fully and clearly explained. Duties of the Confessor as regards satisfaction. Above all, priests should be very careful not to give absolution to any penitent whose confession they've heard without obliging him to make full satisfaction for any injury to his neighbor's goods or character for which he seems responsible. No person is to be absolved until he has first faithfully promised to restore all that belongs to others. But as there are many who readily promise to comply with their duty in this respect, yet are deliberately determined never to fulfill their promises, these persons should be obliged to make restitution, and the words of the apostle are to be frequently pressed upon their minds. He that stole, let him now steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have something to give to him that suffereth need. 
In imposing penance, priests should do nothing arbitrarily, but should be guided solely by justice, prudence, and piety. In order to show that they follow this rule, and also to impress more deeply on the mind of the penitent the enormity of his sin, it will be useful sometimes to remind him of the severe punishment inflicted by the ancient penitential canons, as they are called, for certain sins. The nature of the sin, therefore, will regulate the extent of the satisfaction. No satisfaction can be more salutary than to require of the penitent to devote for a certain number of days some time to prayer, not omitting to pray to God in behalf of all mankind, and particularly for those who have departed this life in the Lord. Penitents should also be exhorted to undertake of their own accord the frequent performance of the penances imposed by the confessor, and thus so to conduct their lives that, having faithfully complied with everything which the sacrament of penance demands, that they may never cease earnestly to practice the virtue of penance. Should it be deemed proper sometimes to visit public crimes with public penance, and should the penitent express great reluctance to seek or escape from its performance, he should not be listened to too readily but should be persuaded to embrace with cheerfulness and readiness that which will be so salutary to himself and to others. These things concerning the sacrament of penance and its several parts should be taught in such a manner as to enable the faithful not only to understand them perfectly, but also, with the Lord's help, to resolve to put them in practice piously and religiously. The Sacrament of Extreme Unction Importance of Instruction on Extreme Unction In all thy works the Scriptures teach, Remember thy last end, and thou shalt never sin, words which convey to the pastor a silent admonition to omit no opportunity of exhorting the faithful to constant meditation on death. The Sacrament of Extreme Unction because inseparably associated with recollection of the day of death, should, it is obvious, form a subject of frequent instruction, not only because it is right to explain the mysteries of salvation, but also because death, the inevitable doom of all men, when recalled to the minds of the faithful, represses depraved passion. Thus shall they be less disturbed by the approach of death and will pour forth their gratitude in endless praises to God, who has not only opened to us the way to true life in the sacrament of baptism, but has also instituted that of extreme unction to afford us, when departing this mortal life, an easier way to heaven. Names of this sacrament In explaining what is more necessary on this subject, we shall follow almost the same order observed in the exposition of the other sacraments. Hence, we shall first show that this sacrament is called extreme unction, because among all the unctions prescribed by our Lord to His Church, this is the last to be administered. For this reason, it was also called by our predecessors in the faith the sacrament of the anointing of the sick, and also the sacrament of the dying, names which easily turn the minds of the faithful 
to the remembrance of that last hour. Extreme unction is, strictly speaking, a sacrament. It's first to be explained, and this, the words of St. James the Apostle, promulgating the law of this sacrament, clearly establish. Is any man, he says, sick amongst you? Let him bring in the priests of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick man, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he be in sins, they shall be forgiven him. When the apostle says that sins are forgiven, he ascribes to extreme unction the nature and efficacy of a sacrament. That such has been at all times the doctrine of the Catholic Church on extreme unction, many councils testify, and the Council of Trent denounces anathema against all who presume to teach or think otherwise. Innocent I also recommends this sacrament with great earnestness to the attention of the faithful. Extreme unction is but one sacrament. Pastors, therefore, should teach that extreme unction is a true sacrament, and that although administered with many anointings, each given with a peculiar prayer and under a peculiar form, it constitutes not many, but one sacrament. It is one, however, not in the sense that it is composed of inseparable parts, but because each of the parts contributes to its perfection, as is the case with every object composed of many parts. As a house, which consists of a great variety of parts, derives its perfection from unity of plan, so is this sacrament, although composed of many and different things and words, but one sign, and it affects only that one thing of which it is the sign. The essential parts of extreme unction. Pastors should also teach what are the component parts of this sacrament, its matter and form. These St. James does not omit, and each is replete with its own peculiar mysteries. The matter of extreme unction. Its element, then, or matter, is defined by councils, particularly by the Council of Trent, consists of oil consecrated by the bishop. Not any kind of oil extracted from fatty or greasy substances, but olive oil alone can be the matter of this sacrament. Thus its matter is most significant of what is inwardly affected in the soul by the sacrament. Oil is very efficacious in soothing bodily pain, and the power of this sacrament lessens the pain and the anguish of the soul. Oil also restores health, brings joy, feeds light, and is very efficacious in refreshing bodily fatigue. All these effects signify what the divine power accomplishes in the sick man through the administration of this sacrament. So much will suffice in explanation of the matter. The form of extreme unction. The form of the sacrament is the word and solemn prayer which the priest uses at each anointing. By this holy unction may God pardon thee whatever sins thou hast committed by the evil use of sight, smell, or touch. That this is the true form of this sacrament we learn from these words of St. James. Let them pray over him, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick man. 
Hence we can see that the form is to be applied by way of prayer. The apostle does not say of what particular words that prayer is to consist, but this form has been handed down to us by the faithful tradition of the fathers, so that all the churches retain the form observed by the church of Rome, the mother and mistress of all churches. Some, it is true, alter a few words, as when for God pardon thee they say, God remit or God spare, and sometimes may God remedy all the evil thou hast committed. But as there is no change of meaning, it is clear that all religiously observe the same form. It should not excite surprise that while the form of each of the other sacraments either absolutely signifies what it expresses, such as I baptize thee or I sign thee with the sign of the cross, or is pronounced, as it were, by way of command, as in administering holy orders, receive power, the form of extreme unction alone is expressed by way of prayer. Wisely has it been so appointed. For since this sacrament is administered not only for the spiritual grace which it bestows, but also for the recovery of health, which, however, is not always obtained, we therefore use a deprecative form in order to implore God's mercy what the virtue of the sacrament does not always and uniformly affect. In the administration of this sacrament, special rites are also used, consisting principally of prayers offered by the priest for the recovery of the sick person. There is no sacrament, the administration of which is accompanied with more numerous prayers, and with good reason. For at that moment more than ever the faithful require the assistance of pious prayers. All who may be present, and especially the pastor, should pour out their fervent aspirations to God and earnestly commend to His mercy the life and salvation of the sufferer. Institution of Extreme Unction Having thus proved that extreme unction is truly and properly to be numbered among the sacraments, we rightly infer that it owes its institution to Christ our Lord. It was subsequently made known and promulgated to the faithful by the Apostle St. James. Our Savior himself, however, seems to have given some indication of it when he sent his disciples two and two before him, for the evangelist informs us that going forth they preached that all should do penance, and they cast out many devils, and anointed with oil many who were sick, and healed them. This anointing cannot be supposed to have been invented by the apostles, but was commanded by our Lord. Nor did its power arise from any natural virtue. Its efficacy, we must believe, was mystical, having been instituted to heal the maladies of the soul rather than to cure the diseases of the body. This is the doctrine taught by St. Dennis, St. Ambrose, St. Chrysostom, and St. Gregory the Great, so that it cannot be at all doubted that extreme, extreme unction is to be recognized and venerated as one of the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. The subject of extreme unction. But although instituted for the use of all, extreme unction is not to be administered indiscriminately to all. In the first place, 
it is not to be administered to persons in sound health. According to these words of St. James, is anyone sick amongst you? This is also proved by the fact that extreme unction was instituted as a remedy not only for the diseases of the soul, but also for those of the body. Now only the sick need a remedy, and therefore this sacrament is to be administered to those only whose malady is such as to excite apprehensions of approaching death. It is, however, a very grievous sin to defer the holy unction until, all hope of recovery being lost, life begins to ebb, and the sick person is fast verging into a state of insensibility. It is obvious that if the sacrament is administered, while consciousness and reason are yet unimpaired, and the mind is capable of eliciting acts of faith and of directing the will to sentiments of piety, a more abundant participation of its graces must be received. Though this heavenly medicine is in itself always salutary, pastors should be careful to apply it when its efficacy can be aided by the piety and the devotion of the sick person. Extreme unction, then, can be administered to no one who is not dangerously sick, not even to those who are in danger of death, as when they undertake a perilous voyage, or enter into battle with the sure prospect of death, or have been condemned to death, and are on the way to execution. Furthermore, all those who have not the use of reason are not fit subjects for this sacrament. And likewise, children who have committed no sins do not need the sacrament as a remedy against the remains of sin. The same is true of idiots and insane persons, unless they give indications in their lucid intervals of a disposition to piety and express a desire to be anointed. To persons who from their birth never enjoyed the use of reason, this sacrament is not to be administered. But if a sick person, while in the possession of his faculties, expresses a wish to receive extreme unction, and afterwards becomes delirious, he is to be anointed. Administration of Extreme Unction The sacred unction is to be applied not to the entire body, but to the organs of sense only, to the eyes on account of sight, to the ears on account of hearing, to the nostrils on account of smell, to the mouth on account of taste and speech, to the hands on account of touch. The sense of touch, it is true, is diffused throughout the entire body, yet it is more developed in the hands. This manner of administering extreme unction is observed throughout the universal church and is in keeping with the medicinal nature of the sacrament. As in corporal disease, although the malady affects the entire body, yet the cure is applied to that part only which is the seat and origin of the disease. So likewise, this sacrament is applied not to the entire body, but to those members in which the power of sensation is most conspicuous, and also to the loins, which are, as it were, the seat of concupiscence, and to the feet by which we move from one place to another. Here it is to be observed that during the same illness, and while the danger of dying continues the same, the sick person is to be anointed but once. Should he, however, recover after he's been anointed, 
he may receive the aid of this sacrament as often as he shall have relapsed into the same danger of death. This sacrament, therefore, is evidently to be numbered among those which may be repeated. Dispositions for the Reception of Extreme Unction As all care should be taken that nothing impede the grace of the sacrament, and as nothing is more opposed to it than the consciousness of mortal guilt, the constant practice of the Catholic Church must be observed of administering the sacrament of penance and the Eucharist before extreme unction. And next, let parish priests strive to persuade the sick person to receive this sacrament from the priest with the same faith with which those of old were, were to be healed by the apostles used to present themselves. But the salvation of his soul is to be the first object of the sick man's wishes, and after that, the health of the body, with this qualification, if it be for the good of his soul. Nor should the faithful doubt that those holy and solemn prayers which are used by the priest, not in his own person, but in that of the church and of our Lord Jesus Christ, are heard by God, and they are most particularly to be exhorted on this one point, to take care that the sacrament of this most salutary oil be administered to them holily and religiously, when the sharper conflict seems at hand, and the energies of the mind as well as of the body appear to be failing. The Minister of Extreme Unction Who the minister of extreme unction is, we learn from the same apostle that promulgated the law of the Lord. For he says, let him bring in the priests, by which name, as the Council of Trent has well explained, he does not mean persons advanced in years or of chief authority among the people, but priests who have been duly ordained by bishops with the imposition of hands. To the priest, therefore, has been committed the administration of this sacrament. Not, however, to every priest, as Holy Church has decreed, but to the proper pastor who has jurisdiction, or to another authorized by him to discharge his office. In this, however, as also in the administration of the other sacraments, it is to be most distinctly remembered that the priest is the representative of Christ our Lord and of his spouse, Holy Church. The Effects of Extreme Unction the advantages we receive from this sacrament are also to be accurately explained, so that if nothing else can allure the faithful to its reception, they may be induced at least by its utility, for we are naturally disposed to measure almost all things by our interests. Pastors, therefore, should teach that by this sacrament is imparted grace that remits sins, and especially lighter, or as they are commonly called, venial sins, for mortal sins are removed by the sacrament of penance. Extreme unction was not instituted primarily for the remission of grave offenses. Only baptism and penance accomplish this directly. Another advantage of the sacred unction is that it liberates the soul from the languor and infirmity which it contracted from sins and from all the other remains of sin. The time most opportune for this cure is when we are afflicted with severe illness and danger to life impends, 
for it has been implanted in man by nature to dread no human visitation so much as death. This dread is greatly augmented by the recollection of our past sins, especially if our conscience accuses us of grave offenses, for it is written, They shall come with fear at the thought of their sins, and their iniquity shall stand against them to convict them. Another source of vehement anguish is the anxious thought that we must soon afterward stand before the judgment seat of God, who will pass on us a sentence of strictest justice according to our deserts. It often happens that struck with this terror, the faithful feel themselves deeply agitated, and nothing conduces more to a tranquil death than to banish sadness, await with a joyous mind the coming of our Lord, and be ready willingly to surrender the deposit entrusted whatever it shall be his will to demand it back. To free the minds of the faithful from this solicitude and fill the soul with pious and holy joy is then an effect of the sacrament of extreme unction. From it, moreover, we derive another advantage which may justly be deemed the greatest of all. For although the enemy of the human race never ceases while we live to meditate our ruin and destruction, yet at no time does he more violently use every effort utterly to destroy us, and if possible deprive us of all hope of the divine mercy, than when he sees the last day of life approach. Therefore arms and strength are supplied to the faithful in this sacrament to enable them to break the violence and impetuosity of the adversary and to fight bravely against him. For the soul of the sick is relieved and encouraged by the hope of the divine goodness, strengthened by which it bears more lightly all the burdens of sickness, and eludes with greater ease the artifice and cunning of the devil who lies in wait for it. Finally, the recovery of health, if indeed advantageous, is another effect of this sacrament. And if in our days the sick obtain this effect less frequently, this is to be attributed not to any defect of the sacrament, but rather to the weaker faith of a great part of those who are anointed with the sacred oil, or by whom it is administered. For the evangelist bears witness that the Lord wrought not many miracles among his own because of their unbelief. It may also be truly said that the Christian religion, since it has struck its roots more deeply in the minds of men, stands now less in need of the aids of such miracles than it did formerly at the commencement of the rising church. Nevertheless, faith should be strongly excited in this respect, and whatever it may please God in His wisdom to do with regard to the health of the body, the faithful ought to rely on a sure hope of attaining by virtue of this sacred oil, health of the soul, and of experiencing, should the hour of their departure from life be at hand, the fruit of that glorious assurance, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. We have thus explained briefly the sacrament of extreme unction, but if these points are developed by the pastor at greater length and with the care the subject demands, it is not to be doubted that the faithful will derive very great fruit of piety 
from his instruction. The Sacrament of Holy Orders Importance of Instruction on This Sacrament If one attentively considers the nature and the essence of the other sacraments, it will readily be seen that they all depend on the sacrament of orders to such an extent that without it some of them could not be constituted or administered at all, while others would be deprived of all their solemn ceremonies as well as of a certain part of the religious respect and exterior honor accorded to them. Wherefore, in continuing the exposition of the doctrine of the sacraments, it will be necessary for pastors to bear in mind that it is their duty to explain with even special care the sacrament of orders. This explanation will be highly advantageous, first of all to the pastor himself, then to all those who have entered on the ecclesiastical state, and finally to the people in general. To the pastor himself, because by treating of this subject he himself will be more deeply moved to stir up within him the grace he has received in this sacrament. To those who have been called to the portion of the Lord, partly by animating them with a like spirit of piety, and partly by affording them an opportunity of acquiring a knowledge of such things as will enable them all the more easily to advance to higher orders. To the rest of the faithful, first, because it enables them to understand the respect due to the church's ministers, and secondly, because, as it often happens, that many may be present who have destined their children, while yet young, for the church's service, or who desire to embrace that life themselves, it is far from right that such persons should be unacquainted with the principal truths regarding this particular state. The Dignity of This Sacrament In the first place, then, the faithful should be shown how great is the dignity and the excellence. We continue now with the Catechism of the Council of Trent and the chapter on the sacraments in particular, holy orders. Holy orders is a sacrament. That sacred ordination is to be numbered among the sacraments of the church, the Council of Trent has established by the same line of reasoning as we've already used several times. Since a sacrament is a sign of a sacred thing, and since the outward action in this consecration denotes the grace and power bestowed on him who is consecrated, it becomes clearly evident that order must be truly and properly regarded as a sacrament. Thus the bishop, handing to him who is being ordained a chalice of wine and water and a paten with bread, says, Receive the power of offering sacrifice, and so forth. In these words, pronounced along with the application of the matter, the Church has always taught that the power of consecrating the Eucharist is conferred, and that a character is impressed on the soul which brings with it grace necessary for the due and proper discharge of that office. As the Apostle declares thus, I admonish thee that thou stir up the grace of God which is in thee by the imposition of my hands, for God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love, and of sobriety. The number of orders. 
Now, to use the words of the Holy Council, the ministry of so sublime a priesthood being a thing all divine, it is but befitting its worthier and more reverent exercise that in the church's well-ordered disposition there should be several different orders of ministers destined to assist the priesthood by virtue of their office. Orders arranged in such a way that those who have already received clerical tonsure should be raised step by step from the lower to the higher orders. It should be taught, therefore, that these orders are seven in number, and that this has been the constant teaching of the Catholic Church. These orders are called porter, lector, exorcist, acolyte, subdeacon, deacon, and priest. That the number of ministers was wisely established thus may be proved by considering the various offices that are necessary for the celebration of the holy sacrifice of the Mass and the consecration and administration of the Blessed Eucharist, this being the principal scope of their institution. They are divided into major or sacred and minor orders. The major or sacred orders are priesthood, deaconship, subdeaconship, while the minor orders are those of acolyte, exorcist, lector, and porter, concerning each of which we shall now say a few words so that the pastor may be able to explain them to those especially whom he knows to be about to receive any of the orders in question. Tonsure. In the beginning should be explained first tonsure, and it should be shown that this is a sort of preparation for the reception of orders. As men are prepared for baptism by exorcisms, and by matrimony, by engagement, so to those who dedicate themselves to God by tonsure, the way is opened that leads to the sacrament of orders. For by the cutting off of hair is signified the character and disposition of him who desires to devote himself to the sacred ministry. Regarding the name cleric, which is then given him for the first time, it is derived from the fact that he thereby begins to take the Lord for his lot and inheritance, just as those who among the Jews were attached to the service of God were forbidden by the Lord to have any part of the ground that would be distributed in the land of promise. I, he said, am thy portion and inheritance. And although these words are true of all the faithful, yet it is certain that they apply in a special way to those who consecrate themselves to the service of God. The hair of the head is cut off in the form of a crown. It should be always worn thus, and should be enlarged according as one is advanced to higher orders. The Church teaches that this usage is derived from apostolic origin, as mention is made of it in the most ancient and authoritative fathers, such as St. Denis, St. Augustine, and St. Jerome. It is said that the Prince of the Apostles first introduced this usage in memory of the crown of thorns which was put upon our Savior's head, so that the devices resorted to by the impious for the ignominy and torture of Christ might be used by his apostles as a sign of honor and glory, as well as to signify that the ministers of the Church should strive to resemble Christ our Lord and represent him in all things. 
Some, however, assert that by tonsure is denoted the royal dignity, that is, the portion reserved especially for those who are called to the inheritance of the Lord. It will readily be seen that what the Apostle Peter says of all the faithful, you are a chosen generation, a kingly priesthood, a holy nation, applies especially and with much greater reason to the ministers of the church. Still, there are some who consider that by the circle, which is the most perfect of all figures, is signified the profession of a more perfect life undertaken by ecclesiastics, while in view of the fact that the hair of their heads, which is a kind of bodily superfluity, is cut off, others think that it denotes contempt for external things and detachment of soul from all human cares. The Minor Orders Porter After tonsure it is customary to advance to the first order, which is that of porter. The function of porter is to guard the keys and the doors of the church, and to allow no one to enter there to whom access has been forbidden. Formerly the porter used to assist at the holy sacrifice of the Mass, to see that no one approached too near the altar, or disturbed the priest during the celebration of the divine mysteries. Other duties were also assigned to him, as may be seen from the ceremonies used in his ordination. Thus the bishop, taking the keys from the altar, hands them to him who is being made porter, and says, Let your conduct be that of one who has to render to God an account of those things that are kept under these keys. How great was the dignity of this order in the ancient church may be inferred from a usage which exists in the church in these times. For the office of treasurer, which is still numbered among the more honorable functions of the church, was entrusted to porters, and carried with it also the guardianship of the sacristy. Reader. The second degree of orders is the office of reader, whose duty it is to read in the church in a clear and distinct voice the books of the Old and of the New Testament, and especially those which are read during the nocturnal psalmody. Formerly it was also his duty to teach the faithful the first rudiments of the Christian religion. Hence it is that when ordaining him, the bishop, in the presence of the people, handing him a book in which are set down all that regards this office, says, Take, and be you an announcer of the word of God. If you faithfully and profitably discharge your office, you shall have a part with those who from the beginning have well ministered the word of God. Exorcist The third order is that of exorcists, to whom it is given the power to invoke the name of the Lord over those who are possessed by unclean spirits. Hence the bishop, when ordaining them, presents to them a book in which the exorcisms are contained, and at the same time pronounces this form of words, Take, and commit to memory, and have the power of imposing hands over the possessed, whether baptized or catechumen. Acolyte. The fourth degree is that of acolytes, and it is the last of the orders that are called minor and not sacred. Their duty is to attend and serve the ministers who are in major orders, that is, the deacon and subdeacon, in the sacrifice of the altar. They also carry and attend to the lights during the celebration of the sacrifice of the Mass, 
and especially during the reading of the gospel, from which fact they are also called candle-bearers. Therefore, at the ordination of acolytes, the bishop observes the following rite. First of all, he carefully warns them of the nature of their office, then hands to each of them a light, saying, Receive this candlestick and candle, and remember that henceforth you are given the charge of lighting the candles of the church in the name of the Lord. Then he hands them empty cruets, in which are presented the wine and water for the sacrifice, saying, Receive these cruets to supply wine and water for the Eucharist of Christ's blood in the name of the Lord. A footnote. The four minor orders, as well as the three major orders, are all mentioned in a letter of Pope Cornelius to Fabius of Antioch, about the year 250. Individual minor orders are also mentioned by Tertullian, Cyprian, and the other early fathers. The Major Orders Subdeacon From the minor orders which are not sacred, and of which we have been speaking until now, one lawfully enters and ascends to major and sacred orders. Now the subdeaconate is the first degree of major orders. Its function, as the name itself indicates, is to serve the deacon at the altar. It is the subdeacon who should prepare the altar linen, the vessels, and the bread and wine necessary for the celebration of the holy sacrifice. He also it is who presents water to the bishop or priest when he washes his hands during the sacrifice of the Mass. It is also the subdeacon who now reads the epistle, which in former times was read at Mass by the deacon. He assists as witness at the holy sacrifice, and guards the celebrant from being disturbed by anyone during the sacred ceremonies. The various duties that pertain to the subdeacon are indicated by the solemn ceremonies used at his ordination. In the first place, the bishop warns him that the obligation of perpetual continence is attached to this order, and declares that no one is to be admitted among the subdeacons who is not ready and willing to accept the obligation in question. Then, after the solemn recitation of the litanies, the bishop enumerates and explains the duties and the functions of the subdeacon. Thereupon, each one of those who are being ordained receives the chalice and sacred patent from the bishop, and to show that he is to serve the deacon, the subdeacon receives from the archdeacon cruets filled with wine and water, together with a basin and towel with which to wash and dry the hands. At the same time, the bishop pronounces these words, See what sort of ministry is entrusted to you. I admonish you, therefore, to show yourself worthy to please God. Other prayers follow, and finally, when the bishop has clothed the subdeacon with the sacred vestments, for each of which there are special words and ceremonies, he gives him the book of the epistles, saying, Receive the book of the epistles with power to read them in the holy church of God, as well for the living as for the dead. A footnote, subdeacons are mentioned explicitly in the letter of Pope Cornelius referred to. It cannot be doubted, however, that the subdeaconate is older than the third century. Deacon 
The second degree of sacred orders is that of the deacons, whose function are more, much more extensive and have al- always been regarded as more holy. His duty is to be always at the side of the bishop, guard him while he preaches, serve him and the priest during the celebration of the divine mysteries, as well as during the administration of the sacraments, and to read the gospel in the sacrifice of the Mass. In former times he frequently warned the faithful to be attentive to the holy mysteries. He administered our Lord's blood in those churches in which the custom existed that the faithful should receive the Eucharist under both species, and to him was entrusted the distribution of the church's goods, as well as the duty of providing for all that was necessary to each one's sustenance. To the deacon also, as the eye of the bishop, it belongs to see who they are in the city that lead a good and holy life, and who not, who are present at the holy sacrifice and sermons at appointed times, and who not, so that he may be able to give an account of all to the bishop, and enable him to admonish and advise each one privately, or to rebuke and correct publicly, according as he may deem more profitable. He should also read out the list of the catechumens and present to the bishop those who are to be admitted to orders. Finally, in the absence of a bishop or priest, he can explain the gospel, but not from the pulpit, thus letting it be seen that this is not his proper office. The apostle shows the great care that should be taken that no one unworthy of the deaconate be promoted to this order when in his epistle to Timothy he sets forth a deacon's character, virtues, and integrity. The same point is also gathered from the rites and solemn ceremonies which the bishop employs when ordaining him. The bishop uses more numerous and more solemn prayers at the ordination of a deacon than at that of a subdeacon, and he also adds other kinds of sacred vestments. Moreover, he imposes hands on him, just as we read the apostles used to do when ordaining the first deacons. Finally, he hands him the book of the Gospels with these words, Receive the power to read the Gospel in the church of God, both for the living and the dead, in the name of the Lord. Priest. The third and highest degree of all sacred orders is the priesthood. The fathers of the first centuries usually designated those who had received this order by two names. At one time they called them presbyters, a Greek word signifying elders, not only because of the ripe years very necessary for this order, but much more on account of their gravity, knowledge, and prudence. For it is written, Venerable old age is not that of long time, nor counted by the number of years, but the understanding of a man is gray hairs, and an unspotted life is old age. At other times they called them priests, both because they are consecrated to God, and because to them it belongs to administer the sacraments and take charge of things sacred and divine. But a sacred scripture describes a twofold priesthood, one internal and the other external, it will be necessary to have a distinct idea of each to enable pastors to explain the nature of the priesthood now under discussion. The Internal Priesthood 
Regarding the internal priesthood, all the faithful are said to be priests once they have been washed in the saving waters of baptism. Especially is this name given to the just who have the Spirit of God, and who by the help of divine grace have been made living members of the great high priest, Jesus Christ. For enlightened by faith, which is inflamed by charity, they offer up spiritual sacrifices to God on the altar of their hearts. Among such sacrifices must be reckoned every good and virtuous action done for the glory of God. Hence we read in the Apocalypse, Christ hath washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us a kingdom and priest to God and his Father. In like manner was it said by the prince of the apostles, Be you also as living stones built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. While the apostle exhorts us to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing unto God, your reasonable service. And long before this, David had said, A sacrifice to God is an afflicted spirit, a contrite and humble heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. All this clearly regards the internal priesthood. The external priesthood, on the contrary, does not pertain to the faithful at large, but only to certain men who have been ordained and consecrated to God by the faithful imposition of hands and by the solemn ceremonies of holy church, and who are thereby devoted to a particular sacred ministry. This distinction of the priesthood can be seen even in the old law, that David spoke of the internal priesthood we have just shown. On the other hand, everyone knows the many and various precepts given by the Lord to Moses and Aaron regarding the external priesthood. Along with this, he appointed the whole tribe of Levi to the ministry of the temple, and he forbade by law that anyone belonging to another tribe should dare to intrude himself into that function. Hence it was that King Uzziah was afflicted with leprosy by the Lord for having usurped the sacerdotal ministry, and had to suffer grave chastisements for his arrogance and sacrilege. Now, as the same distinction of a twofold priesthood may be noted in the new law, the faithful should be cautioned that what we are now about to say concerns that external priesthood which is conferred on certain special individuals. This alone belongs to the sacrament of holy orders. The office of a priest, then, is to offer sacrifice to God and to administer the sacraments of the church. This is proved by the very ceremonies used at his ordination. When ordaining a priest, the bishop first of all imposes hands on him, as do all the other priests who are present. Then he puts a stole on his shoulders and arranges it over his breast in the form of a cross, declaring thereby that the priest is clothed with power from on high, enabling him to carry the cross of Christ our Lord and the sweet yoke of God's law and to inculcate this law not only by words, but also by example of a most holy and virtuous life. He next anoints his hands with holy oil, and then gives him the chalice with wine and the paten with the host, saying at the same time, Receive the power to offer sacrifice to God 
and to celebrate Masses, both for the living and for the dead. By these words and ceremonies, the priest is constituted an interpreter and mediator between God and man, which indeed must be regarded as the principal function of the priesthood. Lastly, placing his hands a second time on the head of the person ordained, the bishop says, Receive the Holy Ghost, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them, and whose sins you shall retain, they are retained, thus communicating to him that divine power of forgiving and retaining sin, which was given by our Lord to his disciples. Such then are the special and principal functions of the sacerdotal order. Degrees of the Priesthood Now, although the sacerdotal order is one alone, yet it has various degrees of dignity and power. The first degree is that of those who are simply called priests, and of whose functions we have hitherto been speaking. The second is that of bishops, who are placed over the various dioceses to govern not only other ministers of the church, but the faithful also, and to promote their salvation with supreme vigilance and care. Hence it is that in sacred scripture they are often called pastors of the sheep. Their office and duty has been well described by St. Paul in his sermon to the Ephesians, as we read in the Acts of the Apostles, while St. Peter, the prince of the Apostles, has also laid down a divine rule for the exercise of the Episcopal office. And if bishops strive to conform their actions according to this rule, there can be no doubt that they will be good pastors and we will be also esteemed as such, and bishops are often also called pontiffs. This name is derived from the pagans, who thus designated their chief priests. Now footnote, although the episcopate completes the priesthood and forms one order with it, bishops are by divine right superior to priests, both in the hierarchy of orders and in that of jurisdiction, inasmuch as they are the ordinary ministers of confirmation and ordination, and possess superior legislative, judiciary, and coercive powers. Now the third degree is that of archbishops, who preside over a number of bishops, and who are called metropolitans, because they are bishops of those cities which are regarded as the metropolis of their respective provinces. Hence they enjoy greater dignity and more extensive power than bishops, although their ordination is the same. In the fourth degree come patriarchs, that is to say, the first and highest of the fathers. Formerly, besides the Roman pontiff, there were in the universal church only four patriarchs, who, however, were not of equal dignity. Thus Constantinople, though it reached the patriarchal honor only after all the others, yet it obtained a higher rank by reason of being the capital of the empire. Next in rank came the Patriarch of Alexandria, which church had been founded by St. Mark the Evangelist by order of the Prince of the Apostles. The third was that of Antioch, where Peter fixed his first see. And finally, that of Jerusalem, a see first governed by James, the brother of our Lord. 
Above all these, the Catholic Church has always placed the supreme pontiff of Rome, whom Cyril of Alexandria, in the Council of Ephesus, named the chief bishop, father, and patriarch of the whole world. He sits in that chair of Peter, in which beyond every shadow of doubt the prince of the apostles sat to the end of his days, and hence it is that in him the church recognizes the highest degree of dignity and a universality of jurisdiction derived not from the decrees of men or councils, but from God himself. Wherefore he is the father and guide of all the faithful, of all the bishops, and of all the prelates, no matter how high their power and office. And as successor of St. Peter, as true and faithful vicar of Christ our Lord, he governs the universal church. From what has been said, therefore, pastors should teach what are the principal duties and functions of the various ecclesiastical orders and degrees, and also who is the minister of this sacrament. The Minister of Holy Orders Beyond all doubt, it is to the bishop that the administration of orders belongs, as is easily proved by the authority of Holy Scripture, by most certain tradition, by the testimony of all the fathers, by the decrees of the councils, and by the usage and practice of Holy Church. It is true that permission has been granted to some abbots occasionally to administer those orders that are minor and not sacred. Yet there is no doubt whatever that it is the proper office of the bishop and of the bishop alone to confer the orders called holy or major. To ordain subdeacons, deacons, and priests, one bishop suffices. But in accordance with an apostolic tradition that has been always observed in the church, bishops are consecrated by three bishops. The recipient of holy orders. We now come to indicate who are fit to receive this sacrament, and especially the priestly order, and what are the principal dispositions required of them. From what we shall lay down concerning the dispositions requisite for the priesthood, it will be easy to determine what ought to be observed in conferring the other orders, due account being taken of the office and dignity of each. Now the extreme caution that should be used in conferring this sacrament is gathered from the fact that while all the other sacraments impart grace to the recipient for his own use and sanctification, he, on the other hand, who receives holy orders, is made partaker of heavenly grace precisely that by his ministry he may promote the welfare of the church and therefore of all mankind. Hence, we readily understand why it is that ordinations take place only on special days, on which, moreover, in accordance with the very ancient practice of the Catholic Church, a solemn fast is appointed in order that by holy and fervent prayer the faithful may obtain from God ministers who will be well qualified to exercise properly and to the advantage of the Church the power of so great a ministry. Qualifications for the Priesthood Holiness of Life The chief and most necessary quality requisite in him who is to be ordained a priest is that he be recommended by integrity of life and morals. First, because by procuring or permitting his ordination while conscious of mortal sin, 
a man renders himself guilty of a new and enormous crime, and secondly, because the priest is bound to give to others the example of a holy and innocent life. In this connection, pastors should set forth the rules which the apostle laid down to Titus and Timothy, and he should also explain that those bodily defects, which by the Lord's command excluded from the service of the altar in the old law, should for the most part be understood of deformities of soul. We continue now with the Catechism of the Council of Trent on the sacraments and the sacrament of matrimony. The kind of consent required in matrimony. It is most necessary that the consent be expressed in words denoting present time. Marriage is not a mere donation but a mutual agreement, and therefore the consent of one of the parties is insufficient for marriage, while the mutual consent of both is essential. To declare this consent, words are obviously necessary. If the internal consent alone, without any external indication, were sufficient for marriage, it would then seem to follow as a necessary consequence that were two persons living in the most separate and distant countries to consent to marry, they would contract a true and indissoluble marriage, even before they had mutually signified to each other their consent by letter or messenger, a consequence as repugnant to reason as it is opposed to the decrees and established usage of Holy Church. Rightly was it said that the consent must be expressed in words which have reference to present time, for words which signify a future time, promise, but do not actually unite in marriage. Besides, it is evident that what is to be done has no present existence, and what has no present existence can have little or no firmness or stability. Hence a man who has only promised to marry a certain woman acquires by the promise no marriage rights, since his promise has not yet been fulfilled. Such promises are, it is true, obligatory, and their violation involves the offending party in a breach of faith. But he who has once entered into the matrimonial alliance, regretted as he afterwards may, cannot possibly change or invalidate or undo what has been done. As then the marriage contract is not a mere promise, but a transfer of right by which the man actually yields the dominion of his body to the woman, the woman the dominion of her body to the man, it must therefore be made in words which designate the present time, the force of which words abides with undiminished efficacy from the moment of their utterance and binds the husband and wife by a tie that cannot be broken. Instead of words, however, it may be sufficient for marriage to substitute a nod or other unequivocal sign of internal consent. Even silence, when the result of female modesty, may be sufficient, provided the parents answer for their daughter. Hence pastors should teach the faithful that the nature and force of marriage consist in the tie and obligation, and that without consummation the consent of the parties, expressed in the manner already explained, is sufficient to constitute a true marriage. 
It is certain that our first parents, before their fall, when according to the Holy Fathers no consummation took place, were really united in marriage. Hence the Fathers say that marriage consists not in its use, but in the consent. This doctrine is repeated by St. Ambrose in his book on virgins. When these matters have been explained, it should be taught that matrimony is to be considered from two points of view, either as a natural union, since it was not invented by man but instituted by nature, or as a sacrament, the efficacy of which transcends the order of nature. As grace perfects nature, and as that was not first which is spiritual but that which is natural, afterwards that which is spiritual, the order of our matter requires that we first treat of matrimony as a natural contract, imposing natural duties, and next consider what pertains to it as a sacrament. The faithful, therefore, are to be taught in the first place that marriage was instituted by God. We read in Genesis that God created them male and female and blessed them, saying, Increase and multiply. And also, It is not good for man to be alone. Let us make him a help like unto himself. And a little farther on, But for Adam there was not found a helper like himself. Then the Lord God cast a deep sleep upon Adam, and when he was fast asleep he took one of his ribs and filled up flesh for it. And the Lord God built a rib which he took from Adam into a woman and brought her to Adam. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Wherefore a man shall leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be two in one flesh. These words, according to the authority of our Lord himself, as we read in St. Matthew, prove the divine institution of matrimony. Not only did God institute marriage, he also, as the Council of Trent declares, rendered it perpetual and indissoluble. What God hath joined together, says our Lord, let no man separate. Although it belongs to marriage as a natural contract to be indissoluble, yet its indissolubility arises principally from its nature as a sacrament, as it is the sacramental character that in all its natural relations elevates marriage to the highest perfection. In any event, dissolubility is at once opposed to the proper education of children and to the other advantages of marriage. The words increase and multiply, which were uttered by the Lord, do not impose on every individual an obligation to marry, but only declare the purpose of the institution of marriage. Now that the human race is widely diffused, not only is there no law rendering marriage obligatory, but on the contrary, virginity is highly exalted and strongly recommended in Scripture as superior to marriage and as a state of greater perfection and holiness. For our Lord and Savior taught as follows, He that can take it, let him take it. And the Apostle says, Concerning virgins I have no commandment from the Lord, but I give counsel as having obtained mercy from the Lord to be faithful. 
We have now to explain why man and woman should be joined in marriage. First of all, nature itself, by an instinct implanted in both sexes, impels them to such companionship, and this is further encouraged by the hope of mutual assistance in bearing more easily the discomforts of life and the infirmities of old age. A second reason for marriage is the desire of family, not so much, however, with a view to leave after us heirs to inherit our property and fortune, as to bring up children in the true faith and in the service of God. That was the, such was the principal object of the holy patriarchs when they married is clear from Scripture. Hence the angel, when informing Tobias of the means of repelling the violent assaults of the evil demon, says, I will show thee who they are over whom the devil can prevail. For they who in such manner receive matrimony as to shut out God from themselves and from their mind, and to give themselves to their lust as the horse and mule which have not understanding, over them the devil hath power. He then adds, Thou shalt take the virgin with the fear of the Lord, moved rather for love of children than for lust, that in the seed of Abraham thou mayest obtain a blessing in children. It was also for this reason that God instituted marriage from the beginning, and therefore married persons who, to prevent conception or procure abortion, have recourse to medicine, are guilty of a most heinous crime, nothing less than wicked conspiracy to commit murder. A third reason has been added as a consequence of the fall of our first parents. On account of the loss of original innocence, the passions began to rise in rebellion against right reason, and man, conscious of his own frailty and unwilling to fight the battles of the flesh, is supplied by marriage with an antidote by which to avoid sins of lust. For fear of fornication, says the apostle, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. And a little after, having recommended to married persons a temporary abstinence from the marriage debt to give themselves to prayer, he adds, Return together again, lest Satan tempt you for your incontinency. These are ends, some one of which those who desire to contract marriage piously and religiously, as becomes the children of the saints, should propose to themselves. If to these we add other causes which induce to contract marriage, and in choosing a wife to prefer one person to another, such as the desire of leaving an heir, wealth, beauty, illustrious descent, congeniality of disposition, such motives, because not inconsistent with the holiness of marriage, are not to be condemned. We do not find that the sacred scriptures condemn the patriarch Jacob for having chosen Rachel for her beauty in preference to Leah. So much should be explained regarding matrimony as a natural contract. Marriage considered as a sacrament. It will now be necessary to explain that matrimony is far superior in its sacramental aspect and aims at any incomparably higher end. For as marriage, as a natural union, was instituted from the beginning to propagate the human race, so was the sacramental dignity subsequently conferred upon it in order that a people might be begotten and brought up for the service and worship of the true God 
and of Christ our Savior. Thus, when Christ our Lord wished to give a sign of the intimate union that exists between him and his church, and of his immense love for us, he chose especially the sacred union of man and wife. That this sign was a most appropriate one will readily appear from the fact that of all human relations there is none that binds so closely as the marriage tie, and from the fact that husband and wife are bound to one another by the bonds of the greatest affection and love. Hence it is that Holy Writ so frequently represents to us the divine union of Christ and the Church under the figure of marriage. That matrimony is a sacrament the Church, following the authority of the Apostles, has always held to be certain and incontestable. In his epistle to the Ephesians he writes, Men should love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, as also Christ doth the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall adhere to his wife, and they shall be two in one flesh. This is a great sacrament, but I speak in Christ and in the church. Now his expression, this is a great sacrament, undoubtedly refers to matrimony, and must be taken to mean that the union of man and wife, which has God for its author, is a sacrament, that is, a sacred sign of that most holy union that binds Christ our Lord to his church. That this is the true and proper meaning of the Apostles' words is shown by the ancient Holy Fathers who have interpreted them and by the explanation furnished by the Council of Trent. It is indubitable, therefore, that the Apostle compares the husband to Christ and the wife to the church, that the husband is head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, and that for this very reason the husband should love his wife and the wife love and respect her husband. For Christ loved his church and gave himself for her, while as the same apostle teaches, the church is subject to Christ. That grace is also signified and conferred by this sacrament, which are two properties that constitute the principal characteristics of each sacrament, is declared by the council as follows. By his passion, Christ, the author and perfecter of the venerable sacraments, merited for us the grace that perfects the natural love of husband and wife, confirms their indissoluble union, and sanctifies them. It should therefore be shown that by the grace of this sacrament, husband and wife are joined in the bonds of mutual love, cherish affection one towards the other, avoid illicit attachments and passions, and so keep their marriage honorable in all things, and their bed undefiled. Marriage before Christ. It was not a sacrament. How much the sacrament of matrimony is superior to the marriages made both previous to and under the Mosaic law may be judged from the fact that though the Gentiles themselves were convinced there was something divine in marriage, and for that reason regarded promiscuous intercourse as contrary to the law of nature, while they also considered fornication, 
adultery, and other kinds of impurity to be punishable offenses, yet their marriages never had any sacramental value. Among the Jews, the laws of marriage were observed far more religiously, and it cannot be doubted that their unions were endowed with more holiness. As they had received from God the promise that in the seed of Abraham all nations should be blessed, it was justly considered by them to be a very pious duty to bring forth children and thus contribute to the propagation of the chosen people from whom Christ the Lord and Savior was to derive his birth in his human nature. Still, their unions also fell short of the real nature of a sacrament. It should be added that if we consider the law of nature after the fall and the law of Moses, we shall easily see that marriage had fallen from its original honor and purity. Thus, under the law of nature, we read of many of the ancient patriarchs that they had several wives at the same time. While under the law of Moses, it was permissible, should cause exist, to repudiate one's wife by giving her a bill of divorce. Both these concessions have been suppressed by the law of the gospel, and marriage has been restored to its original state. Christ restored to marriage its primitive qualities. Though some of the ancient patriarchs are not to be blamed for having married several wives, since they did not act thus without divine dispensation, yet Christ our Lord has clearly shown that polygamy is not in keeping with the nature of matrimony. These are his words. For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be two in one flesh. And, he adds, wherefore they are no more two but one flesh. In these words he makes it clear that God instituted marriage to be the union of two and only two persons. The same truth he has taught very distinctly in another passage, wherein he says, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if the wife shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. For if it were lawful for a man to have several wives, there is no reason why he who takes to himself a second wife, along with the wife he already has, should be regarded as more guilty of adultery than if he had dismissed his first wife and taken a second. Hence it is that when an infidel, who following the customs of his country, has married several wives, happens to be converted to the true religion, the church orders him to dismiss all but the first and regard her alone as his true and lawful wife. The selfsame testimony of Christ our Lord easily proves that the marriage tie cannot be broken by any sort of divorce. For if by a bill of divorce a woman were freed from the law that binds her to her husband, she might marry another husband without being in the least guilty of adultery. Yet, our Lord says clearly, Whosoever shall put away his wife and shall marry another committeth adultery. Hence it is plain that the bond of marriage can be dissolved by death alone, as is confirmed by the Apostle, 
when he says, A woman is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband die, she is at liberty. Let her marry whom she will, only in the Lord. And again, To them that are married, not I but the Lord commandeth, that the wife depart not from her husband, and if she depart, that she remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband. To the wife, then, who for a just cause has left her husband, the apostle offers this alternative. Let her either remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband. Nor does Holy Church permit husband and wife to separate without weighty reasons. Lest, however, the law of matrimony should seem too severe on account of its absolute indissolubility, the advantages of this indissolubility should be pointed out. The first beneficial consequence is that men are given to understand that in entering matrimony virtue and congeniality of disposition are to be preferred to wealth or beauty a circumstance that cannot but prove of the very highest advantage to the interest of society at large. In the second place, if marriage could be dissolved by divorce, married persons would hardly ever be without causes of disunion, which would be daily supplied by the old enemy of peace and purity. While on the contrary, now that the faithful must remember that even those separated as to bed and board they remain nonetheless bound by the bond of marriage with no hope of marrying another. They are by this very fact rendered less prone to strife and discord. And even if it sometimes happens that husband and wife become separated and are unable to bear the want of their partnership any longer, they are easily reconciled by friends and return to their common life. The pastor should not here omit the salutary admonition of St. Augustine, who to convince the faithful that they should not consider it a hardship to receive back the wife they put away for adultery, provided she repents of her crime, observes, Why should not the Christian husband receive back his wife when the church receives her? And why should not the wife pardon her adulterous but penitent husband when Christ has already pardoned him? True it is that Scripture calls him foolish, who keepeth an adulteress, but the meaning refers to her who refuses to repent of her crime and quit the disgraceful course she has entered on. From all this, it will be clear that Christian marriage is far superior in dignity and perfection to that of Gentiles and Jews. The Three Blessings of Marriage the faithful should also be shown that there are three blessings of marriage, children, fidelity, and the sacrament. These are blessings which to some degree compensate for the inconveniences referred to by the apostle in the words, Such shall have tribulation of the flesh. And they lead to this other result, that sexual intercourse which is sinful outside of marriage is rendered right and honorable. The first blessing, then, is a family, that is to say, children born of a true and lawful wife. So highly did the apostle esteem this blessing that he says, The woman shall be saved by bearing children. 
These words are to be understood not only of bearing children, but also of bringing them up and training them to the practice of piety. For the apostle immediately subjoins, If she continue in faith. Scripture says, Hast thou children? Instruct them and bow their necks down from childhood. The same is taught by the apostle, while Tobias, Job, and other holy patriarchs in sacred scripture furnish us with beautiful examples of such training. The duties of both parents and children will, however, be set forth in detail when we come to speak of the fourth commandment. The second advantage of marriage is faith, not indeed that virtue which we receive in baptism, but the fidelity which binds wife to husband and husband to wife in such a way that they mutually deliver to each other power over their bodies, promising at the same time never to violate the holy bond of matrimony. This is easily inferred from the words pronounced by Adam when taking Eve as his wife, and which were afterwards confirmed by Christ our Lord in the gospel. Wherefore a man shall leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be two in one flesh. It is also inferred from the words of the apostle, The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband, and in like manner the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Justly then did the Lord in the old law ordain the most severe penalties against adulterers who violated this conjugal fidelity. Matrimonial fidelity also demands that they love one another with a special, holy, and pure love, not as adulterers love one another, but as Christ loves his church. This is the rule laid down by the apostle when he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church. And surely Christ's love for his church was immense. It was a love inspired not by his own advantage, but only by the advantage of his spouse. The third advantage is called the sacrament, that is to say, the indissoluble bond of marriage. As the apostle has it, the Lord commanded that the wife depart not from the husband, and if she depart, that she remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. And truly, if marriage as a sacrament represents the union of Christ with his church, it also necessarily follows that just as Christ never separates himself from his church, so in like manner the wife can never be separated from her husband insofar as regards the marriage tie. The Duties of Married People The more easily to preserve the holy state of marriage from dissensions, the duties of husband and wife are inculcated by St. Paul and by the prince of the apostles, they must be explained. The duties of a husband. It is the duty of the husband to treat his wife generously and honorably. It should not be forgotten that Eve was called by Adam his companion. The woman, he says, whom thou gavest me as a companion. Hence it was, according to the opinion of some of the holy fathers, that she was formed not from the feet, but from the side of man. 
as on the other hand she was not formed from his head in order to give her to understand that it was not hers to command but to obey her husband. The husband should also be constantly occupied in some honest pursuit with a view to provide necessaries for the support of his family and to avoid idleness, the root of almost every vice. He is also to keep all his family in order, to correct their morals, and see that they faithfully discharge. We continue now with the Catechism of the Council of Trent and the subject of the commandments, the commandments in general. The commandments were proclaimed with great solemnity. If the pastor explained the circumstances which accompanied the promulgation of the law as recorded in Scripture, the faithful will easily understand with what piety and humility they should receive and reverence the law received from God. All were commanded by God that for three days before the promulgation of the law they should wash their garments and abstain from conjugal intercourse in order that they might be more holy and better prepared to receive the law, and that on the third day they should be in readiness. When they had reached the mountain from which the Lord was to deliver the law by Moses, Moses alone was commanded to ascend the mountain. Thither came God with great majesty, filling the place with thunder and lightning, with fire and dense clouds, and began to speak to Moses, and deliver to him the commandments. In this, the divine wisdom had solely for object to admonish us that the law of the Lord should be received with pure and humble minds, and that over the neglect of his commands impend the heaviest chastisements of the divine justice. The pastor should also teach that the commandments of God are not difficult, as these words of St. Augustine are alone sufficient to show. How, I ask, is it said to be impossible for man to love? To love, I say, a beneficent creator, a most loving father, and also in the persons of his brethren to love his own flesh. Yet he who loveth has fulfilled the law. Hence the apostle St. John expressly says that the commandments of God are not heavy. For as St. Bernard observes, nothing more just could be exacted from man, nothing that could confer on him a more exalted dignity, nothing more advantageous. Hence St. Augustine, filled with admiration of God's infinite goodness, thus addresses God, What is man that thou wouldst be loved by him? And if he loves thee not, thou threatenest him with heavy punishment. Is it not punishment enough that I love thee not? But should anyone plead human infirmity to excuse himself for not loving God, it should be explained that he who demands our love pours into our hearts by the Holy Ghost the fervor of his love. And this good spirit our Heavenly Father gives to those that ask him. With reason, therefore, did St. Augustine pray, Give what thou commandest, and command what thou pleasest. As then God is ever ready to help us, especially since the death of Christ the Lord, by which the prince of this world was cast out, there's no reason why anyone should be disheartened by the difficulty of the undertaking. To him who loves, nothing is difficult. 
Furthermore, it will contribute much to persuade obedience to the law if it is explained that such obedience is necessary, especially since in these our days there are not wanting those who in their own serious injury have the impious hardihood to assert that the observance of the law, whether easy or difficult, is by no means necessary to salvation. This wicked and impious error the pastor should refute from Scripture, especially from the same apostle by whose authority they attempt to defend their wickedness. What, then, are the words of the apostle? Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but the keeping of the commandments of God. Again, inculcating the same doctrine, he says, a new creature in Christ alone avails. By a new creature in Christ, he evidently means him who observes the commandments of God, for he who observes the commandments of God loves God, as our Lord himself testifies in St. John, If anyone love me, he will keep my word. A man, it is true, may be justified, and from wicked may become righteous, before he has fulfilled by external acts each of the commandments. But no one who has arrived at the use of reason can be justified unless he is resolved to keep all of God's commandments. Finally, to leave nothing unsaid that may be calculated to induce the faithful to an observance of the law, the pastor should point out how abundant and sweet are its fruits. This he will easily accomplish by referring to the 18th Psalm, which celebrates the praises of the divine law. The highest eulogy of the law is that it proclaims the glory and the majesty of God more eloquently than even the heavenly bodies, whose beauty and order excite the admiration of all peoples, even the most uncivilized, and compel them to acknowledge the glory, wisdom, and power of the Creator and Architect of the universe. The law of the Lord also converts souls to God, for knowing the ways of God and His holy will through the medium of His law, we turn our steps into the ways of the Lord. It also gives wisdom to little ones, for they alone who fear God are truly wise. Hence the observers of the law of God are filled with pure delights, with knowledge of divine mysteries, and are blessed with plenteous joys and rewards both in this life and in the life to come. In our observance of the law, however, we should not act so much for our own advantage as for the sake of God, who by means of the law has revealed His will to man. If other creatures are obedient to God's will, how much more reasonable that man should follow it. Nor should it be omitted that God has preeminently displayed His clemency and the richness of His goodness in this, that while He might have forced us to serve His glory without a reward, He has, notwithstanding, deigned to identify His own glory with our advantage, thus rendering what tends to His glory conducive to our interests. This is a great and striking consideration. And the pastor, therefore, should teach in the concluding words of the prophet that in keeping them there is a great reward. Not only are we promised those blessings which seem to have reference to earthly happiness, such, for example, as to be blessed in the city and blessed in the field, 
but we are also promised a great reward in heaven, a good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over, which aided by the divine mercy we merit by our holy and pious actions. The Promulgation of the Law I am the Lord thy God, who brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt not have strange gods before me. Thou shalt not make to thyself a graven thing. The law, although delivered to the Jews by the Lord from the mountain, was long before written and impressed by nature on the heart of man, and was therefore rendered obligatory by God for all men and all times. It will be very useful, however, to explain carefully the words in which it was proclaimed to the Hebrews by Moses, its minister and interpreter, and also the history of the Israelites, which is so full of mysteries. The pastor should first tell that from among the nations of the earth God chose one, which descended from Abraham, that it was the divine will that Abraham should be a stranger in the land of Canaan, the possession of which he had promised him, and that although for more than four hundred years he and his posterity were wanderers before they dwelt in the promised land, God never withdrew from them throughout their wanderings his protecting care. They passed from nation to nation and from one kingdom to another people. He suffered no man to hurt them, and he even reproved kings for their sakes. Before they went down into Egypt, he sent before them one by whose prudence they and the Egyptians were rescued from famine. In Egypt, such was his kindness towards them, that although opposed by the power of Pharaoh, who sought their destruction, they increased to an extraordinary degree, and when they were severely harassed and cruelly treated as slaves, God raised up Moses as a leader to lead them out in a strong hand. It is especially this deliverance that the Lord refers to in the opening words of the law. I am the Lord thy God who brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Lessons to be drawn from the Jewish history. From all this, the pastor should especially note that out of all the nations, God chose only one whom he called his people, and by whom he willed to be known and worshipped not that they were superior to other nations in justice or in numbers, and of this God himself reminds the Hebrews, but rather because he wished, by the multiplication and aggrandizement of an inconsiderable and impoverished nation, to display to mankind his power and goodness. Such having been their condition, he was closely united to them and loved them. And Lord of heaven and earth as he was, he disdained not to be called their God. He desired that the other nations might thus be excited to emulation, and that mankind, seeing the happiness of the Israelites, might embrace the worship of the true God. In the same way, St. Paul says that by discussing the happiness of the Gentiles and their knowledge of the true God, he provoked to emulation those who were his own flesh. The faithful should next be taught that God suffered the Hebrew patriarchs to wander for so long a time, and their posterity to be oppressed and harassed by a galling servitude, in order to teach us 
that none are friends of God except those who are enemies of the world and pilgrims on earth, and that an entire detachment from the world gives us an easier access to the friendship of God. Further, he wished that being brought to his service, we should understand how much happier are they who serve God than they who serve the world. Of this, Scripture itself admonishes us, Yet they shall serve him, that they may know the difference between my service and the service of the kingdom of the earth. The pastor should also explain that God delayed the fulfillment of his promise until after the lapse of more than four hundred years, in order that his people might be sustained by faith and hope. For as we shall show when we come to explain the first commandment, God wishes his children to depend on him at all times and to repose all their confidence in his goodness. Finally, the time and place in which the people of Israel received this law from God should be noted. They received it after they had been delivered from Egypt and had come into the wilderness, in order that, impressed by the memory of a recent benefit and awed by the dreariness of the place in which they journeyed, they might be the better disposed to receive the law. For man becomes closely attached to those whose bounty he has experienced, and when he has lost all hope of assistance from his fellow man, he then seeks refuge in the protection of God. From all this, we learn that the more detached the faithful are from the allurements of the world and the pleasures of sense, the more disposed they are to accept heavenly doctrines. As the prophet has written, Whom shall he teach knowledge, and whom shall he make to understand the hearing? Them that are weaned from the milk, them that are drawn away from the breasts. We now begin the first commandment. I am the Lord thy God, who brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt not have strange gods before me. Thou shalt not make to thyself a graven thing, nor the likeness of any thing that is in heaven above, or in the earth beneath, nor of those things that are in the waters under the earth. Thou shalt not adore them, nor serve them. I am the Lord thy God, mighty, jealous, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. I am the Lord thy God. The pastor should use his best endeavors to induce the faithful to keep continually in view these words, I am the Lord thy God. From them they will learn that their lawgiver is none other than their creator, by whom they were made and are preserved, and that they may truly repeat, He is the Lord our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. The frequent and earnest inculcation of these words will also serve to induce the faithful more readily to observe the law and avoid sin. Who brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage? The next words who brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, seem to relate solely to the Jews, liberated from the bondage of Egypt. 
But if we consider the meaning of the salvation of the entire human race, those words are still more applicable to Christians who are liberated by God not from the bondage of Egypt, but from the slavery of sin and the powers of darkness and are translated into the kingdom of his beloved son. Contemplating the greatness of this favor, Jeremiah foretold, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when it shall be said, No more. The Lord liveth, and that brought forth the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord liveth that brought the children of Israel out of the land of the north, and out of all the lands to which I cast them out. And I will bring them again into their land, which I gave to their fathers. Behold, I send many fishers, saith the Lord, and they shall fish them etc. And indeed, our most indulgent Father has gathered together, through His beloved Son, His children that were dispersed, that being made free from sin and made servants of justice, we may serve before Him in holiness and justice all our days. Against every temptation, therefore, the faithful should arm themselves with these words of the Apostle, as with a shield. Shall we who are dead to sin live any longer therein. We are no longer our own, we are His who died and rose again for us. He is the Lord our God who has purchased us for Himself at the price of His blood. Shall we then be any longer capable of sinning against the Lord our God and crucifying Him again? Being made truly free, and with that liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, let us as we heretofore yielded our members to serve injustice, henceforward yield them to serve justice, to sanctification. Thou shalt not have strange gods before me. The pastor should teach that the first part of the Decalogue contains our duties towards God, the second part our duties towards our neighbor. The reason for this order is that the services we render our neighbor are rendered for the sake of God. For then only do we love our neighbor as God commands when we love him for God's sake. The commandments which regard God are those which were inscribed on the first table of the law. The pastor should next show that the words just quoted contained a twofold precept, the one mandatory, the other prohibitory. When it is said, Thou shalt not have strange gods before me. It is equivalent to saying, Thou shalt worship me, the true God. Thou shalt not worship strange gods. The mandatory part contains a precept of faith, hope, and charity. For acknowledging God to be immovable, immutable, always the same, we rightly confess that he is faithful and entirely just. Hence, in assenting to his oracles, we necessarily yield to him all belief and obedience. Again, who can contemplate his omnipotence, his clemency, his willing beneficence, and not repose in him all his hopes? Finally, who can behold the riches of his goodness and love which he lavishes on us and not love him? Hence, the exordium and the conclusion used by God in Scripture when giving his commands. I, the Lord. The negative part of this commandment is comprised in these words, Thou shalt not have strange gods before me. 
This the lawgiver subjoins not because it is not sufficiently expressed in the affirmative part of the precept, which means, Thou shalt worship me, the only God, for if he is God, he is the only God. But on account of the blindness of many who of old professed to worship the true God, and yet adored a multitude of gods. Of these there were many even among the Hebrews, whom Elias reproached with having halted between two sides, and also among the Samaritans, who worshipped the God of Israel and the gods of the nations. After this, it should be added that this is the first and principal commandment, not only in order, but also in its nature, dignity, and excellence. God is entitled to infinitely greater love and obedience from us than any lord or king. He created us. He governs us. He nurtured us even in the womb, brought us into the world, and still supplies us with all the necessaries of life and maintenance. Against this commandment, all those who sin, who have not faith, hope, and charity. Such sinners are very numerous, for they include all who fall into heresy, who reject what Holy Mother the Church proposes for our belief, who give credit to dreams, fortune-telling, and such illusions. Those who, despairing of salvation, trust not in the goodness of God, and those who rely solely on wealth or health and strength of body. But these matters are developed more at length in treatises on sins and vices. In explanation of this commandment, it should be accurately taught that the veneration and invocation of holy angels and of the blessed who now enjoy the glory of heaven, and likewise the honor which the Catholic Church has always paid even to the bodies and ashes of the saints, are not forbidden by this commandment. If a king ordered that no one else should set himself up as king, or accept the honors due to the royal person, who would be so foolish as to infer that the sovereign was unwilling that suitable honor and respect should be paid to his magistrates? Now, although Christians follow the example set by the saints of the old law, and are said to adore the angels, yet they do not give to angels that honor which is due to God alone. And if we sometimes read that angels refuse to be worshipped by men, we are to know that they did so because the worship which they refused to accept was the honor due to God alone. The Holy Spirit, who says, Honor and glory to God alone, commands us also to honor our parents and elders. And the holy men who adored one God only are also said in Scripture to have adored, that is, supplicated and venerated kings. If, then, kings, by whose agency God governs the world, are so highly honored, shall it be deemed unlawful to honor those angelic spirits whom God has been pleased to constitute his ministers, whose services he makes use of not only in the government of his church, but also of the universe, by whose aid, although we see them not, we are every day delivered from the greatest dangers of soul and body? Are they not worthy of far greater honor, since their dignity so far surpasses that of kings? Add to this their love towards us, which, as we easily see from Scripture, 
prompts them to pour out their prayers for those countries over which they are placed, as well as for us, whose guardians they are, and whose prayers and tears they present before the throne of God. Hence our Lord admonishes us in the gospel not to offend the little ones, because their angels in heaven always see the face of their Father who is in heaven. Their intercession, therefore, we ought to invoke, because they always see the face of God, and are constituted by Him the willing advocates of our salvation. The Scriptures bear witness to such invocation. Jacob entreated the angel with whom he wrestled to bless him. Nay, he even compelled him, declaring that he would not let him go until he blessed him. And not only did he invoke the blessing of the angel whom he saw, but also of him whom he saw not. The angel said, He who delivers me from all evils, bless these boys. From all this, we may conclude that to honor the saints who have slept in the Lord, to invoke them and to venerate their sacred relics and ashes, far from diminishing, tends considerably to increase the glory of God. In proportion as man's hope is thus animated and fortified, and he himself encouraged to imitate the saints. This is a practice which is also supported by the authority of the Second Council of Nice, and the councils of Gangra and Trent, and by the testimony of the fathers. In order, however, that the pastor may be better prepared to meet the objections of those who deny this doctrine, he should consult particularly St. Jerome against Vigilantius, and St. Damascene. To the teaching of these fathers should be added as a consideration of prime importance that the practice was received from the apostles and has always been retained and preserved in the church of God. But who can desire a stronger or more convincing proof than that which is supplied by the admirable praises given in Scripture to the saints? For there are not wanting eulogies which God himself pronounced on some of the saints. If then Holy Writ celebrates their praises, why should not men show them singing? We continue now with the Catechism of the Council of Trent and the subject of the commandments, the first commandment. Both the carnal and spiritual should be spurred on, especially by two considerations which are contained in this concluding clause and are highly calculated to enforce obedience to the divine law. The one is that God is called the strong. That appellation needs to be fully expounded because the flesh, unappalled by the terrors of the divine menaces, frequently indulges in the foolish expectation of escaping, in one way or another, God's wrath and threatened punishment. But when one is deeply impressed with the conviction that God is the strong, he will explain with the great David, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy face? The flesh, also distrusting the promises of God, sometimes magnifies the power of the enemy to such an extent as to believe itself unable to withstand his assaults, while on the contrary, a firm and unshaken faith which wavers not but relies confidently on the strength and power of God 
animates and confirms man. For it says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The second spur is the jealousy of God. Man is sometimes tempted to think that God takes no interest in human affairs and does not even care whether we observe or neglect his law. This error is the source of the great disorders of life. But when we believe that God is a jealous God, the thought easily keeps us within the limits of our duty. The jealousy attributed to God does not, however, imply disturbance of mind. It is that divine love and charity by which God will suffer no human creature to be unfaithful to him with impunity, and which destroys all those who are disloyal to him. The jealousy of God, therefore, is the most tranquil and impartial justice, which repudiates as an adulteress the soul corrupted by erroneous opinions and criminal passions. This jealousy of God, since it shows his boundless and incomprehensible goodness towards us, we find most sweet and pleasant. Among men there is no love more ardent, no greater or more intimate tie than that of those who are united by marriage. Hence, when God frequently compares himself to a spouse or husband and calls himself a jealous God, he shows the excess of his love towards us. The pastor, therefore, should here teach that men should be so warmly interested in promoting the worship and honor of God as to be said rather to be jealous of him than to love him in imitation of him who says of himself, With zeal have I been zealous for the Lord God of hosts, or rather of Christ himself who says, The zeal of thy house hath eaten me up. Concerning the threat contained in this commandment, it should be explained that God will not suffer sinners to go unpunished, but will chastise them as a father, or punish them with the rigor and severity of a judge. This was elsewhere explained by Moses when he said, Thou shalt know that the Lord thy God is a strong and faithful God, keeping his covenant and mercy to them that love him, and to them that keep his commandments unto a thousand generations, and repaying forthwith them that hate him. You will not, says Josu, be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God, and mighty and jealous, and will not forgive your wickedness and sins. If you leave the Lord and serve strange gods, he will turn and will afflict you, and will destroy you. The faithful are also to be taught that the punishments here threatened await the third and fourth generation of the impious and wicked, not that the children are always chastised for the sins of their ancestors, but that while these and their children may go unpunished, their posterity will not all escape the wrath and vengeance of the Almighty. This happened in the case of King Josias. God had spared him for his singular piety, and allowed him to be gathered to the tomb of his fathers in peace, that his eyes might not behold the evils of the times that were to befall Judah and Jerusalem, on account of the wickedness of his grandfather Manassas. Yet, after his death, the divine vengeance so overtook his posterity that even the children of Josias were not spared. 
How the words of this commandment are not at variance with the statement of the prophet, The soul that sins shall die, is clearly shown by the authority of St. Gregory, supported by the testimony of all the ancient fathers. Whoever, he says, follows the bad example of a wicked father is also bound by his sins. But he who does not follow the example of his father shall not at all suffer for the sins of the father. Hence it follows that a wicked son, who dreads not to add his own malice to the vices of his father, by which he knows the divine wrath to have been excited, pays the penalty not only of his own sins, but also of those of his father. It is just that he who dreads not to walk in the footsteps of a wicked father in presence of a rigorous judge should be compelled in the present life to expiate the crimes of his wicked parent. The pastor should next observe that the goodness and mercy of God far exceed his justice. He is angry to the third and fourth generation, but he bestows his mercy on thousands. The words of them that hate me display the grievousness of sin. What more wicked, what more detestable than to hate God, the supreme goodness and sovereign truth? This, however, is the crime of all sinners. For as he that hath God's commandments and keepeth them loveth God, so he who despises his law and violates his commandments is justly said to hate God. The concluding words, and to them that love me, point out the manner and motive of observing the law. Those who obey the law of God must needs be influenced in its observance by the same love and charity which they bear to God, a principle which should be brought to mind in the instructions on all the other commandments. The Second Commandment Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Why this commandment is distinct from the rest. The second commandment of the divine law is necessarily comprised in the first, which commands us to worship God in piety and holiness. For he who requires that honor be paid him also requires that he be spoken of with reverence, and must forbid the contrary as is clearly shown by these words of the Lord in Malachi, The Son honoreth the Father, and the servant his master. If then I be a father, where is my honor? However, on account of the importance of the obligation, God wished to make the law, which commands his own divine and most holy name to be honored, a distinct commandment, expressed in the clearest and simplest terms. The above observation should strongly convince the pastor that on this point it is not enough to speak in general terms, that the importance of the subject is such as to require it to be dwelt upon at considerable length and be explained to the faithful in all its bearings with distinctness, clearness, and accuracy. This diligence cannot be deemed superfluous since there are not wanting those who are so blinded by the darkness of error as not to dread to blaspheme his name, whom the angels glorify. Men are not deterred by the commandment laid down from shamelessly and daringly outraging his divine majesty every day, or rather every hour and moment of every day. Who is ignorant that every assertion is accompanied with an oath 
and teems with curses and imprecations. To such lengths has this piety been carried that there's scarcely anyone who buys or sells or transacts business of any sort without having recourse to swearing, and who, even in matters the most unimportant and trivial, does not profane the most holy name of God thousands of times. It therefore becomes more imperative on the pastor not to neglect carefully and frequently to admonish the faithful how grievous and detestable is this crime. But in the exposition of this commandment, it should first be shown that besides a negative, it also contains a positive precept, commanding the performance of a duty. To each of these, a separate explanation should be given, and for the sake of easier exposition, what the commandment requires should be first set forth, and then what it forbids. It commands us to honor the name of God, and to swear by it with reverence. It prohibits us to condemn the divine name, to take it in vain, or swear by it falsely, unnecessarily, or rashly. In the part which commands us to honor the name of God, the command, as the pastor should show the faithful, is not directed to the letters or syllables of which that name is composed, or in any respect to the mere name, but to the meaning of a word used to express the omnipotent and eternal majesty of the Godhead, Trinity, in unity. Hence we easily infer the superstition of those among the Jews, who, while they hesitated not to write, dared not to pronounce the name of God, as if the divine power consisted in the four letters and not in the signification. A footnote on that, the name Yahweh, by which God was called among the Hebrews, was written with only four consonants, the vowels being omitted, and is therefore called the tetragrammaton. Although this commandment uses the, the singular number, Thou shalt not take the name of God, this is not to be understood to refer to any one name, but to every name by which God is generally designated. For he is called by many names, such as the Lord, the Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the King of kings, the strong, and by others of similar nature, which we meet in Scripture, and which are all entitled to the same and equal veneration. It should next be taught how due honor is to be given to the name of God. Christians, whose tongue should constantly celebrate the divine praises, are not to be ignorant of a matter so important, indeed most necessary, to salvation. The name of God may be honored in a variety of ways, but all may be reduced to those that follow. In the first place, God's name is honored when we publicly and confidently confess him to be our Lord and our God, and what we acknowledge and also proclaim Christ to be the author of our salvation. It is also honored when we pay a religious attention to the word of God, which announces to us his will, make it the subject of our constant meditation, and strive by reading or hearing it according to our respective capacities and conditions of life to become acquainted with it. Again we honor and venerate the name of God when from a sense of religious duty we celebrate his praises, and under all circumstances, whether prosperous or adverse, return him 
unbounded thanks. Thus spoke the prophet, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and never forget all he hath done for thee. Among the Psalms of David there are many in which, animated with singular piety towards God, he chants in sweetest strains the divine praises. There is also the example of the admirable patience of Job, who, when visited with the heaviest and most appalling calamities, never ceased, with lofty and unconquered soul, to give praise to God. When therefore we labor under affliction of mind or body, when oppressed by misery and misfortune, let us instantly direct all our thoughts and all the powers of our souls to the praises of God, saying with Job, Blessed be the name of the Lord. The name of God is not less honored when we confidently invoke His assistance, either to relieve us from our afflictions or to give us constancy and strength to endure them with fortitude. This is in accordance with the Lord's own wishes. Call upon me, he says, in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. We have illustrious examples of such supplications in many passages of Scripture, and especially in the 16th, 43rd, and 118th Psalms. And finally, we honor the name of God when we solemnly call upon Him to witness the truth of what we assert. This mode of honoring God's name differs much from those already enumerated. Those means are in their own nature so good, so desirable, that our days and nights could not be more happily or more holily spent than in such practices of piety. I will bless the Lord at all times, says David. His praise shall be always in my mouth. On the other hand, although oaths are in themselves good, their frequent use is by no means praiseworthy. The reason of this difference is that oaths have been instituted only as remedies to human frailty and a necessary means of establishing the truth of what we assert. As it is inexpedient to have recourse to medicine unless, when it becomes necessary, and as its frequent use is harmful, so with regard to oaths, it is not profitable to have recourse to them unless there is a weighty and just cause, and frequent recurrence to them, far from being advantageous, is on the contrary highly prejudicial. Hence the excellent observation of St. Chrysostom. Oaths were introduced among men, not at the beginning of the world, but long after, when vice had spread far and wide over the earth, when all things were disturbed and universal confusion reigned throughout when to complete human depravity almost all mankind debased the dignity of their nature by the degrading service of idols. Then at length it was that the custom of oaths was introduced, for the perfidy and wickedness of men was so great that it was with difficulty that anyone could be induced to credit the assertion of another, and they began to call on God as a witness. Since, in explaining this part of the commandment, the chief object is to teach the faithful how to render an oath reverential and holy, it is first to be observed that to swear, whatever the form of words may be, is nothing else than to call God to witness, thus to say, God is my witness, and by God mean one and the same thing. 
To swear by creatures, such as the holy gospels, the cross, the names or relics of the saints, and so on, in order to prove our statements, is also to take an oath. Of themselves it is true, such objects give no weight or authority to an oath. It is God himself who does this, whose divine majesty shines forth in them. Hence to swear by the gospel is to swear by God himself, whose truth is contained and revealed in the gospel. This holds equally true with regard to those who swear by the saints, who are the temples of God, who believe the truth of his gospel, were faithful in its observance, and spread it far and wide among the nations and peoples. This is also true of oaths uttered by way of execration, such as that of St. Paul, I call God to witness upon my soul. By this form of oath, one submits himself to God's judgment, who is the avenger of falsehood. We do not, however, deny that some of these forms may be used without constituting an oath, but even in such cases, it will be found useful to observe what has been said with regard to an oath, and to conform exactly to the same rule and standard. Oaths are of two kinds. The first is an affirmatory oath, and is taken when we religiously affirm anything, past or present. Such was the affirmation of the Apostle in his epistle to the Galatians. Behold, before God I lie not. The second kind, to which combinations may be reduced, is called promissory. It looks to the future, and is taken when we promise and affirm for certain that such or such a thing will be done. Such was the oath of David, who, swearing by the Lord his God, promised to Bathsheba, his wife, that her son Solomon should be heir to his kingdom and successor to his throne. Although to constitute an oath it is sufficient to call God to witness, yet to constitute a holy and just oath many other conditions are required, which should be carefully explained. These, as St. Jerome observes, are briefly enumerated in the words of Jeremiah, Thou shalt swear, as the Lord liveth, in truth and in judgment and in justice. Words which briefly sum up all the conditions that constitute the perfection of an oath, namely, truth, judgment, justice. Truth, then, holds the first place in an oath. What is asserted must be true, and he who swears must believe what he swears to be true, being influenced not by rash judgment or mere conjecture, but by solid reasons. Truth is a condition not less necessary in a promissory than in an affirmatory oath. He who promises must be disposed to perform and fulfill his promise at the appointed time. As no conscientious man will promise to do what he considers opposed to the most holy commandments and will of God, so, having promised and sworn to do what is lawful, he will never fail to adhere to his engagement, unless perhaps by a change of circumstances it should happen that if he wished to keep faith and observe his promises, he must incur the displeasure and the enmity of God. That truth is necessary to an oath David also declares in his words, He that sweareth to his neighbor, and deceiveth not. The second condition of an oath is judgment. An oath is not to be taken rashly and inconsiderately, but after deliberation and reflection. 
When about to take an oath, therefore, one should first consider whether he is obliged to take it, and should weigh well the whole case, reflecting whether it seems to call for an oath. Many other circumstances of time and place, etc., are also to be taken into consideration. And one should not be influenced by love or hatred or any other passion, but by the nature and necessity of the case. Unless this careful consideration and reflection precede, an oath must be rash and hasty, and of this character are the irreligious affirmations of those who on the most unimportant and trifling occasions swear without thought or reason from the influence of bad habit alone. This we see practiced daily everywhere among buyers and sellers. The latter, to sell at the highest price, the former to purchase at the cheapest rate, make no scruple to strengthen with an oath their praise or dispraise of the goods on sale. Since, therefore, judgment and prudence are necessary, and since children are not able, on account of their tender years, to understand and judge accurately, Pope St. Cornelius decreed that an oath should not be administered to children before puberty, that is, before their fourteenth year. The last condition of an oath is justice, which is especially requisite in promissory oaths. Hence, if a person swear to do what is unjust or unlawful, he sins by taking the oath, and adds sin to sin by executing his promise. Of this, the gospel supplies an example. King Herod, bound by a rash oath, gave to a dancing girl the head of John the Baptist as a reward for her dancing. Such was also the oath taken by the Jews, who, as we read in the Acts of the Apostles, bound themselves by oath not to eat until they had killed Paul. These explanations having been given, there can be no doubt that they who observe the above conditions and who guard their oaths with these qualities as with bulwarks may swear with a safe conscience. This is easily established by many proofs, for the law of God, which is pure and holy, commands, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, and shalt serve him only, and thou shalt swear by his name. All they, writes David, shall be praised that swear by him. The scriptures also inform us that the most holy apostles, the lights of the church, sometimes made use of oaths, as appears from the epistles of the apostle. Even the angels sometimes swear. The angel, writes John in the Apocalypse, swore by him who lives forever. Nay, God himself, the Lord of angels, swears, and as we read in many passages of the Old Testament, has confirmed his promises with an oath. This he did to Abraham and David. Of the oath sworn by God, David says, The Lord hath sworn, and he will not repent. Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In fact, if we consider the whole matter attentively and examine the origin and purpose of an oath, it can be no difficult matter to explain the reasons why it is a laudable act. An oath has its origin in faith, by which men believe God to be the author of all truth, who can never deceive others or be deceived, to whose eyes all things are naked and open, who in fine superintends all human affairs with an admirable providence and governs the world. 
Filled with this faith, we appeal to God as a witness of the truth, as a witness whom it would be wicked and impious to distrust. With regard to the end of an oath, its scope and intent is to establish the justice and innocence of man, and to terminate disputes and contests. This is the doctrine of the apostle in his epistle to the Hebrews. Nor does this doctrine at all clash with these words of the Redeemer, recorded in St. Matthew. You have heard that it was said to them of old, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but thou shalt perform thy oaths to the Lord. But I say to you not to swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is the throne of God, neither by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your speech be, yea, yea, no, no, and that which is over and above these is of evil. It cannot be asserted that these words condemn oaths universally and under all circumstances, since we have already seen that the apostles and our Lord himself made frequent use of them. The object of our Lord was rather to reprove the perverse opinion of the Jews, who had persuaded themselves that the only thing to be avoided in an oath was a lie. Hence, in matters the most trivial and unimportant, they did not hesitate to make frequent use of oaths and to exact them from others. This practice the Redeemer condemns and reprobates, and teaches that an oath is never to be taken unless necessity require it. For oaths have been instituted on account of human frailty. They are really the outcome of evil, being a sign either of the inconstancy of him who takes them, or of the obstinacy of him who refuses to believe without them. However, an oath can be justified by necessity. When our Lord says, Let your speech be yea, yea, no, no, he evidently forbids the habit of swearing in familiar conversation and on trivial matters. He therefore admonishes us particularly against being too ready and willing to swear. And this should be carefully explained and impressed on the minds of the faithful. That countless evils grow out of the unrestrained habit of swearing is proved by the evidence of Scripture and the testimony of the Most Holy Fathers. Thus we read in Ecclesiasticus, Let not thy mouth be accustomed to swearing, for in it there are many faults. And again, a man that sweareth much shall be filled with iniquity, and a scourge shall not depart from his house. In the works of St. Basil and St. Augustine against lying, much more can be found on this subject. So far, we have considered what this commandment requires. It now remains to speak of what it prohibits, namely to take the name of God in vain. It is clear that he who swears rashly and without deliberation commits a grave sin. That this is a most serious sin is declared by the words, Thou shalt not take the name of thy God in vain which seem to assign the reason why this crime is so wicked and heinous, namely, that it derogates from the majesty of him whom we profess to recognize as our Lord and our God. 
This commandment, therefore, forbids to swear falsely, because he who does not shrink from so great a crime as to appeal to God to witness falsehood offers a grievous injury to God, charging him either with ignorance, as though the truth of any matter could be unknown to him, or with malice and dishonesty, as though God could bear testimony to falsehood. Among false swearers are to be numbered not only those who affirm as truth what they know to be false, but also those who swear to what is really true, believing it to be false. For since the essence of a lie consists in speaking contrary to one's belief and conviction, these persons are evidently guilty of a lie and of perjury. On the same principle, he who swears to that which he thinks to be true, but which is really false, also incurs the guilt of perjury unless he has used proper care and diligence to arrive at a full knowledge of the matter. Although he swears according to his belief, he nevertheless sins against this commandment. Again, he who binds himself by oath to the performance of anything, not intending to fulfill his promise, or having had the intention, neglect its performance, is guilty of the same sin. This equally applies to those who, having bound themselves to God by vow, neglect its fulfillment. This commandment is also violated if justice, which is one of the three conditions of an oath, be wanting. Hence, he who swears to commit a mortal sin, for example, to perpetuate murder, violates this commandment, even though he speaks seriously and from his heart, and his oath possess what we before pointed out, as the first condition of every oath, that is, truth. To these are to be added oaths sworn through a sort of contempt, such as an oath not to observe the evangelical counsels, such as celibacy and poverty. None, it is true, are obliged to embrace these divine counsels, but by swearing not to observe them, one condemns and despises them. This commandment is also sinned against, and judgment is violated when one swears to what is true and what he believes to be true if his motives are light conjectures and far-fetched reasons. For notwithstanding its truth, such an oath is not unmixed with a sort of falsehood, seeing that he who swears with such indifference exposes himself to extreme danger of perjury. To swear by false gods is likewise to swear falsely. What more opposed to truth than to appeal to lying and false deities as to the true God? Scripture, when it prohibits perjury, says, Thou shalt not profane the name of thy God, thereby forbidding all irreverence toward all other things to which, in accordance with this commandment, reverence is due. Of this nature is the word of God, the majesty of which has been revered not only by the pious, but also sometimes by the impious, as is narrated in Judges of Eglon, king of the Moabites. But he who, to support heresy and the teaching of the wicked, distorts the sacred scriptures from their genuine and true meaning, is guilty of the greatest injury to the word of God. And against this crime we are warned by these words of the prince of the apostles. There are certain things hard to be understood, which the unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, to their own destruction. 
It is also a foul and shameful contamination of the Scripture that wicked men pervert the words and sentences which it contains, and which should be honored with all reverence, turning them to profane purposes, such as scurrility, fable, vanity, flattery, detraction, divination, satire, and the like, crimes which the Council of Trent commands to be severely punished. In the next place, as they honor God, who in their affliction implore His help, so they who do not invoke His aid deny Him due honor. And these David rebukes when he says, They have not called upon the Lord, they trembled for fear where there was no fear. Still more enormous is the guilt of those who with impure and defiled lips dare to curse or blaspheme the holy name of God that name which is to be blessed and praised above measure by all creatures, or even the names of the saints who reign with him in glory. So atrocious and horrible is this crime that the sacred scriptures, sometimes when speaking of blasphemy, use the word blessing. As, however, the dread of punishment has often a powerful effect in checking the tendency to sin, the pastor in order the more effectively to move the minds of men and the more easily to induce to an observance of this commandment, should diligently explain the remaining words, which are, as it were, its appendix. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that shall take the name of the Lord his God in vain. In the first place, the pastor should teach that with very good reason has God joined threats to this commandment. From this is understood both the grievousness of sin and the goodness of God toward us, since far from rejoicing in man's destruction, he deters us by these salutary threats from incurring his anger, doubtless in order that we may experience his kindness rather than his wrath. The pastor should urge and insist on this consideration with greatest earnestness, in order that the faithful may be made sensible of the grievousness of the crime, may detest it still more, and may employ increased care and caution to avoid its commission. He should also observe how prone men are to this sin, since it was not sufficient to give the command, but also necessary to accompany it with threats. The advantages to be derived from this thought are indeed incredible, for as nothing is more injurious than a listless security so the knowledge of our own weakness is most profitable. He should next show that God has appointed no particular punishment. The threat is general. It declares that whoever is guilty of this crime shall not escape unpunished. The various chastisements, therefore, with which we are every day visited should warn us against this sin. It is easy to conjecture that men are afflicted with heavy calamities because they violate this commandment. And if these things are called to their attention, it is likely that they will be more careful for the future. Deterred, therefore, by a holy dread, the faithful should use every exertion to avoid this sin. If, for every idle word that men shall speak, they shall render an account on the day of judgment, what shall we say of those heinous crimes which involve great contempt of the divine name. The third commandment. 
Remember that thou keep holy the Sabbath day. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy works, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. Thou shalt do no work on it, neither thou nor thy son nor thy daughter nor thy manservant nor thy maidservant nor thy beast nor the stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are in them and rested on the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Reasons for this commandment. This commandment of the law rightly and in due order prescribes the external worship which we owe to God. For it is, as it were, a consequence of the preceding commandment. For if we sincerely and devoutly worship God, guided by the faith and hope we have in Him, we cannot but honor Him with external worship and thanksgiving. And since we cannot easily discharge these duties while occupied in worldly affairs, a certain fixed time has been set aside so that may be conveniently performed. The observance of this commandment is attended with wondrous fruit and advantage. Hence it is of the highest importance for the pastor to use the utmost diligence in its exposition. The word remember with which the commandment commences must animate him to zeal in this matter, for if the faithful are bound to remember this commandment, it becomes the duty of the pastor to recall it frequently to their minds in exhortation and instruction. The importance of its observance for the faithful may be inferred from the consideration that those who carefully comply with it are more easily induced to keep all the other commandments. For among the other works which are necessary on holy days, the faithful are bound to assemble in the church to hear the word of God. When they have thus learned the divine justifications, they will be disposed to observe with their whole heart the law of the Lord. Hence, the sanctification and observance of the Sabbath is very often commanded in Scripture, as may be seen in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and in the prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, all of which contain this precept on the observance of the Sabbath. Rulers and magistrates should be admonished and exhorted to lend the sanction and support of their authority to the pastors of the church, particularly in upholding and extending the worship of God and in commanding obedience to the injunction of the priests. Let us continue with the Catechism of the Council of Trent and the Third Commandment on the next tape. We continue now with the chapter on the Third Commandment from the Catechism of the Council of Trent. How the Third differs from the other commandments. With regard to the exposition of this commandment, the faithful are carefully to be taught how it agrees with and how it differs from the others, in order that they may understand why we observe and keep holy not Saturday, but Sunday. The point of difference is evident. The other commandments of the Decalogue are precepts of the natural law, obligatory at all times, and unalterable. 
Hence, after the abrogation of the law of Moses, all the commandments contained in the two tables are observed by Christians, not indeed because their observance is commanded by Moses, but because they are in conformity with nature, which dictates obedience to them. This commandment about the observance of the Sabbath, on the other hand, considered as to the time appointed for its fulfillment, is not fixed and unalterable, but susceptible of change, and belongs not to the moral, but the ceremonial law. Neither is it a principle of the natural law. We are not instructed by nature to give external worship to God on that day rather than on any other. And in fact the Sabbath was kept holy only from the time of the liberation of the people of Israel from the bondage of Pharaoh. The observance of the Sabbath was to be abrogated at the same time as the other Hebrew rites and ceremonies, that is, at the death of Christ. Having been, as it were, images which foreshadowed the light and the truth, these ceremonies were to disappear at the coming of that light and truth, which is Jesus Christ. Hence, St. Paul, in his epistle to the Galatians, when reproving the observers of the Mosaic rite, says, You observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you, lest perhaps I have labored in vain amongst you. And he writes to the same effect to the Colossians. So much regarding the difference between this and the other commandments. This commandment is like the others, not in so far as it is a precept of the ceremonial law, but only as it is a natural and moral precept. The worship of God and the practice of religion, which it comprises, have the natural law for their basis. Nature prompts us to give some time to the worship of God. This is demonstrated by the fact that we find among all nations public festivals consecrated to the solemnities of religion and divine worship. As nature requires some time to be given to necessary functions of the body, to sleep, repose, and the like, so she also requires that some time be devoted to the mind, to refresh itself by the contemplation of God. Hence, since some time should be devoted to the worship of the deity and to the practice of religion, this commandment doubtless forms part of the moral law. The Jewish Sabbath changed to Sunday by the apostles. The apostles therefore resolved to consecrate the first day of the week to the divine worship and called it the Lord's Day. St. John in the Apocalypse makes mention of the Lord's Day and the apostle commands collections to be made on the first day of the week, that is, according to the interpretation of St. Chrysostom, on the Lord's Day. From all this we learn that even then the Lord's Day was kept holy in the church. In order that the faithful may know what they are to do and what to avoid on the Lord's Day, it will not be foreign to his purpose if the pastor, dividing the commandment into its four natural parts, explain each word of it carefully. First part of this commandment. In the first place, then, he should explain generally the meaning of these words. Remember that thou keep holy the Sabbath day. The word remember is appropriately made use of at the beginning of the commandment to signify that the sanctification of that particular day belonged to the ceremonial law. Of this it would seem to have been necessary to remind the people 
For although the law of nature commands us to devote a certain portion of time to the external worship to God, it fixes no particular day for the performance of this duty. They are also to be taught that from these words we may learn how we should employ our time during the week, that we are to keep constantly in view the Lord's day, on which we are, as it were, to render an account to God for our occupations and conduct, and that therefore our work should be such as not to be unacceptable in the sight of God, or as it is written, be to us an occasion of grief and a scruple of heart. Finally we are taught, and the instruction demands our serious attention, that there will be not wanting occasions which may lead to a forgetfulness of this commandment, such as the evil example of others who neglect its observance, and an inordinate love of amusements and sports, which frequently withdraw from the holy and religious observance of the Lord's day. We now come to the meaning of the word Sabbath. Sabbath is a Hebrew word which signifies cessation. To keep the Sabbath, therefore, means to cease from labor and to rest. In this sense, the seventh day was called the Sabbath, because God, having finished the creation of the world, rested on that day from all the work which he had done. Thus it is called by the Lord in Exodus. Later on, not only the seventh day, but in honor of that day, the entire week was called by the same name. And in this meaning of the word, the Pharisee says in St. Luke, I fast twice in a Sabbath. So much will suffice with regard to the signification of the word Sabbath. In the scriptures, keeping holy the Sabbath means a cessation from bodily labor and from business, as is clear from the following words of the commandment, Thou shalt do no work on it. But this is not all that it means. Otherwise it would have been sufficient to say in Deuteronomy, Observe the day of the Sabbath. But it is added, And sanctify it. And these additional words prove that the Sabbath is a day sacred to religion, set apart for works of piety and devotion. We sanctify the Sabbath fully and perfectly, therefore, when we offer to God works of piety and religion. This is evidently the Sabbath, which Isaiah calls delightful. For festivals are, as it were, the delight of God and of pious men. And if to this religious and holy observance of the Sabbath we add works of mercy, the rewards promised us in the same chapter are numerous and most important. The true and proper meaning, therefore, of this commandment tends to this that we take special care to set apart some fixed time when disengaged from bodily labor and worldly affairs, we may devote our whole being, soul and body, to the religious veneration of God. Second part of this commandment. The second part of the precept declares that the seventh day was consecrated by God to his worship, for it is written, Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy works, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. From these words we learn that the Sabbath is consecrated to the Lord, that we are required on that day to render him the duties of religion, and to know that the seventh day is a sign of the Lord's rest. 
This particular day was fixed for the worship of God because it would not have been well to leave to a rude people the choice of a time of worship, lest perhaps they might have imitated the festivals of the Egyptians. The last day of the week was therefore chosen for the worship of God, and in this there is much that is symbolic. Hence in Exodus and in Ezekiel, the Lord calls it a sign. See that you keep my Sabbath, because it is a sign between me and you in your generation, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctify you. It was a sign that man should dedicate and sanctify himself to God, since even the very day is devoted to him. For the holiness of the day consists in this, that on it men are bound in a special manner to practice holiness and religion. It was also a sign, and as it were a memorial, of the stupendous work of the creation. Furthermore, to the Jews it was a traditional sign, reminding them that they had been delivered by the help of God from the galling yoke of Egyptian bondage. This the Lord himself declares in these words, Remember that thou also didst serve in Egypt, and the Lord thy God brought thee out from thence with a strong hand and a stretched out arm. Therefore hath he commanded thee that thou shouldst observe the Sabbath day. It is also a sign of a spiritual and celestial Sabbath. The spiritual Sabbath consists in a holy and mystical rest, wherein the old man being buried with Christ is renewed to life and carefully applies himself to act in accordance with the spirit of Christian piety. For those who were once darkness, but are now light in the Lord, should walk as children of the light, in all goodness and justice and truth, having no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. The celestial Sabbath, as St. Cyril observes on these words of the Apostle, there remaineth therefore a day of rest for the people of God, is that life in which, living with Christ, we shall enjoy all good, when sin shall be eradicated, according to the words, No lion shall be there, nor shall any mischievous beast go up by it, nor be found there. But a path shall be there, and it shall be called the holy way. For in the vision of God the souls of the saints obtain every good. The pastor therefore should exhort and animate the faithful in the words, Let us hasten therefore to enter into that rest. Besides the seventh day, the Jews observed other festivals and holy days instituted by the divine law to awaken the recollection of the principal favors conferred on them by the Almighty. But the church of God has thought it well to transfer the celebration and observance of the Sabbath to Sunday. For as on that day light first shone on the world, so by the resurrection of our Redeemer on the same day, by whom was thrown open to us the gate to eternal life, we were called out of darkness into light, and hence the apostles would have it called the Lord's Day. We also learn from the sacred scriptures that the first day of the week was held sacred, because on that day the work of creation commenced, and on that day the Holy Ghost was given to the apostles. From the very infancy of the church, and in the following centuries, other days were also appointed by the apostles and the holy fathers in order to commemorate the benefits bestowed by God. 
Among these days to be kept sacred, the most solemn are those which were instituted to honor the mysteries of our redemption. In the next place are the days which are dedicated to the most blessed Virgin Mother, to the apostles, martyrs, and other saints who reign with Christ. In the celebration of their victories, the divine power and goodness are praised, due honor is paid to their memories, and the faithful are encouraged to imitate them. And as the observance of the precept is very strongly assisted by these words, Six days shalt thou labor, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath of God, the pastor should therefore carefully explain them to the people. For from these words it can be gathered that the faithful are to be exhorted not to spend their lives in indolence and sloth, but that each one, mindful of the words of the apostle, should do his own business and works with his own hands as he had commanded them. These words also enjoin as a duty commanded by God that in six days we do all our works, lest we defer to a festival what should be have been done during the other days of the week, thereby distracting the attention from the things of God. The third part of the commandment comes next to be explained. It points out to a certain extent the manner in which we are to keep holy the Sabbath day and explains particularly what we are forbidden to do on that day. Thou shalt do no work on it, says the Lord, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy beast, nor the stranger that is within thy gates. These words teach us in the first place to avoid whatever may interfere with the worship of God. Hence it is not difficult to perceive that all servile works are forbidden, not because they are improper or evil in themselves, but because they withdraw the attention from the worship of God, which is the great end of the commandment. The faithful should be still more careful to avoid sin, which not only withdraws the mind from the contemplation of divine things, but entirely alienates us from the love of God. But whatever regards the celebration of divine worship, such as the decoration of the altar or church on occasion of some festival and the like, Although servile works are not prohibited, and hence our Lord says, the priest in the temple break the Sabbath and are without blame. Neither are we to suppose that this commandment forbids attention to those things on a feast day, which if neglected will be lost, for this is expressly permitted by the sacred canons. There are many other things which our Lord in the gospel declares lawful on festivals, and which may be seen by the pastor in St. Matthew and St. John. To omit nothing that may interfere with the sanctification of the Sabbath, the commandment mentions beasts of burden, because their use will prevent its due observance. If beasts be employed on the Sabbath, human labor also becomes necessary to direct them, for they do not labor alone, but assist the labors of man. Now it is not lawful for man to work on that day, Hence it is not lawful for the animals to work which man uses. But the commandment also has another purpose. For if God commands the exemption of cattle from labor on the Sabbath, still more imperative is the obligation to avoid all acts of inhumanity toward servants or others whose labor and industry we employ. 
The pastor should also not omit carefully to teach what works and actions Christians should perform on festival days. These are to go to church, and there, with heartfelt piety and devotion, to assist at the celebration of the holy sacrifice of the Mass, and to approach frequently the sacraments of the church instituted for our salvation in order to obtain a remedy for the wounds of the soul. Nothing can be more reasonable or salutary for Christians than frequent recourse to confession, and to this the pastor will be enabled to exhort the faithful by using the instructions and proofs which we have explained in their own place on the sacrament of penance. But not only should he urge his people to have recourse to that sacrament, he should also zealously exhort them again and again to approach frequently the holy sacrament of the Eucharist. The faithful should also listen with attention and reverence to sermons. Nothing is more intolerable, nothing more unworthy, than to despise the words of Christ or to hear them with indifference. Likewise, the faithful should give themselves to frequent prayer and the praises of God, and an object of their special attention should be to learn those things which pertain to a Christian life and to practice with care the duties of piety such as giving alms to the poor and needy, visiting the sick, and administering consolation to the sorrowful and afflicted. Religion, clean and undefiled before God and the Father, is this, says St. James, to visit the fatherless and widows in their tribulations. From what has been said, it is easy to perceive how this commandment may be violated. It is also the duty of the pastor to have ready at hand certain main arguments by which he may especially persuade the people to observe this commandment with all zeal and the greatest exactitude. To the attainment of this end, it will materially conduce, if the people understand and clearly see how just and reasonable it is, to devote certain days exclusively to the worship of God in order to acknowledge adore, and venerate our Lord from whom we have received such innumerable and inestimable blessings. Had he commanded us to offer him every day the tribute of religious worship, would it not be our duty, in return for his inestimable and infinite benefits towards us, to endeavor to obey the command with promptitude and alacrity? But now that the days consecrated to his worship are but few, there is no excuse for neglecting or reluctantly performing this duty which, moreover, obliges under grave sin. The pastor should next point out the excellence of this precept. Those who are faithful in its observance are admitted, as it were, into the divine presence to speak freely with God. For in prayer we contemplate the divine majesty and commune with Him. In hearing religious instruction we hear the voice of God, which reaches us through the agency of those who devoutly preach on divine things. And the holy sacrifice of the Mass, we adore Christ the Lord present on our altars. Such are the blessings which they preeminently enjoy who faithfully observe this commandment. But those who altogether neglect its fulfillment and resist God and His Church, they heed not God's command and are enemies of him and his holy laws, of which the easiness of the command is itself a proof. 
we should, it is true, be prepared to undergo the severest labor for the sake of God. But in this commandment he imposes on us no labor. He only commands us to rest and disengage ourselves from worldly cares on those days which are to be kept holy. To refuse obedience to this command is, therefore, a proof of extreme boldness and the punishments with which its infractions has been visited by God, as we learn from the book of Numbers, should be a warning to us. In order, therefore, to avoid offending God in this way, we should frequently ponder this word, remember, and should place before our minds the important advantages and blessings which, as we've already seen, flow from the religious observance of holy days, and also numerous other considerations of the same tendency, which the good and zealous pastor should develop at considerable length to his people as circumstances may require. The Fourth Commandment. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thou mayest be long lived upon the land which the Lord thy God will give thee. Relative importance of the preceding and the following commandments. The preceding commandments are supreme both in dignity and in importance, but those which follow rank next in order because of their necessity. For the first three tend directly to God, while the object of the others is the charity we owe to our neighbor, although even these are ultimately referred to God, since we love our neighbor on account of God, our last end. Hence Christ our Lord is declared that the two commandments which inculcate the love of God and of our neighbor are like unto each other. The advantages arising from the present subject can scarcely be expressed in words, for not only does it bring with it its own fruit, and that in the richest abundance and of superior excellence, but it also affords a test of our obedience to and the observance of the first commandment. He that loveth not his brother whom he seeth, says St. John, how can he love God whom he seeth not? In like manner, if we do not honor and reverence our parents, whom we ought to love next to God, and whom we continually see, how can we honor or reverence God, the supreme and best of parents, whom we see not? Hence we can easily perceive the similarity between these two commandments. The application of this commandment is of very great extent. Besides our natural parents, there are many others whose power, rank, usefulness, exalted functions or office entitle them to parental honor. Furthermore, this commandment lightens the labor of parents and superiors, for their chief care is that those under them should live according to virtue and the divine law. Now the performance of this duty will be considerably facilitated if it be known by all that highest honor to parents is an obligation, sanctioned and commanded by God. To impress the mind with this truth, it will be found useful to distinguish the commandments of the first from those of the second table. This distinction, therefore, the pastor should first explain. Let him begin by showing that the divine precepts of the Decalogue were written on two tables, one of which, in the opinion of the Holy Fathers, contained the three preceding, while the rest were given on the second table. This order of the commandments is especially appropriate, 
since the very collocation points out to us their difference in nature. For whatever is commanded or prohibited in Scripture by the divine law springs from one of two principles, the love of God or of our neighbor. One or the other of these is the basis of every duty required of us. The three preceding commandments teach us the love which we owe to God. The other seven, the duties which we owe to our neighbor and to public society. The arrangement, therefore, which assigns some of the commandments to the first and others to the second table is not without good reason. In the first three commandments, which have been explained, God, the supreme good, is, as it were, the subject matter. In the others, it is the good of our neighbor. The former require the highest love, the latter the love next to the highest. The former have to do with our last end, the latter with those things that lead us to our end. Again, the love of God terminates in God himself, for God is to be loved above all things for his own sake. But the love of our neighbor originates in and is to be regulated by the love of God. If we love our parents, obey our masters, respect our superiors, our ruling principle in doing so should be that God is their creator and wishes to give preeminence to those by whose cooperation he governs and protects other men. And as he requires that we yield a dutiful respect to such persons, we should do so because he deems them worthy of this honor. If, then, we honor our parents, the tribute is paid to God rather than to man. Accordingly, we read in St. Matthew concerning duty to superiors, He that receiveth you receiveth me. And the apostle in his epistle to the Ephesians, giving instructions to servants, says, Servants, be obedient to them that are your lords according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the simplicity of your heart as to Christ, not serving to the eye as it were pleasing men, but as the servants of Christ. Moreover, no honor, no piety, no devotion can be rendered to God sufficiently worthy of Him, since love of Him admits of infinite increase. Hence our charity should become every day more fervent towards Him, who commands us to love Him with our whole heart, our whole soul, and with all our strength. The love of our neighbor, on the contrary, has its limits, for the Lord commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. To outstep these limits by loving our neighbor as we love God would be an erroneous crime. If any man come to me, says the Lord, and hate not his father and mother, and wife and children, and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. In the same way, to one who would first attend the burial of his father and then follow Christ, it was said, Let the dead bury their dead. And the same lesson is more clearly conveyed in St. Matthew, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Parents, no doubt, are to be highly loved and respected, but religion requires that supreme honor and homage be given to him alone, who is the creator and father of all, and that all our love for our earthly parents be referred to our eternal Father who is in heaven. 
Should, however, the injunctions of parents be at any time opposed to the commandments of God, children are, of course, to prefer the will of God to the desires of their parents, always keeping in view the divine maxim, we ought to obey God rather than men. After these preliminaries, the pastor should explain the words of the commandment, beginning with honor. To honor is to think respectfully of anyone and to hold in the highest esteem all that relates to him. It includes love, respect, obedience, and reverence. Very properly, then, is the word honor used here in preference to the word fear or love, although parents are also to be much loved and feared. Respect and reverence are not always the accompaniments of love. Neither is love the inseparable companion of fear, but honor when proceeding from the heart, combines both fear and love. The pastor should next explain who they are, whom the commandment designates as fathers. For although the law refers primarily to our natural fathers, yet the name belongs to others also, and these seem to be indicated in the commandment as we can easily gather from numerous passages of Scripture. Besides our natural fathers, then, there are others who in Scripture are called fathers, as was said above, and to each of these proper honor is due. In the first place, the prelates of the church, her pastors and priests, are called fathers, as is evident from the apostle, who writing to the Corinthians says, I write not these things to confound you, but I admonish you as my dearest children. For if you have ten thousand instructors in Christ, yet not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, by the gospel, I have begotten you. It also is written in Ecclesiasticus, Let us praise men of renown and our fathers in their generation. Those who govern the state, to whom are entrusted power, magistracy, or command, are also called fathers. Thus Naaman was called father by his servants. The name Father is also applied to those whose care, fidelity, probity, and wisdom others are committed, such as teachers, instructors, masters, and guardians. Hence the sons of the prophets called Elias and Eliezer their father. Finally, aged men, advanced in years, we also call fathers. In his instructions, the pastor should chiefly emphasize the obligation of honoring all who are entitled to be called fathers, especially our natural fathers, of whom the divine commandment particularly speaks. They are, so to say, images of the immortal God. In them we behold a picture of our own origin. From them we have received existence. Them God made use of to infuse into us a soul and reason. By them we were led to the sacraments, instructed in our religion, schooled in right conduct and holiness, and trained in civil and human knowledge. The pastor should teach that the name Mother is mentioned in this commandment in order to remind us of her benefits and claims in our regard, of the care and solicitude with which she bore us, and of the pain and labor which, which she gave birth and brought us up. The honor which children are commanded to pay to their parents should be the spontaneous offering of sincere and dutiful love. 
this is nothing more than their due, since for love of us they shrink from no labor, no exertion, no danger. Their highest pleasure it is to feel that they are loved by their children, the dearest objects of their affection. Joseph, when he enjoyed in Egypt the highest station and the most ample power after the king himself, received with honor his father who had come into Egypt. Solomon rose to meet his mother as she approached, and having paid her respect, placed her on a royal throne on his right hand. We also owe to our parents other duties of respect, such as to supplicate God in their behalf, that they may lead prosperous and happy lives, beloved and esteemed by all who know them, and most pleasing in the sight of God and of the saints in heaven. We also honor them by submission to their wishes and inclinations. My son, says Solomon, hear the instruction of thy father, and forsake not the law of thy mother, that grace may be added to thy head, and a chain of gold to thy neck. Of the same kind are the exhortations of St. Paul. Children, he says, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is just. And also, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. This doctrine is confirmed by the example of the holiest men. Isaac, when bound for sacrifice by his father, meekly and uncomplainingly obeyed. And the Rechabites, not to depart from the counsel of their father, also abstained from wine. We also honor our parents by the imitation of their good example. For to seek to resemble closely anyone is the highest mark of esteem towards him. We also honor them when we not only ask, but also follow their advice. Again we honor our parents when we relieve their necessities, supplying them with necessary food and clothing according to these words of Christ, who, when reproving the impiety of the Pharisees, said, Why do you also transgress the commandments of God? because of your traditions. For God said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and he that shall curse father or mother, let him die the death. But you say, Whosoever shall say to his father or mother, The gift whatsoever proceedeth from me shall profit thee, and he shall not honor his father or his mother, and you have made void the commandment of God for your tradition. But if at all times it is our duty to honor our parents, this duty becomes still more imperative when they are visited by severe illness. We should then see to it that they do not neglect confession and the other sacraments which every Christian should receive at the approach of death. We should also see that pious and religious persons visit them frequently to strengthen their weakness, assist them by their counsel, and animate them to the hope of immortality, that having risen above the concerns of this world, they may fix their thoughts entirely on God. Thus, blessed with the sublime virtues of faith, hope, and charity, and fortified by the helps of religion, they will not only look at death without fear, since it is necessary, but will even welcome it as it hastens their entrance into eternity. Finally, we honor our parents even after their death by attending their funerals, procuring for them suitable obsequies and burial, 
having due suffrages and anniversary masses offered for them, and faithfully executing their last wills. We are bound to honor not only our natural parents, but also others who are called fathers, such as bishops and priests, kings, princes and magistrates, tutors, guardians and masters, teachers, aged persons and the like, all of whom are entitled, some in a greater, some in a lesser degree, to share our love, our obedience, and our assistance. Of bishops and other pastors it is written, Let the priests that rule well be esteemed worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. What wondrous proofs of love for the apostle must the Galatians have shown! For he bears this splendid testimony of their benevolence. I bear you witness that if it could be done, you would have plucked out your own eyes and would have given them to me. The priest is also entitled to receive whatever is necessary for his support. Who, says the apostle, serveth as a soldier at his own charges? Give honor to the priests, it is written in Ecclesiasticus, and purify yourself with thy arms. Give them their portion, as it is commanded thee, of the first fruits and of purifications. The apostle also teaches that they are entitled to obedience. Obey your prelates and be subject to them, for they watch as being to render an account of your souls. Nay, more, Christ the Lord commands obedience even to wicked pastors. Upon the chair of Moses have sitten the scribes and Pharisees. All thing, therefore, whatsoever they shall say to you, observe and do, but according to their works do ye not, for they say and do not. The same is to be said of civil rulers, governors, magistrates, and others to whose authority we are subject. The apostle, in his epistle to the Romans, explains at length the honor, respect, and obedience that should be shown them, and he also bids us to pray for them. St. Peter says, Be ye subject, therefore, to every human creature for God's sake, whether it be to the king as excelling, or to governors as sent by him. For whatever honor we show them is given to God, since exalted human dignity deserves respect because it is an image of the divine power, and in it we revere the providence of God who has entrusted to men the care of public affairs, and who uses them as the instruments of his power. If we sometimes have wicked and unworthy officials, it is not their faults that we revere, but the authority from God which they possess. Indeed, while it may seem strange, we are not excused from highly honoring them even when they show themselves hostile and implacable towards us. Thus David rendered great services to Saul, even when the latter was his bitter foe. And to this he alludes when he says, With them that hated peace, I was peaceable. However, should their commands be wicked or unjust, they should not be obeyed, since in such a case they rule not according to their rightful authority, but according to injustice and perversity. Having explained the above matters, the pastor should next consider the reward promised to the observance of this commandment and its appropriateness. That reward is great indeed, 
for it consists principally in length of days. They who always preserve the grateful remembrance of a benefit deserve to be blessed with its prolonged enjoyment. Children, therefore, who honor their parents and gratefully acknowledge the blessing of life received from them are deservedly rewarded with the protracted enjoyment of that life to an advanced age. Let us continue with the fourth commandment of honor thy father and thy mother on side B of this tape. We continue now with the Catechism of the Council of Trent and the chapter on the Fourth Commandment, that thou mayest be long lived, the reward promised for observance of this commandment. The nature of the divine promise also demands distinct explanation. It includes not only the eternal life of the blessed, but also the life which we lead on earth, according to the interpretation of St. Paul. Piety is profitable to all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Many very holy men, it is true, such as Job, David, Paul, desired to die, and a long life is burdensome to the afflicted and wretched. But the reward which is here promised is notwithstanding neither inconsiderable nor to be despised. The additional words which the Lord thy God will give thee promise not only length of days, but also repose, tranquility, and security to live well. For in Deuteronomy it is not only said that thou mayest live a long time, but it is also added, and that it may be well with thee, words afterwards quoted by the Apostle. These blessings, we say, are conferred on those whose piety God rewards. Otherwise the divine promises would not be fulfilled, since the more dutiful child is sometimes the more short-lived. Now this happens sometimes because it is better for him to depart from this world before he has strayed from the path of virtue and of duty. For he was taken away, lest wickedness should alter his understanding, or deceit beguile his soul. Or, because destruction and general upheaval are impending, he is called away, that he may escape the calamities of the times. The just man, says the prophet, is taken away from before the face of evil, lest his virtue and salvation be endangered when God avenges the crimes of men. Or else he is spared the bitter anguish of witnessing the calamities of his friends and relations in such evil days. The premature death of the good, therefore, gives special reason for fear. But if God promises rewards and blessings to grateful children, he also reserves the heaviest chastisements to punish those who are wanting in filial piety. For it is written, He that curseth his father or mother shall die the death. He that afflicteth his father and chaseth away his mother is infamous and unhappy. He that curseth his father and mother, his lamp shall be put out in the midst of darkness. The eye that mocketh at his father, and that despiseth the labor of his mother in bearing him, let the ravens of the brooks pick it out, and the young eagles eat it. There are on record many instances of undutiful children who were made the signal objects of the divine vengeance, 
the disobedience of Absalom to his father David did not go unpunished. On account of his sin, he perished miserably, transfixed by three lances. Of those who resist the priest it is written, He that will be proud, and refuse to obey the commandment of the priest, who ministereth at that time to the Lord thy God, by the decree of judge that man shall die. As the law of God commands children to honor, obey, and respect their parents, so are there reciprocal duties which parents owe to their children. Parents are obliged to bring up their children in the knowledge and practice of religion, and to give them the best rules for the regulation of their lives, so that instructed and trained in religion they may serve God holily and constantly. It was thus, as we read, that the parents of Susanna acted. The priest, therefore, should admonish parents to be to their children guides in the virtues of justice, chastity, modesty, and holiness. He should also admonish them to guard particularly against three things in which they but too often transgress. In the first place, they are not by words or actions to exercise too much harshness towards their children. This is the instruction of St. Paul in his epistle to the Colossians. Fathers, he says, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. For there is danger that the spirit of the child may be broken, and he become abject and fearful of everything. Hence the pastor should require parents to avoid too much severity, and to chose rather to correct their children than to revenge themselves upon them. Should a fault be committed which requires reproof and chastisement, the parent should not, on the other hand, by undue indulgence, overlook its correction. Children are often spoiled by too much lenity and indulgence on the part of their parents. The pastor, therefore, should deter from such excessive mildness by the warning example of Heli, the high priest, who on account of overindulgence to his sons was visited with the heaviest chastisements. Finally, to avoid what is most shameful in the instruction and education of children, let them not propose to themselves aims that are unworthy. Many there are whose sole concern is to leave their children wealth, riches, and an ample and splendid fortune, who encourage them not to piety and religion, or to honorable employment, but to avarice and an increase of wealth, and who provided their children are rich and wealthy are regardless of their good name and eternal salvation. Can anything more shameful be thought or expressed? Of such parents it is true to say that instead of bequeathing wealth to their children, they leave them rather their own wickedness and crimes for an inheritance, and instead of conducting them to heaven, lead them to the eternal torments of hell. The priest should therefore impress on the minds of parents salutary principles, and should exhort them to imitate the virtuous example of Tobias, that having properly trained up their children to the service of God and to holiness of life, they may in turn experience at their hands abundant fruit of filial affection, respect, and obedience. The Fifth Commandment, Thou shalt not kill. 
Importance of Instruction on This Commandment The great happiness proposed to the peacemakers of being called the children of God should prove a powerful incentive to the pastor to explain to the faithful, with care and accuracy, the obligations imposed by this commandment. No means more efficacious can be adopted to promote peace among mankind than the proper explanation of this commandment and its holy and due observance by all. Then might we hope that men, united in the strictest bonds of union, would live in perfect peace and concord. The necessity of explaining this commandment is proved from the following. Immediately after the earth was overwhelmed in universal deluge, this was the first prohibition made by God to man. I will require the blood of your lives, he said, at the hand of every beast and at the hand of man. In the next place, among the precepts of the old law expounded by our Lord, this commandment was mentioned first by him, concerning which it is written in the Gospel of St. Matthew. It has been said, Thou shalt not kill. The faithful on their part should hear with willing attention the explanation of this commandment, since its purpose is to protect the life of each one. These words, Thou shalt not kill, emphatically forbid homicide. And they should be heard by all with the same pleasure as if God, expressly naming each individual, were to prohibit injury to be offered him under a threat of divine anger and the heaviest chastisements. As then the announcement of this commandment must be heard with pleasure, so also should the avoidance of the sin which it forbids give pleasure. In the explanation of this commandment, the Lord points out its twofold obligation. The one is prohibitory and forbids us to kill. The other is mandatory and commands us to cherish sentiments of charity, concord, and friendship towards our enemies, to have peace with all men, and finally to endure with patience every inconvenience. The prohibitory part of this commandment. With regard to the prohibitory part, it should first be taught what kinds of killing are not forbidden by this commandment. It is not prohibited to kill animals. For if God permits man to eat them, it is also lawful to kill them. When, since St. Augustine, we hear the words, Thou shalt not kill, we do not understand this of the fruits of the earth, which are insensible, nor of irrational animals, which form no part of human society. Another kind of lawful slaying belongs to the civil authorities, to whom is entrusted power of life and death by the legal and judicious exercise of which they punish the guilty and protect the innocent. The just use of this power, far from involving the crime of murder, is an act of paramount obedience to this commandment which prohibits murder. The end of the commandment is the preservation and security of human life. Now the punishments inflicted by the civil authority, which is the legitimate avenger of crime, naturally tend to this end since they give security to life by repressing outrage and violence. Hence these words of David, In the morning I put to death all the wicked of the land, that I might cut off all the workers of iniquity from the city of the Lord. In like manner, 
The soldier is guiltless, who actuated not by motives of ambition or cruelty, but by a pure desire of serving the interests of his country, takes away the life of an enemy in a just war. Furthermore, there are on record instances of carnage executed by the special command of God. The sons of Levi, who put to death so many thousands in one day, were guilty of no sin. When the slaughter had ceased, they were addressed by Moses in these words, You have consecrated your hands this day to the Lord. Again, death caused not by intent or design, but by accident, is not murder. He that killeth his neighbor ignorantly, says the book of Deuteronomy, and who is proved to have had no hatred against him yesterday and the day before, but to have gone with him to the wood to hew wood, and in cutting down the tree the axe slipped out of his hand, and the iron slipping from the handle struck his friend and killed him, shall live. Such accidental deaths, because inflicted without intent or design, involve no guilt whatever. And this is confirmed by the words of St. Augustine, God forbid that what we do for a good and lawful end shall be imputed to us, if contrary to our intention, evil thereby befall anyone. There are, however, two cases in which guilt attaches to accidental death. The first case is when death results from an unlawful act, when, for instance, a person kicks or strikes a woman in a state of pregnancy and abortion follows. The consequence, it is true, may not have been intended, but this does not exculpate the offender because the act of striking a pregnant woman in itself is unlawful. The other case is when death is caused by negligence, carelessness, or want of due precaution. If a man killed another in self-defense, having used every means consistent with his own safety to avoid the infliction of death, he evidently does not violate this commandment. The above are the cases in which life may be taken without violating this commandment, and with these exceptions all other killing is forbidden, whether we consider the person who kills, the person killed, or the means used to kill. As to the person who kills, the commandment recognizes no exception whatever, be he rich or powerful, master or parent. All without exception or distinction are forbidden to kill. With regard to the person killed, the law extends to all. There is no individual, however humble or lowly his condition, whose life is not shielded by this law. It also forbids suicide. No man possesses such power over his own life as to be at liberty to put himself to death. Hence, we find that the commandment does not say, Thou shalt not kill another, but simply, Thou shalt not kill. Finally, if we consider the numerous means by which murder may be committed, the law admits of no exception. Not only does it forbid to take away the life of another by laying violent hands on him, by means of a sword, a stone, a stick, a halter, or by administering poison, but also strictly prohibits the accomplishment of the death of another by counsel, assistance, help, or any other means whatever. 
The Jews, with singular dullness of apprehension, thought that to abstain from taking life with their own hands was enough to satisfy the obligation imposed by this commandment. But the Christian, instructed in the interpretation of Christ, has learned that the precept is spiritual, and that it commands us not only to keep our hands unstained, but our hearts pure and undefiled. Hence, what the Jews regarded as quite sufficient is not sufficient at all. For the gospel has taught that it is unlawful even to be angry with anyone. But I say to you that whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. From these words it clearly follows that he who is angry with his brother is not free from sin, even though he conceals his resentment, that he who gives indication of his wrath sins grievously, and that he who does not hesitate to treat another with harshness and to utter contumelious approaches against him sins still more grievously. This, however, is to be understood of cases in which no just cause of anger exists. God and His laws permit us to be angry when we chastise the faults of those who are subject to us. For the anger of a Christian should spring from the Holy Spirit and not from carnal impulse, seeing that we should be temples of the Holy Ghost in which Jesus Christ may dwell. Our Lord has left us many other lessons of instruction with regard to the perfect observance of this law, such as not to resist evil, but if one strike thee on thy right cheek, turn to him also the other. And if a man will contend with thee in judgment, and take away thy coat, let go thy cloak also unto him. And whosoever will force thee one mile, go with him too. From what has been said, it is easy to see how inclined man is to those sins which are prohibited by this commandment, and how many are guilty of murder, if not in fact, at least in desire. As then the sacred scriptures prescribe remedies for so dangerous a disease, the pastor should spare no pains in making them known to the faithful. Of these remedies, the most efficacious is to form a just conception of the wickedness of murder. The enormity of this sin is manifest from many and weighty passages of Holy Scripture. So much does God abominate homicide that he declares in holy writ that of the very beast of the field he will exact vengeance for the life of man, commanding the beast that injures man to be put to death. And if the Almighty commanded man to have a horror of blood, he did so for no other reason than to impress on his mind the obligation of entirely refraining both in act and desire from the enormity of homicide. The murderer is the worst enemy of his species, and consequently of nature. To the utmost of his power he destroys the universal work of God by the destruction of man, since God declares that he created all things for man's sake. Nay, as it is forbidden in Genesis to take human life, because God created man to his own image and likeness, he who makes away with God's image offers a great injury to God, and almost seems to lay violent hands on God himself. 
David, thinking of this with a mind divinely illumined, complained bitterly of the bloodthirsty in these words, Their feet are swift to shed blood. He does not simply say, They kill, but they shed blood, words which serve to mark the enormity of that execrable crime and to denote the barbarous cruelty of the murderer. With a view also to describe in particular how the murderer is precipitated by the impulse of the devil into the commission of such a crime, he says, their feet are swift. Now the positive part of this commandment. The mandatory part of this commandment, as Christ our Lord enjoins, requires that we have peace with all men. Interpreting the commandment, he says, If therefore thou offer thy gift at the altar, and there thou remember that thy brother hath anything against thee, leave there thy offering before the altar, and go first to be reconciled to thy brother, and then coming thou shalt offer thy gift. In explaining this admonition, the pastor should show that it inculcates the duty of charity towards all without exception. In his instruction on the precept, he should exhort the faithful as much as possible to the practice of this virtue, since it is especially included in this precept. For since hatred is clearly forbidden by this commandment, as whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, it follows as an evident consequence that the commandment also inculcates charity and love. And since the commandment inculcates charity and love, it must also enjoin all those duties and good offices which follow in their train. Charity is patient, says St. Paul. We are therefore commanded patience, in which, as the Redeemer teaches, we shall possess our souls. Charity is kind, Beneficence is therefore the friend and companion of charity. The virtue of beneficence and kindness has a great range. Its principal offices are to relieve the wants of the poor, to feed the hungry, to give drink to the thirsty, to clothe the naked. And in all these acts of beneficence we should proportion our liberality to the wants and necessities of those we help. These works of beneficence and goodness in themselves exalted become still more illustrious when done towards an enemy. For our Savior says, Love your enemies, do good to them that hate you. Which also the Apostle enjoins in these words, If thine enemy be hungry, give him to eat. If he thirst, give him to drink. For doing this thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome by evil, but overcome evil by good. Finally, when we consider the law of charity, which is kind, we shall be convinced that to practice the good offices of mildness, clemency, and other kindred virtues is a duty prescribed by that law. But the most important duty of all, and that which is the fullest expression of charity, and to the practice of which we should most habituate ourselves, is to pardon and forgive from the heart the injuries which we may have received from others. The sacred scriptures, as we've already observed, frequently admonish and exhort us to a full compliance with this duty. Not only do they pronounce blessed those who do this, but they also declare that God grants pardon to those who really fulfill this duty, while he refuses pardon to those who neglect it or 
refuse to obey it. As the desire of revenge is most natural to man, it becomes necessary for the pastor to exert his utmost diligence not only to instruct, but also earnestly to persuade the faithful that a Christian should forgive and forget injuries. And as this is a duty frequently inculcated by sacred writers, he should consult them on the subject in order to be able to subdue the pertinency of those whose minds are obstinately bent on revenge. And he should have ready the forcible and appropriate arguments which those fathers piously employed. The three following considerations, however, demand particular exposition. First, he who thinks himself injured ought, above all, to be persuaded that the man on whom he desires to be revenged was not the principal cause of the loss or injury. Thus, that admirable man, Job, when violently injured by the Sabians, the Chaldeans, and by Satan, took no account of these, but as a righteous and very holy man exclaimed with no less truth than piety, the Lord gave the Lord hath taken away. The words and the example of that man of patience should therefore convince Christians, and the conviction is most just, that whatever chastisements we endure in this life come from the hand of God, the Father and Author of all justice and mercy. He chastises us not as enemies, but in His infinite goodness corrects us as children. To view the matter in its true light men in these cases are nothing more than the ministers and agents of God. One man, it is true, may cherish the worst feelings towards another. He may harbor the most malignant hatred against him. But without the permission of God, he can do him no injury. This is why Joseph was able patiently to endure the wicked counsels of his brethren, and David the injuries inflicted on him by Semi. Here also applies an argument which St. Chrysostom has ably and learnedly handled. It is that no man is injured but by himself. Let the man who considers himself injured by another consider the matter in the right way, and he will certainly find that he has received no injury or loss from others. For although he may have experienced injury from external causes, he is himself his greatest enemy by wickedly staining his soul with hatred, malevolence, and envy. The second consideration is that there are two advantages which are the special rewards of those who, influenced by a holy desire to please God, freely forgive injuries. In the first place, God has promised that he who forgives shall himself obtain forgiveness of sins, a promise which clearly shows how acceptable to God is this duty of piety. In the next place, the forgiveness of injuries ennobles and perfects our nature, for by it man is in some degree made like to God, who maketh his sun to shine on the good and the bad, and reigneth upon the just and the unjust. Finally, the disadvantages which arise from the refusal to pardon others are to be explained. The pastor, therefore, should place before the eyes of the unforgiving man that hatred is not only a grievous sin, but also that the longer it's indulged, the more deeply rooted it becomes. The man of whose heart this passion has once taken possession thirsts for the blood of his enemy. Filled with the hope of revenge, 
He will spend his days and nights brooding over some evil design so that his mind seems never to rest from malignant projects or even from thoughts of blood. Thus it follows that never, or at least not without extreme difficulty, can he be induced generously to pardon an offense or even to mitigate his hostility. Justly, therefore, is hatred compared to a wound in which the weapon remains firmly embedded. Moreover, there are many evil consequences and sins which are linked together with this one sin of hatred. Hence these words of St. John, He that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because the darkness hath blinded his eyes. He must therefore frequently fall, for how can anyone view in a favorable light the words or action of him who he hates? Hence arise rash and unjust judgments, anger, envy, detractions, and other evils of the same sort, in which are often involved those who are connected by ties of friendship or blood. And thus does it frequently happen that this one sin is the prolific source of many. Not without good reason is hatred called the sin of the devil. The devil was a murderer from the beginning, and hence our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, when the Pharisees sought his life, said that they were begotten of their father, the devil. Besides the reasons already adduced, which afford good grounds for detesting this sin, other and most suitable remedies are prescribed in the pages of Holy Writ. Of these remedies, the first and greatest is the example of the Redeemer, which we should set before our eyes as a model for imitation. For he, in whom even suspicion of fault could not be found, when scourged with rods, crowned with thorns, and finally nailed to a cross, uttered that most charitable prayer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And as the apostle testifies, the sprinkling of his blood speaketh better than Abel. Another remedy prescribed by Ecclesiasticus is to call to mind death and judgment. Remember thy last end, and thou shalt never sin. As if he had said, Reflect frequently and again and again that thou must soon die, and since at death there will be nothing you desire or need more than great mercy from God, that now you should keep that mercy always before your mind. Thus the cruel desire for revenge will be extinguished, for you can discover no means better adapted, none more efficacious to obtain the mercy of God than the forgiveness of injuries and love towards those who in word or deed may have injured you or yours. The Sixth Commandment, Thou shalt not commit adultery. The position of this commandment in the Decalogue is most suitable. The bond between man and wife is one of the closest, and nothing can be more gratifying to both than to know that they are objects of mutual and special affection. On the other hand, nothing inflicts deeper anguish than to feel that the legitimate love which one owes the other has been transferred elsewhere. Rightly then, and in its natural order, is the commandment which protects human life against the hand of the murderer, followed by that which forbids adultery, 
and which aims to prevent anyone from injuring or destroying by such a crime the holy and honorable union of marriage, a union which is generally the source of ardent affection and love. In the explanation of this commandment, however, the pastor has need of great caution and prudence, and should treat with great delicacy a subject which requires brevity rather than copiousness of exposition. For it is to be feared that if he explained in too great detail, or at length, the ways in which this commandment is violated, he might unintentionally speak of subjects which, instead of extinguishing, usually serve rather to inflame corrupt passion. As, however, the precept contains many things which cannot be passed over in silence, the pastor should explain them in their proper order and place. This commandment, then, resolves itself into two heads, the one expressed, which prohibits adultery, the other implied, which inculcates purity of mind and body. What this commandment prohibits. To begin with, the prohibitory part of the commandment, adultery is the defilement of the marriage bed, whether it be one's own or another. If a married man have intercourse with an unmarried woman, he violates the integrity of his marriage bed. And if an unmarried man have intercourse with a married woman, he defiles the sanctity of the marriage bed of another. But that very species of immodesty and impurity are included in this prohibition of adultery is proved by the testimonies of St. Augustine and St. Ambrose, and that such is the meaning of the commandment is borne out by the Old as well as the New Testament. In the writings of Moses, besides adultery, other sins against chastity are said to have been punished. Thus the book of Genesis records the judgment of Judah against his daughter-in-law. In Deuteronomy is found the excellent law of Moses that there should be no harlot amongst the daughters of Israel. Take heed to keep thyself, my son, from all fornication, is the exhortation of Tobias to his son. And in Ecclesiasticus we read, Be ashamed of looking upon a harlot. In the Gospel, too, Christ the Lord says, From the heart come forth adulteries and fornications which defile a man. The Apostle Paul expresses his detestation of this crime frequently and in the strongest terms. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. Fly fornication, keep not company with fornicators. Fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness, let it not so much as be named among you. Neither fornicators nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor sodomites shall possess the kingdom of God. But the reason why adultery is expressly forbidden is because in addition to the turpitude which it shares with other kinds of incontinence, it adds the sin of injustice, not only against our neighbor, but also against civil society. Again, it is certain that he who abstains not from other sins against chastity will easily fall into the crime of adultery. By the prohibition of adultery, therefore, we at once see that every sort of immodesty and impurity by which the body is defiled is prohibited. Nay, that every inward thought against chastity is forbidden by this commandment is clear, 
as well from the very force of the law, which is evidently spiritual, as also from these words of Christ the Lord. You have heard that it was said to them of old, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you that whosoever shall look on a woman to lust after her hath already committed adultery with her in his heart. These are the points which we have deemed proper matter for public instruction of the faithful. The pastor, however, should add the decrees of the Council of Trent against adulterers and those who keep harlots and concubines, omitting many other species of immodesty and lust, of which each individual is to be admonished privately, as circumstances of time and person may require. What this commandment prescribes. We now come to explain the positive part of the precept. The faithful are to be taught and earnestly exhorted to cultivate continence and chastity with all care, to cleanse themselves from all defilement of the flesh and of the spirit, perfecting sanctification in the fear of God. First of all, they should be taught that although the virtue of chastity shines with a brighter luster in those who make the holy and religious vow of virginity, nevertheless, it is a virtue which belongs also to those who lead a life of celibacy, or who in the married state preserve themselves pure and undefiled from unlawful desire. The holy fathers have taught us many means whereby to subdue the passions and to restrain sinful pleasure. The pastor, therefore, should make it his study to explain these accurately to the faithful, and should use the most utmost diligence in their exposition. Of these means some are reflections, others are active measures. The first kind consists chiefly in our forming a just conception of the filthiness and evil of this sin, for such knowledge will lead one more easily to detest it. Now the evil of this crime we may learn from the fact that on account of it man is banished and excluded from the kingdom of God, which is the greatest of all evils. The above-mentioned calamity is indeed common to every mortal sin. But what is peculiar to this sin is that fornicators are said to sin against their own bodies, according to the words of the Apostle. Fly fornication. Every sin that a man doth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. The reason is that such a one does an injury to his own body by violating its sanctity. Hence, St. Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles that know not God. Furthermore, what is still more criminal, the Christian who shamefully sins with a harlot makes the members of Christ the members of an harlot, according to these words of St. Paul. Know you not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. Or know you not that he who is joined to a harlot is made one body? Moreover, a Christian, as St. Paul testifies, is the temple of the Holy Ghost, and to violate this temple is nothing else than to expel the Holy Ghost. 
But the crime of adultery involves that of grievous injustice. If, as the apostle says, they who are joined in wedlock are so subject to each other that neither has power or right over his or her body, but both are bound, as it were, by a mutual bond of subjection, the husband to accommodate himself to the will of the wife, the wife to the will of the husband, most certainly, if either disassociate his or her person, which is the right of the other, from him or her to whom it is bound, the offender is guilty of an act of great injustice and wickedness. As dread of disgrace strongly stimulates to the performance of duty and deters from the commission of crime, the pastor should also teach that adultery brands its guilty perpetrators with an unusual stigma. He that is an adulterer, says Scripture, for the folly of his heart shall destroy his own soul. He gathereth to himself shame and dishonor, and his reproach shall not be blotted out. The grievousness of the sin of adultery may be easily inferred from the severity of the punishment. According to the law promulgated by God in the Old Testament, the adulterer was stoned to death. Nay, more because of the criminal passion of one man, not only the perpetrator of the crime, but a whole city was destroyed, as we read with regard to the Sycamites. The sacred scripture abound with examples of the divine vengeance, such as the destruction of Sodom and of the neighboring cities, the punishment of the Israelites who committed fornication in the wilderness with the daughters of Moab, and the slaughter of the Benjamites. These examples the pastor can easily make use of to deter men from shameful lust. Let us continue on the Sixth Commandment in the Catechism of the Council of Trent on the next tape. We continue now with the Catechism of the Council of Trent and the chapter on the Sixth Commandment, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Impurity blinds the mind and hardens the heart. But even though the adulterer may escape the punishment of death, he does not escape the great pains and torments that often overtake such sins as his. He becomes afflicted with blindness of mind, a most severe punishment. He is lost to all regard for God, for reputation, for honor, for family, and even for life. And thus, utterly abandoned and worthless, he is undeserving of confidence in any matter of moment and becomes unfitted to discharge any kind of duty. Of this, we find examples in the persons of David and of Solomon. David had no sooner fallen into the crime of adultery than he degenerated into a character the very reverse of what he had been before. From the mildest of men he became so cruel as to consign to death Urias, one of his most deserving subjects. Solomon, having abandoned himself to the lust of women, gave up the true religion to follow strange gods. This sin, therefore, as Osi observes, takes away man's heart and often blinds his understanding. The Means of Practicing Purity We now come to the remedies which consist in action. The first is studiously to avoid idleness, for according to Ezekiel, it was by yielding to the enervating influence of idleness that the Sodomites plunged into the most shameful crime of criminal lust. In the next place, 
intemperance is carefully to be avoided. I fed them to the full, says the prophet, and they committed adultery. An overloaded stomach begets impurity. This our Lord intimates in these words, Take heed to yourselves, lest perhaps your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness. Be not drunk with wine, says the apostle, wherein is luxury. But the eyes in particular are the inlets to criminal passion, and to this refer these words of our Lord. If thine eye scandalize thee, pluck it out, and cast it from thee. The prophets also frequently speak to the same effect. I made a covenant with mine eyes, says Job, that I would not so much as think upon a virgin. Finally, there are on record innumerable examples of the evils which have their origin in the indulgence of the eyes. It was thus that David sinned, thus that the king of Sikkim fell, and thus also that the elders sinned who calumnated Susanna. Too much display in dress, which especially attracts the eye, is but too frequently an occasion of sin. Hence the admonition of Ecclesiasticus, Turn away thy face from a woman dressed up. As women are given to excessive fondness for dress, it will not be unseasonable in the pastor to give some attention to the subject, and sometimes to admonish and reprove them in the impressive words of the Apostle Peter whose adorning let it not be the outward plating of the hair, or the wearing of gold, or the putting on of apparel. St. Paul likewise says, Not with plated hair, or gold, or pearls, or costly attire. Many women adorned with gold and precious stones have lost the only true ornament of their soul and body. Next to the sexual excitement, usually provoked by too studied and elegant of dress, follows another, which is indecent and obscene conversation. Obscene language is a torch which lights up the worst passions of the young mind. And the apostle has said that evil communications corrupt good manners. Immodest and passionate songs and dances are most productive of this same effect, and are therefore cautiously to be avoided. In the same class are to be numbered soft and obscene books, which must be avoided no less than indecent pictures. All such things possess a fatal influence in exciting to unlawful attractions and in inflaming the mind of youth. In these matters the pastor should take special pains to see that the faithful most carefully observe the pious and prudent regulations of the Council of Trent. If the occasions of sin which we've just enumerated be carefully avoided, almost every excitement to lust will be removed. But the most efficacious means for subduing its violence are frequent use of confession and communion, as also unceasing and devout prayer to God accompanied by fasting and alms deeds. Chastity is a gift of God. To those who ask it aright, he does not deny it, nor does he suffer us to be tempted beyond our strength. But the body is to be mortified, and the sensual appetites to be repressed, not only by fasting, and particularly by the fasts instituted by the church, but also by watching, pious pilgrimages, and other works of austerity. 
By these and similar observances is the virtue of temperance chiefly manifested. In connection with this subject, St. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, Every one that striveth for the mastery refraineth himself from all things, and they indeed that they may receive a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible one. A little after, he says, I chastise my body and bring it into subjection, lest perhaps when I have preached to others I myself should become a castaway. And in another place he says, Make not provision for the flesh in its concupiscence. The seventh commandment, Thou shalt not steal. Importance of instruction on this commandment. In the early ages of the church, it was customary to impress on the minds of hearers the nature and force of this commandment. This we learn from the reproof uttered by the apostle against some who were most earnest in deterring others from vices in which they themselves were found freely to indulge. Thou therefore that teachest another, teachest not thyself. Thou that preachest that men should not steal, stealest. The salutary effect of the, such instructions were not only to correct a vice that very prevalent then, but also to repress quarrels, litigation, and other evils which generally grow out of theft. Since in these our days men are unhappily addicted to the same vices, with their consequent misfortunes and evils, the pastor, following the example of the holy fathers and doctors, should strongly insist on this point and explain with diligent care the force and meaning of this commandment. In the first place, the pastor should exercise care and industry in declaring the infinite love of God for man. Not satisfied with having fenced round, so to say, our lives, our persons, and our reputation by means of the two commandments, Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, God defends and places a guard over our property and possessions, by adding the prohibition, Thou shalt not steal. These words can have no other meaning than that which we indicated above when speaking of the other commandments. They declare that God forbids our worldly goods, which are placed under His protection, to be taken away or injured by anyone. Our gratitude to God, the author of this law, should be in proportion to the greatness of the benefit the law confers upon us. Now, since the truest test of gratitude and the best means of returning thanks consists not only in lending a willing ear to his precepts, but also in obeying them, the faithful are to be animated and encouraged to an observance of this commandment. Like the preceding commandments, this one also is divided into two parts. The first, which prohibits theft, is mentioned expressly, while the spirit and the force of the second, which enforces kindliness and liberality towards our neighbor, are implied in the first part. The negative part of this commandment. We shall begin with the prohibitory part of the commandment, Thou shalt not steal. It is to be observed that by the word steal is understood not only the taking away of anything from its rightful owner, privately and without his consent, but also the possession of that which belongs to another, contrary to the will, although not without the knowledge of the true owner. 
else we are prepared to say that he who prohibits theft does not also prohibit robbery, which is accomplished by violence and injustice. Whereas, according to St. Paul, extortioners shall not possess the kingdom of God, and their very company and ways should be shunned, as the same apostle writes. But though robbery is a greater sin than theft, inasmuch as it not only deprives another of his property, but also offers violence and insult to him, yet it cannot be a matter of surprise that the divine prohibition is expressed under the milder word, steal, instead of rob. There was good reason for this, since theft is more general and of wider extent than robbery, a crime which only they can commit who are superior to their neighbor in brute force and power. Furthermore, it is obvious that when lesser crimes are forbidden, greater enormities of the same sort are also prohibited. The unjust possession and use of what belongs to another are expressed by different names according to the diversity of the objects taken without the consent and knowledge of the owners. To take any private property from a private individual is called theft. From the public, peculation. To enslave a free man or appropriate the slave of another is called man-stealing. To steal anything sacred is called sacrilege. A crime most enormous and sinful yet so common in our days that what piety and wisdom had set aside for the necessary expenses of divine worship, for the support of the ministers of religion, and the use of the poor, is employed in satisfying individual avarice and the worst passions. But besides actual theft, that is, the outward commission, the will and desire are also forbidden by the law of God. The law is spiritual and concerns the soul, the source of our thoughts and designs. From the heart, says our Lord in St. Matthew, come forth evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false testimonies. The grievousness of the sin of theft is sufficiently seen by the light of natural reason alone, for it is a violation of justice which gives to every man his own. The distribution and allotment of property, fixed from the beginning by the law of nations and confirmed by human and divine laws, must be considered as inviolable, and each one must be allowed secure possession of what justly belongs to him, unless we wish to overthrow the human society. Hence, these words of the Apostle, Neither thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor railers, nor extortioners shall possess the kingdom of God. The long train of evils which this sin entails are a proof at once of its mischievousness and enormity. It gives rise to hasty and rash judgments, engenders hatred, originates enmities, and sometimes subjects the innocent to cruel condemnation. What shall we say of the necessity imposed by God on all of satisfying for the injury done? Without restitution, says St. Augustine, the sin is not forgiven. The difficulty of making such restitution on the part of those who have been in the habit of enriching themselves with their neighbor's property, we may learn not only from personal observation and reflection, but also from the testimony of the prophet Habakkuk. Woe to him 
that heapeth together what is not his own? How long also doth he load himself with thick clay? The possession of another man's property he calls thick clay because it is difficult to emerge and extricate oneself from ill-gotten goods. There are so many kinds of stealing that it is most difficult to enumerate them all, but since the others can be reduced to theft and robbery, it will be sufficient to speak of these two. To inspire the faithful with a detestation of such grievous crimes, and to deter them from their commission, the pastor should use all care and diligence. Now let us consider these two kinds of stealing. They are guilty of theft, who buy stolen goods, or retain the property of others, whether found, seized, or pilfered. If you have found and not restored, says St. Augustine, you have stolen. If the true owner cannot, however, be discovered, whatever is found should go to the poor. If the finder refuse to make restitution, he gives evident proof that were it in his power, he would make no scruple of stealing all that he could lay his hands on. Those who in buying or selling have recourse to fraud and lying involve themselves in the same guilt. The Lord will avenge their trickery. Those who sell bad and adulterated goods as real and genuine, or who defraud the purchasers by weight, measure, number, or rule, are guilty of a species of theft still more criminal and unjust. It is written in Deuteronomy, Thou shalt not have diverse weights in thy bag. Do not any unjust thing, says Leviticus, in judgment, in rule, in weight, or in measure. Let the balance be just, and the weights equal, the bushel just, and the sextory equal. And elsewhere it is written, Diverse weights are an abomination before the Lord. A deceitful balance is not good. It is also a downright theft when laborers and artisans exact full wages from those to whom they have not given just and due labor. Again, dishonest servants and agents are no better than thieves. Nay, they are more detestable than other thieves. Against these everything may be locked, while against a pilfering servant nothing in the house can be secure by bolt or lock. They also, who obtain money under pretense of poverty, or by deceitful words, may be said to steal, and their guilt is aggravated since they add falsehood to theft. Persons charged with offices of public or private trust, who altogether neglect or but indifferently perform their duties, while they enjoy the salary and emoluments of such offices, are also to be reckoned in the number of thieves. To enumerate the various other modes of theft, invented by ingenuity of avarice, which is versed in all arts of making money, would be tedious and, as already said, a most difficult task. The pastor, therefore, should next come to treat of robbery, which is the second general division of these crimes. First, he should admonish the Christian people to bear in mind the teaching of the Apostle. They that will become rich fall into temptation and the snare of the devil, and never to forget the rule. All things whatsoever you will that men do to you, do you also to them. And always to bear in mind the words of Tobias, See thou never do to another what thou wouldst hate to have done to thee by another.
Robbery is more comprehensive than theft. Those who pay not the laborer his hire are guilty of robbery, and are exhorted to repentance by St. James in these words, Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries, which shall come upon you. He adds the reason for their repentance. Behold the hire of the laborers, who have reaped down your fields, which by fraud has been kept back by you, crieth, and the cry of them hath entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. This sort of robbery is strongly condemned in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Malachi, and Tobias. Among those who are guilty of robbery are also included persons who do not pay, or who turn to other uses or appropriate to themselves customs, taxes, tithes, and such revenues which are owed to the church or civil authorities. To this class also belong usurers, the most cruel and relentless of extortioners, who by their exorbitant rates of interest plunder and destroy the poor. Whatever is received above the capital and principal, be it money or anything else that may be purchased or estimated by money, is usury. For it is written in Ezekiel, He hath not lent upon usury, nor taken an increase. And in Luke, our Lord says, Lend, hoping for nothing thereby. Even among the pagans, usury was always considered a most grievous and odious crime. Hence the question, What is usury? was answered, What is murder? And indeed, he who lends at usury sells the same thing twice, or sells that which has no real existence. Corrupt judges, whose decisions are venal, and who, bought over by money or other bribes, decide against the just claims of the poor and the needy, also commit robbery. Those who defraud their creditors, who deny their just debts, and also those who purchase goods on their own or on another's credit, with a promise to pay for them at a certain time, and do not keep their word, are guilty of the same crime of robbery. And it is an aggravation of their guilt that in consequence of their want of punctuality and their fraud, prices are raised to the great injury of the public. To such persons seem to apply the words of David, The sinner shall borrow and not pay again. But what shall we say of those rich men who exact with rigor what they lend to the poor, even though the latter are not able to pay them, and who, disregarding God's law, take as security even the necessary clothing of the unfortunate debtors. For God says, If thou take of thy neighbor a garment in pledge, thou shalt give it him again before sunset, for that same is the only thing wherewith he is covered, the clothing of his body, neither hath he any other to sleep in. If he cry to me, I will hear him, because I am compassionate." Their rigorous exaction is justly termed rapacity, and therefore robbery. Among those whom the Holy Fathers pronounce guilty of robbery are persons who in times of scarcity hoard up their corn, thus culpably rendering supplies scarcer and dearer. This holds good with regard to all necessaries of life and sustenance. These are they against whom Solomon utters this execration he that hideth up corn 
shall be cursed among the people. Such persons the pastor should warn of their guilt and should reprove with more than ordinary freedom. He should explain to them at length the punishments which await their sins. So much for what the seventh commandment forbids. The positive part of this commandment, restitution enjoined. We now come to the positive part in which the first thing to be considered is satisfaction or restitution. For without restitution, the sin is not forgiven. But as the law of making restitution to the injured party is binding not only on the person who commits theft, but also on all who cooperate in the sin, it is necessary to explain who are indispensably bound to this satisfaction of restitution. There are several classes who are thus bound. The first consists of those who order others to steal, and who are not only the authors and accomplices of theft, but also the most criminal among thieves. Another class embraces those who, when they cannot command others to commit theft, persuade and encourage it. These, since they are like the first class in intention, though unlike them in power, are equally guilty of theft. The third class is composed of those who consent to the theft committed by others. The fourth class is that of those who are accomplices in and derive gain from theft. If that can be called gain, which unless they repent consigns them to everlasting torments. Of them, David says, If thou didst see a thief, thou didst run with him. The fifth class of thieves are those who, having it in their power to prohibit theft, so far from opposing or preventing it, fully and freely suffer and sanction its commission. The sixth class is constituted of those who are well aware that the theft was committed, and when it was committed, and yet, far from mentioning it, pretend they know nothing about it. The last class comprises all who assist in the accomplishment of theft, who guard, defend, receive, or harbor thieves. All these are bound to make restitution to those from whom anything has been stolen, and are to be earnestly exhorted to the discharge of so necessary a duty. Neither are those who approve and commend thefts entirely innocent of this crime. Children also, who steal from their parents, and wives who steal from their husbands, are not guiltless of theft. This commandment also implies an obligation to sympathize with the poor and needy, and to relieve their difficulties and distresses by our means and good offices. Concerning this subject, which cannot be insisted on too often or too strongly, the pastor will find abundant matter to enrich his discourses in the works of St. Cyprian, St. John Chrysostom, St. Gregory Nazianzen, and other eminent writers on alms deeds. The pastor, therefore, should encourage the faithful to be willing and anxious to assist those who have to depend on charity, and should make them realize the great necessity of giving alms and of being really and practically liberal to the poor by reminding them that on the last day God will condemn and consign to eternal fires those who have omitted and neglected the duty of almsgiving, while on the contrary he will praise and introduce into his heavenly country those who have exercised mercy towards the poor. These two sentences have been already pronounced 
by the lips of Christ the Lord. Come, ye blessed of my Father, possess the kingdom prepared for you, and depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. Priests should also cite those texts which are calculated to persuade to the performance of this important duty. Give, and it shall be given to you. They should dwell on the promise of God, the richest and most abundant that can be conceived. There is no man who hath left house or brethren that shall not receive a hundred times as much now in this time, and in the world to come life everlasting. And he should add these words of our Lord, Make unto yourself friends of the mammon of iniquity, that when you shall fail they may receive you into everlasting dwellings. They should also explain the parts of this necessary duty, so that whoever is unable to give may at least lend to the poor what they need to sustain life, according to the command of Christ our Lord. Lend, hoping for nothing thereby. The happiness of doing this is thus expressed by holy David. Acceptable is the man that showeth mercy, and lendeth. But if we are not able to give to those who must depend on the charity of others for their sustenance, it is an act of Christian piety, as well as a means of avoiding idleness, to procure, by our labor and industry, what is necessary for the relief of the poor. To this the apostle exhorts all by his own example. For yourselves, he says to the Thessalonians, know how you ought to imitate us. And again, writing to the same people, use your endeavor to be quiet, and that you do your own business, and work with your own hands as we commanded you. And to the Ephesians, he that stole, let him steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have something to give to him that suffereth need. We should also practice frugality, and draw sparingly on the kindness of others, that we may not be a burden or a trouble to them. The exercise of considerateness is conspicuous in all the apostles, but preeminently so in St. Paul. Writing to the Thessalonians, he says, You remember, brethren, our labor and toil, working night and day, lest we should be chargeable to any of you, we preached amongst you the gospel of God. And in another place, the same apostle says, In labor and in toil we worked night and day, lest we should be burdensome to any of you. The sanction of this commandment, the punishment of its violation. To inspire the faithful with an abhorrence of all infamous sins against this commandment, the pastor should have recourse to the prophets and the other inspired writers to show the detestation in which God holds the crimes of theft and robbery and the awful threats which he denounces against their perpetrators. Hear this, exclaims the prophet Amos, you that crush the poor and make the needy of the land to fail, saying, When will the month be over, and we shall sell our wares, and the Sabbath, and we shall open the corn, that we may lessen the measure, and increase the sickle, and may convey in deceitful balances? Many passages of the same kind may be found in Jeremiah's, Proverbs, and Ecclesiasticus. Indeed, it cannot be doubted that such crimes are the seeds from which have sprung in great part the evils 
which in our times oppress society. That Christians may accustom themselves to those acts of generosity and kindness towards the poor and the needy which are inculcated by the second part of this commandment, the pastor should place before them those ample rewards which God promises in this life and in the next to the beneficent and the bountiful. As there are not wanting those who would even excuse their thefts, these are to be admonished that God will accept no excuse for sin, and that their excuses, far from extenuating, serve only greatly to aggravate their guilt. How insufferable the vanity of these men of exalted rank who excuse themselves by alleging that they act not from cupidity or avarice, but stoop to take what belongs to others only from a desire to maintain the grandeur of their families and of their ancestors, whose repute and dignity must fall if not upheld by the possession of another man's property. Of this harmful error they are to be disabused, and they are to be convinced that the only means to preserve and augment their wealth and to enhance the glory of their ancestors is to obey the will of God and observe His commandments. Once His will and commandments are condemned, the stability of property, no matter how securely settled, is overturned. Kings are dethroned and hurled from the highest stations of honor, while the humblest individuals, men too, towards whom they cherish the most implacable hatred, are sometimes called by God to occupy their place. It is incredible to what degree the divine wrath is kindled against such offenders, and this we know from the testimony of Isaiah, who records these words of God, Thy princes are faithless companions of thieves. They all love bribes. They run after rewards. Therefore saith the Lord, the God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will comfort myself over my adversaries, and I will be revenged of my enemies, and I will turn my hand to thee, and I will clean purge away thy dross. Uh, some there are who plead in justification of such conduct, not the ambition of maintaining splendor and glory, but a desire of acquiring the means of living in greater ease and elegance. These are to be refuted, and should be shown how impious are the words and conduct of those who prefer their own ease to the will and glory of God, whom by neglecting His commandments we offend extremely. And yet, what real advantage can there be in theft? Of how many very serious evils is it not the source? Confusion and repentance, as Ecclesiasticus, is upon a thief. But even though no disadvantage overtake the thief, he offers an insult to the divine name, opposes the most holy will of God, and condemns his salutary precepts. From hence result all error, all dishonesty, all impiety. But do we not sometimes hear the thief contend that he is not guilty of sin, because he steals from the rich and the wealthy, who in his mind not only suffer no injury, but do not even feel the loss? Such an excuse is as wretched as it is baneful. Others imagine that they should be excused because they have contracted such a habit of stealing as not to be able easily to refrain from such desires and practices. If such persons listen not to the admonition of the apostle, 
He that stole, let him now steal no more. Let them recollect that one day, whether they like it or not, they will become accustomed to an eternity of torments. Some excuse themselves by saying that the opportunity presented itself. The proverb is well known. Those who are not thieves are made so by opportunity. Such persons are to be disabused of their wicked idea by reminding them that it is our duty to resist every evil propensity. If we yield instant obedience to every inordinate impulse, what measure, what limits will there be to crime and disorder? Such an excuse, therefore, is of the lowest character, or rather is an avowal of a complete want of restraint and justice. To say that you do not commit sin because you have no opportunity of sinning is almost to acknowledge that you are always prepared to sin when opportunity offers. There are some who say that they steal in order to gratify revenge, having themselves suffered the same injury from others. To such offenders it should be answered, first of all, that no one is allowed to return injury for injury. Next to that, no person can be a judge in his own cause. And finally, that still less can it be lawful to punish one man for the wrong done you by another. Finally, some find a sufficient justification of theft in their own embarrassments, alleging that they are overwhelmed with debt which they cannot pay off otherwise than by theft. Such persons should be given to understand that no debt presses more heavily upon all men than that which we mention each day in these words of the Lord's Prayer, Forgive us our debts. Hence, it is the height of folly to be willing to increase our debt to God by new sin in order to be able to pay our debts to men. It is much better to be consigned to prison than to be cast into the eternal torments of hell. It is by far a greater evil to be condemned by the judgment of God than by that of man. Hence it becomes our duty to have recourse to the assistance and mercy of God from whom we can obtain whatever we need. There are also other excuses, which, however, the judicious and zealous pastor will not find it difficult to meet, so that thus he may one day be blessed with a people who are followers of good works. The Eighth Commandment Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Importance of Instruction on this Commandment The great utility nay, the necessity of carefully explaining this commandment and of emphasizing its obligation, we learn from these words of St. James, If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man. And again, the tongue is indeed a little member and boasteth great things. Behold how small a fire, what a great wood it kindleth, and so on to the same effect. From these words, we learn two truths. The first is that sins of the tongue are very prevalent, which is confirmed by these words of the prophet, Every man is a liar, so that it would almost seem as if this were the only sin which extends to all mankind. The other truth is that the tongue is the source of innumerable evils. Through the fault of the evil speaker are often lost the property, the reputation, the life, and the salvation of the injured person, or of him who inflicts the injury.
The injured person, unable to bear patiently the contumely, avenges it without restraint. The offender, on the other hand, deterred by a perverse shame and a false idea of what is called honor, cannot be induced to make reparation to him whom he has offended. Hence the faithful are to be exhorted to thank God as much as they can for having given this salutary commandment, not to bear false witness, which not only forbids us to injure others, but which also, if duly observed, prevents others from injuring us. Two parts of this commandment. In its explanation we shall proceed as we have done with regard to the others, pointing out that in it are contained two laws. The first forbids us to bear false witness. The other commands us to lay aside all dissimulation and deceit, and to measure our words and actions by the standard of truth, a duty of which the apostle admonishes the Ephesians in these words, doing the truth in charity, let us grow up in all things in him. With regard to the prohibitory part of this commandment, Although by false testimony is understood whatever is positively but falsely affirmed of anyone, be it for or against him, be it in a public court or elsewhere. Yet the commandment specially prohibits that species of false testimony which is given on oath in a court of justice. For a witness swears by the deity, because the words of a man thus giving evidence and using the divine name have very great weight and possess the strongest claim to credit. Such testimony, therefore, because it is dangerous, is specially prohibited. For even the judge himself cannot reject the testimony of sworn witnesses, unless they can be excluded by exceptions made in the law, or unless their dishonesty and malice are notorious. This is especially true, since it is commanded by divine authority that in the mouth of two or three every word shall stand. In order that the faithful may have a clear comprehension of this commandment, it should be explained who is their neighbor, against whom it is unlawful to bear false witness. According to the interpretation of Christ the Lord, our neighbor is he who needs our assistance, whether bound to us by ties of kindred or not, whether a fellow citizen or a stranger, a friend or an enemy. It is wrong to think that one may give false evidence against an enemy, since by the command of God and of our Lord we are bound to love him. Moreover, as every man is bound to love himself and is thus in some sense his own neighbor, it is unlawful for anyone to bear false witness against himself. He who does so brands himself with infamy and disgrace, and injures both himself and the church of which he is a member, much as the suicide by his act does a wrong to the state. This is the doctrine of St. Augustine, who says, To those who do not understand the precept properly, it might seem lawful to give false testimony against oneself, because the words against thy neighbor are subjoined in the commandment. But let no one who bears false testimony against himself think that he has not violated this commandment, for the standard of loving our neighbor is the love which we cherish towards ourselves. Let us continue with the Eighth Commandment on side B of this tape. We continue now with the Catechism of the Council of Trent and the subject of the commandments. 
The Eighth Commandment, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. But if we are forbidden to injure our neighbor by false testimony, let it not be inferred that the contrary is lawful, and that we may help by perjury those who are bound to us by ties of kinship or religion. It is never allowed to have recourse to lies or deception, much less to perjury. Hence St. Augustine in his book on Crescentius, on lying, teaches from the words of the apostle that a lie, although uttered in false praise of anyone, is to be, among, be numbered among false testimonies. Treating of that passage, yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have given testimony against God, that he hath raised up Christ whom he hath not raised, if the dead rise not again. He says, the apostle calls it false testimony to utter a lie with regard to Christ, even though it should seem to redound to his praise. It also not infrequently happens that by favoring one party we injure the other. False testimony is certainly the occasion of misleading the judge, who yielding to such evidence is sometimes obliged to decide against justice to the injury of the innocent. Sometimes, too, it happens that the successful party, who by means of perjured witnesses, has gained his case and escaped with impunity, exulting in his iniquitous victory, soon becomes accustomed to the work of corrupting and suborning false witnesses, by whose aid he hopes to obtain whatever he wishes. To the witness himself, it must be most grievous that his falsehood and perjury are known to him, whom he has aided and abetted by his perjury. Whilst encouraged by the success that follows his crime, he becomes every day more accustomed to wickedness and audacity. Thou shalt not bear false witness. All falsehoods in lawsuits are forbidden. This precept then prohibits deceit, lying, and perjury on the part of witnesses. The same prohibition extends also to plaintiffs, defendants, promoters, representatives, procurators, and advocates, in a word, to all who take any part in lawsuits. Finally, God prohibits all testimony which may inflict injury or injustice, whether it be a matter of legal evidence or not. In the passage of Leviticus, where the commandments are repeated, we read, Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie, neither shall any man deceive his neighbor. To none, therefore, can it be a matter of doubt that this commandment condemns lies of every sort, as these words of David explicitly declare, Thou wilt destroy all that speak a lie. This commandment forbids not only false testimony, but also the detestable vice and practice of detraction, a pestilence which is the source of innumerable and calamitous evils. This vicious habit of secretly reviling and calumnating character is frequently reprobated in the sacred scriptures. With him, says David, I would not eat. And St. James, detract not one another, my brethren. Holy Writ abounds not only with precepts on the subject, but also with examples which reveal the enormity of the crime. Amun, by a crime of his own invention, had so incensed Osorius against the Jews that he ordered the destruction of the entire race. Sacred history contains many other examples of the same kind, 
which priests should recall in order to deter the people from such iniquity. But to understand well the nature of this sin of detraction, we must know that reputation is injured not only by calumniating the character but also by exaggerating the faults of others. He who gives publicity to the secret sin of any man in an unnecessary place or time or before persons who have no right to know is also rightly regarded as a detractor and evil speaker if his revelation seriously injures the other's reputation. But of all sorts of calumnies, the worst is that which is directed against Catholic doctrine and its teachers. Persons who extol the propagators of error and of unsound doctrine are guilty of a like crime. Nor are those to be disassociated from the ranks of evil speakers or from their guilt who, instead of reproving, lend a willing ear and a cheerful assent to the calumniators and revilers. As we read in St. Jerome and, and St. Bernard, it is not so easy to decide which is more guilty, the detractor or the listener, for if there were no listeners there would be no detractors. To the same category belong those who cunningly foment divisions and excite quarrels, who feel a malignant pleasure in sowing discord, dissevering by fiction and falsehood the closest friendships and the dearest social ties impelling to endless hatred and deadly combat the dearest, fondest friends. Of such pestilent characters the Lord expresses his detestation in these words, Thou shalt not be a detractor nor a whisperer among the people. Of this description were many of the advisers of Saul, who strove to alienate the king's affection from David and to arouse his enmity against him. Among the transgressors of this commandment are to be numbered those fawners and sycophants who, by flattery and insincere praise, gain the hearing and goodwill of those whose favor, money, and honors they seek, calling good evil and evil good, as the prophet says. Such characters David admonishes us to repel and banish from our society. The just man, he says, shall correct me in mercy and shall reprove me, but let not the oil of the sinner flatten my head. This class of persons do not, it is true, speak ill of their neighbor, but they greatly injure him, since by praising his sins they cause him to continue in vice to the end of his life. Of this species of flattery, the most pernicious is that which proposes to itself for object the injury and ruin of others. Thus Saul, when he sought to expose David to the sword and the fury of the Philistines, in order to bring about his death, addressed him in these soothing words, Behold my eldest daughter Merab, her will I give thee to wife. Only be a valiant man and fight the battles of the Lord. In the same way the Jews thus insidiously addressed our Lord, Master, we know that thou art a true speaker and teachest the way of God in truth. Still more pernicious is the language addressed sometimes by friends and relations to a person suffering with a mortal disease and on the point of death, when they assure him that there is no danger of dying, telling him to be of good spirits, dissuading him from confession, as though the very thought should fill him with melancholy, and finally withdrawing his attention from all care and thought of the dangers which beset him in the last perilous hour. In a word, 
Lies of every sort are prohibited, especially those that cause grave injury to anyone, while most impious of all is a lie uttered against or regarding religion. God is also grievously offended by these attacks and slanders which are termed lampoons and other defamatory publications of this kind. To deceive by a jocose or officious lie, even though it helps or harms no one, is notwithstanding altogether unworthy. For thus the apostle admonishes us, putting away lying, speak ye the truth. This practice begets a strong tendency to frequent and serious lying, and from jocose lying men contract the habit of lying, lose all reputation for truth, and ultimately find it necessary in order to gain belief to have recourse to continual swearing. Finally, the first part of this commandment prohibits dissimulation. It is sinful not only to speak, but to act deceitfully. Actions as well as words are signs of what is in our mind, and hence our Lord, rebuking the Pharisees, frequently calls them hypocrites. So far with regard to the negative, which is the first part of this commandment. The positive part of this commandment, judges must pass sentence according to law and justice. We now come to explain what the Lord commands in the second part. Its nature and purpose require that trials be conducted on principles of strict justice and according to law. It requires that no one usurp judicial powers or authority. For as the apostle writes, it were unjust to judge another man's servant. Again, it requires that no one pass sentence without a sufficient knowledge of the case. This was the sin of the priests and scribes who passed judgment on St. Stephen. The magistrates of Philippi furnish another example. They have beaten us publicly, said the apostle, uncondemned men that are Romans, and have cast us into prison, and now do they thrust us out privately. This commandment also requires that the innocent be not condemned nor the guilty acquitted, and that the decision be not influenced by money or favor, hatred or love. For so Moses admonished the elders whom he had constituted judges of the people, Judge that which is just, whether he be one of your country or a stranger. There shall be no difference of persons. You shall hear the little as well as the great. Neither shall you respect any man's person, because it is the judgment of God. With regard to an accused person who is conscious of his own guilt, God commands him to confess the truth if he is interrogated judicially. By that confession he in some sort bears witness to and proclaims the praise and glory of God. And of this we have proof in these words of Josu when exhorting Achan to confess the truth. My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel. But as this commandment chiefly concerns witnesses, the pastor should give them special attention. The spirit of the precept not only prohibits false testimony, but also commands the truth to be told. In human affairs, to bear testimony to the truth is a matter of the highest importance, because there are innumerable things of which we must be ignorant unless we arrive at the knowledge of them on the faith of witnesses. In matters which we are not personally acquainted and which we need to know, there is nothing so important as true evidence. Hence the words of St. Augustine, 
He who conceals the truth and he who utters falsehood are both guilty. The one, because he's unwilling to render a service, the other, because he has the will to do an injury. We are not, however, at all times obliged to disclose the truth. But when in a court of justice a witness is legally interrogated by the judge, he is emphatically bound to tell the whole truth. Here, however, witnesses should be most circumspect, lest, trusting too much to memory, they affirm for certain what they have not fully ascertained. Attorneys and counsel, plaintiffs and prosecutors, remain still to be treated of. The two former should not refuse to contribute their services and legal assistance when the necessities of others call for their aid. They should deal generously with the poor. They should not defend an unjust cause, prolong lawsuits by trickery, nor encourage them for the sake of gain. As to remuneration for their services and labors, let them be guided by the principles of justice and of equity. Plaintiffs and prosecutors on their side are to be warned not to be led by the influence of love or hatred or any other undue motive into exposing anyone to danger through unjust charges. To all conscientious persons is addressed the divine command that in all their intercourse with society, in every conversation, they should speak the truth at all times from the sincerity of their hearts, that they should utter nothing injurious to the reputation of another, not even of those by whom they know they've been injured and persecuted. For they should always remember that between them and others there exists such a close social bond that they are all members of the same body. In order that the faithful may be more disposed to avoid the vice of lying, the pastor should place before them the extreme lowness and disgrace of this sin. In the sacred scriptures, the devil is called the father of lies, for as he stood not in the truth, he is a liar and the father thereof. To banish so great a sin, the pastor should add the mischievous consequences of lying, but since they are innumerable, he must be content with pointing out the chief kinds of these evils and calamities. In the first place, he should show how grievously lies and deceit offend God and how deeply they are hated by God. This he should prove from the words of Solomon. Six things there are which the Lord hateth, and the seventh his soul detesteth. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that dev deviseth wicked plots, feet that are swift to run into mischief, a deceitful witness that uttereth lies. Who then can protect or save from severest chastisements the man who is thus the object of God's special hate? Again, what more wicked, what more base, than as St. James says, with the same tongue by which we bless God and the Father to curse men who are made after the image and likeness of God, so that out of the same fountain flows sweet and bitter water. The tongue which was before employed in giving praise and glory to God, afterwards, as far as it is able, by lying, treats him with ignominy and dishonor. Hence liars are excluded from a participation in the bliss of heaven. To David asking, Lord, who shall dwell in thy tabernacle? The Holy Spirit answers, He that speaketh truth in his heart, who hath not used deceit in his tongue. 
Lying is also attended with this very great evil that it is an almost incurable disease. For since the guilt of the calumniator cannot be pardoned unless satisfaction be made to the calumniated person, and since, as we've already observed, this duty is difficult for those who are deterred from its performance by false shame and a foolish idea of dignity, we cannot doubt that he who continues in this sin is destined to the unending punishments of hell. Let no one indulge the hope of obtaining the pardon of his calumnies or detractions until he has repaired the injury which they have inflicted on the honor or fame of another, whether this be done in a court of justice or in a private and familiar conversation. But the evil consequences of lying are widespread and extend to society at large. By duplicity and lying, good faith and truth, which forms the closest links of human society, are dissolved. Confusion ensues, and men seem to differ in nothing from demons. The pastor should also teach that loquacity is to be avoided. By avoiding loquacity, other evils can be obviated, and a great preventive opposed to lying, from which loquacious persons can scarcely abstain. There are those who seek to justify their duplicity, either by the unimportance of what they say, or by the example of the worldly wise who they claim lie at the proper time. The pastor should correct such erroneous ideas by answering what is most true, namely, that the wisdom of the flesh is death. He should exhort his listeners in all their difficulties and dangers to trust in God, not in the artifice of lying. For those who have recourse to subterfuge plainly show that they trust more to their own prudence than to the providence of God. Those who lay the blame of their own falsehood on others, who first deceive them by lies, are to be taught the unlawfulness of avenging their own wrongs, and that evil is not to be rendered for evil, but rather that evil is to be overcome by good. Even if it were lawful to return evil for evil, it would not be to our interest to harm ourselves in order to get revenge. The man who seeks revenge by uttering falsehood inflicts very serious injury on himself. Those who plead human frailty are to be taught that it is a duty of religion to implore the divine assistance and not to yield to human infirmity. Those who excuse themselves by habit are to be admonished to endeavor to acquire the contrary habit of speaking the truth, particularly as those who sin habitually are more guilty than others. There are some who adduce to their own justification the example of others who they contend constantly indulge in falsehood and perjury. Such persons should be undeceived by reminding them that bad men are not to be imitated but reproved and corrected, and that when we ourselves are addicted to the same vice, our admonitions have less influence in reprehending and correcting it in others. With regard to those who defend their conduct by saying that to speak the truth is often attended with inconvenience, priests should answer that such an excuse is an accusation, not a defense since it is the duty of a Christian to suffer any inconvenience rather than utter a falsehood. There remain two other classes of persons who seek to justify lying. Those who say that they tell lies for the sake of amusement, 
and those who plead motives of interest, claiming that without recourse to lies, they can neither buy nor sell to advantage. The pastor should endeavor to reform both these kinds of liars. He should correct the former by showing how strong a habit of sinning is contracted by their practice, and by strongly impressing upon them the truth that for every idle word they shall render an account. As for the second class, he should upbraid them with greater severity, because their very excuse is a most serious accusation against themselves, since they show thereby that they yield no faith or confidence in these words of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his justice, and all these things shall be added unto you. The Ninth and Tenth Commandments Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, neither shalt thou desire his wife, nor his servant, nor his handmaid, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is his. Importance of Instruction on These Two Commandments It is to be observed in the first place that these two precepts, which were delivered last in order, furnish a general principle for the observance of all the rest. What is commanded in these two amounts to this, that if we wish to observe the preceding precepts of the law, we must be particularly careful not to covet. For he who does not covet, being content with what he has, will not desire what belongs to others, but will rejoice in their prosperity, will give glory to the immortal God, will render him boundless thanks, and will observe the Sabbath, that is, will enjoy perpetual repose and will respect his superiors. In fine, he will injure no man in word or deed or otherwise, for the root of all evil is concupiscence, which hurries its unhappy victims into every species of crime and wickedness. Keeping these considerations in mind, the pastor should be more diligent in explaining thus this commandment and the faithful more ready to hear his instruction. We have united these two commandments because, since their subject matter is similar, they may be treated together. However, the pastor may explain them either together or separately, according as he may deem it more effective for his exhortations and admonitions. If, however, he has undertaken the exposition of the Decalogue, he should point out in what these two commandments are dissimilar, how one covetousness differs from another, a difference noticed by St. Augustine in his book of Questions on Exodus. The one covetousness looks only to utility and interest, the other to unlawful desire and criminal pleasure. He, for instance, who covets a field or a house, pursues profit rather than pleasure, while he who covets another man's wife yields to a desire of pleasure, not of profit. The promulgation of these two commandments was necessary for two reasons. The first is to explain the sixth and the seventh commandments. Reason alone shows that to prohibit adultery is also to prohibit the desire of another man's wife, because were the desire lawful, its indulgence must be so too. Nevertheless, many of the Jews, blinded by sin, could not be induced to believe that such desires were prohibited by God. Nay, even after the law had been promulgated and become known, many who professed themselves its interpreters continued in the same error, 
as we learn from these words of our Lord recorded in St. Matthew. You have heard that it was said of them of old, Thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you. The second reason for the promulgation of these two commandments is that they distinctly and in express terms prohibit some things of which the sixth and seventh commandments do not contain an explicit prohibition. The seventh commandment, for instance, forbids an unjust desire or endeavor to take what belongs to another. But this commandment further prohibits even to covet it in any way, even though it could be acquired justly and lawfully, if we foresee that by such acquisition our neighbor would suffer some loss. But before we come to the exposition of the commandments, the faithful are first to be informed that by this law we are taught not only to restrain our inordinate desires, but also to know the boundless love of God towards us. By the preceding commandments, God had, as it were, fenced us round with safeguards, securing us in ours against injury of every sort. But by the addition of these two commandments, he intended chiefly to provide against the injuries which we might inflict on ourselves by the indulgence of inordinate desires, as would easily happen were we at liberty to covet all things indiscriminately. By this law, then, which forbids to covet, God has blunted in some degree the keenness of desire which excites to every kind of evil, so that by reason of his command these desires are to some extent diminished, and we ourselves, freed from the annoying importunity of the passions, are enabled to devote more time to the performance of numerous and important duties of piety and religion which we owe to God. Nor is this the only lesson of instruction which we derive from these commandments. They also teach us that the divine law is to be observed, observed not only by the external performance of duties, but also by the internal concurrence of the heart. Between divine and human laws, then, there is this difference, that human laws are fulfilled by an external compliance alone, whereas the laws of God, since he reads the heart, require purity of heart, sincere and undefiled integrity of soul. The law of God, therefore, is a sort of a mirror in which we behold the corruption of our own nature, and hence these words of the apostle, I had not known concupiscence if the law did not say, Thou shalt not covet. Concupiscence, which is the fuel of sin, and which originated is in sin, is always inherent in our fallen nature. From it we know that we are born in sin, and therefore do we humbly fly for assistance to him who alone can efface the stains of sin. Two parts of these commandments. In common with the other commandments, however, these two are partly mandatory, partly prohibitory. The negative part. Thou shalt not covet. With regard to the prohibitory part, the pastor should explain what sort of concupiscence is prohibited by this law, lest some may think that which is not sinful to be sinful. Such is the concupiscence of the spirit against the flesh, or that which David so earnestly desired, namely, to long after the justifications of God at all times. Concupiscence, then, is a certain commotion and impulse of the soul, urging men to the desire of pleasures which they do not actually enjoy. 
As the other propensities of the soul are not always sinful, neither is the impulse of concupiscence always vicious. It is not, for instance, sinful to desire food and drink, when cold to wish for warmth, when warm to wish to become cool. This lawful species of concupiscence was implanted in us by the author of nature. But in the consequence of the sin of our first parents, it passed the limits prescribed by nature and became so depraved that it frequently excites to the desire of those things which conflict with the spirit and reason. However, if well regulated and kept within proper bounds, it is often still the source of no slight advantage. In the first place, it leads us to supplicate God continually and humbly to beg of Him those things which we most earnestly desire. Prayer is the interpreter of our wishes. And if this lawful concupiscence did not exist within us, prayer would be far less frequent in the church of God. It also makes us esteem the gifts of God more highly, for the more eagerly we desire anything, the dearer and more pleasing will be its possession to us. Finally, the gratification which we receive from the acquisition of the desired object increases the devotion of our gratitude to God. If then it's sometimes lawful to covet, it must be conceded that not every species of concupiscence is forbidden. St. Paul, it is true, says that concupiscence is sin, but his words are to be understood in the same sense as those of Moses, whom he cites, as the apostle himself declares, when in his epistle to the Galatians he calls it the concupiscence of the flesh, for he says, Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Hence that natural, well-regulated concupiscence which does not go beyond its proper limits is not prohibited. Still less do these commandments forbid that spiritual desire of the virtuous mind, which prompts us to long for those things that war against the flesh. For the sacred scriptures themselves exhort us to such a desire. Covet ye my words, come over to me, all ye that desire me. It is not, then, the mere power of desire which can move either to a good or a bad object that is prohibited by these commandments. It is the indulgence of evil desire, which is called the concupiscence of the flesh and the fuel of sin, and which, when accompanied by the consent of the will, is always sinful. Therefore, only that covetousness is forbidden which the apostle calls the concupiscence of the flesh, that is to say, those motions of desire which are contrary to the dictates of reason and outstep the limits prescribed by God. This kind of covetousness is condemned, either because it desires what is evil, such as adultery, drunkenness, murder, and such heinous crimes, of which the apostle says, let us not covet evil things as they also coveted, or because, although the objects may not be bad in themselves, yet there is some other reason which makes it wrong to desire them, as when, for instance, God or his church prohibit their possession, for it is not permitted us to desire these things which it is altogether unlawful to possess. Such were, in the old law, the gold and silver from which idols were made, and which the Lord in Deuteronomy forbade anyone to covet. Another reason why this sort of vicious desire is condemned 
is that it has for its object that which belongs to another, such as a house, maidservant, field, wife, ox, ass, and many other things, all of which the law of God forbids us to covet simply because they belong to another. The desire of such things, when consented to, is criminal and is numbered among the most grievous sins. For sin is committed the moment the soul, yielding to the impulse of corrupt desires, is pleased with evil things, and neither consents to or does not resist them. As St. James, pointing out the beginning and progress of sin, teaches when he says, Every man is tempted by his own concupiscence, being drawn away and allured. Then, when concupiscence hath conceived it, bringeth forth sin, but sin, when it is completed, begetteth death. When therefore the law says, Thou shalt not covet, it means that we are not to desire those things which belong to others. A thirst for what belongs to others is intense and insatiable, for it is written, A covetous man shall not be satisfied with money. And of such a one Isaiah says, Woe to you that join house to house and lay field to field. But a distinct explanation of each of the words in which this commandment is expressed will make it easier to understand the deformity and the grievousness of this sin. Thy neighbor's house. The pastor, therefore, should teach that by the word house is to be understood not only the habitation in which we dwell, but all our property, as we know from the usage and custom of the sacred writers. Thus, when it is said in Exodus that the Lord built houses for the midwives, the meaning is that he improved their conditions and means. From this interpretation, therefore, we perceive that we are forbidden to indulge in eager desire of riches, or to envy others their wealth, or power, or rank. But on the contrary, we are directed to be content with our own condition, whether it be high or low. Furthermore, it is forbidden to desire the glory of others, since glory also is comprised under the word house. The words that follow, nor his ox, nor his ass, teach us that not only is it unlawful to desire things of greater value, such as a house, rank, glory, because they belong to others, but also things of little value, whatever they may be, animate or inanimate. The words, nor his servant, come next, and include captives as well as other slaves whom it is no more lawful to covet than the other property of our neighbor. With regard to the free who serve voluntarily, either for wages or out of affection or respect, it is unlawful by words or hopes or promises or rewards to bribe or solicit them under any pretext whatever to leave those to whose service they have freely engaged themselves. Nay more, if before the period of their contract has expired, they leave their employers, they are to be admonished on the authority of this commandment to return to them by all means. The word neighbor is mentioned in this commandment to mark the wickedness of those who habitually covet the lands, houses, and the like which lie in their immediate vicinity. For neighborhood, which should make for friendship, is transformed by covetousness from a source of love into a cause of hatred. But this commandment is by no means transgressed by those who purchase, desire to purchase, or have actually purchased at a fair price from a neighbor 
the goods which he has for sale. Instead of doing him an injury, they on the contrary very much assist their neighbor, because to him the money will be much more convenient and useful than the goods he sells. Now the commandment which forbids us to covet the goods of our neighbor is followed by another which forbids us to covet our neighbor's wife, a law that prohibits not only the adulterer's criminal desire of his neighbor's wife, but even the wish to marry her. For of old, when a bill of divorce was permitted, it might easily happen that she who was put away by one husband might be married to another. But the Lord forbade the desire of another's wife, lest husbands might be induced to abandon their wives, or wives conduct themselves with such bad temper towards their husbands as to make it necessary to send them away. But now this sin is more grievous, because the wife, although separated from her husband, cannot be taken in marriage by another until the husband's death. He, therefore, who covets another man's wife will easily fall from this into another desire, for he will wish either the death of the husband or the commission of adultery. The same principle holds good with regard to women who have been betrothed to another. To covet them is also unlawful, and whoever strives to break their engagement violates one of the most holy of promises. And if to covet the wedded wife of another is entirely unlawful, it is on no account right to desire in marriage the virgin who is consecrated to religion and to the service of God. But should anyone desire in marriage a married woman whom he thinks to be single, and whom he would not wish to marry if he knew she had a husband living, certainly he does not violate this commandment. Pharaoh and Abimelech, as the scripture informs us, were betrayed into this error. They wished to marry Sarah, supposing her to be unmarried, and to be the sister, not the wife, of Abraham. The positive part of this commandment. In order to make known the remedies calculated to overcome the vice of covetousness, the pastor should explain the positive part of the commandment, which consists in this, that if riches abound, we set not our hearts upon them, that we be prepared to sacrifice them for the sake of piety and religion, that we contribute cheerfully towards the relief of the poor, and that if we ourselves are poor, we bear our poverty with patience and joy. And indeed, if we are generous with our own goods, we shall extinguish in our own hearts the desire of what belongs to another. Concerning the praises of poverty and the contempt of riches, the pastor will find little difficulty in collecting abundant matter for the instruction of the faithful from the sacred scriptures and the works of the fathers. Likewise, this commandment requires us to desire with all the ardor and all the earnestness of our souls the consummation not of our own wishes, but of the holy will of God, as it is expressed in the Lord's Prayer. Now it is His will that we be made eminent in holiness, that we preserve our souls pure and undefiled, that we practice those duties of mind and spirit which are opposed to sensuality, that we subdue our unruly appetites, and enter under the guidance of reason and of the Spirit upon a virtuous course of life. And finally, that we hold under restraint those senses in particular which supply matter to the passions. 
Let us continue with the ninth and tenth commandments in the Catechism of the Council of Trent on the next tape. With the Catechism of the Council of Trent and the chapter on the ninth and tenth commandments. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, neither shalt thou desire his wife, nor his servant, nor his handmaid, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is his. Thoughts which help one to keep these commandments. In order to extinguish the fire of passion, it will be found most efficacious to place before our eyes the evil consequences of its indulgence. Among those evils, the first is that by obedience to the impulse of passion, sin gains uncontrolled sway over the soul. Hence the apostle warns us, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, so as to obey the lust thereof. Just as resistance to the passions destroys the power of sin, so indulgence of the passions expels God from his kingdom and introduces sin in his place. Again, concupiscence, as St. James teaches, is the source from which flows every sin. Likewise, St. John says, All that is in the world is the concupiscence of the flesh, the concupiscence of the eyes, and the pride of life. A third evil of sensuality is that it darkens the understanding. Blinded by passion, man comes to regard whatever he desires as lawful and even laudable. Finally, concupiscence stifles the seed of the divine word sown in our souls by God, the great husbandman. Some, it is written in St. Mark, are sown among thorns. These are they who hear the word and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lust after other things entering in, choke the word, and it is made fruitless. Chief ways in which these two commandments are violated. They who more than others are the slaves of concupiscence, the pastors should exhort with greater earnestness to observe this commandment. Such are the following. Those who are addicted to improper amusements or who are immoderately given to recreation. Merchants who wish for scarcity and who cannot bear that other buyers or sellers hinder them from selling at a higher or buying at a lower rate those who wish to see their neighbor reduced to want in order that they themselves may profit in buying or selling. Soldiers who thirst for war in order to enrich themselves with plunder. Physicians who wish for the spread of disease. Lawyers who are anxious for a great number of cases and litigations. And artisans who through greed for gain wish for a scarcity of necessities.